Hello, everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets, episode number 410. I'm your host, Chris Zona. Joining us all is my co-host, David Bix, a span. And Bix, we go, well, we're staying in the, in the 90s here, and we were in 1995 last week, and we got 1997 this week. So, uh should be an interesting show. Yes, and we're going to open with something that is relevant, but, well, relevant to one of our recent Patreon shows, but also weird and... I honestly just want to get started and get into that because I'm trying to wrap my head around it as I start looking at the notes. All right, so we are going to go to the week of June 14th or the 20th of 1997, and we'll start with World Championship Wrestling. And we start with the Frozen Torch. Two sources indicate that last night Ric Flair renewed his contract with WCW for another three years. According to one well, According to one well-placed source... Flair talked with Vince McMahon earlier this year, and McMahon at the time gave Flair the impression he wasn't interested in dealing out a big guarantee for a 48-year-old wrestler who at the time had been sitting out with an injury for several months. Flair was considered one of the top, few top wrestlers who were on the pay based on what they contributed in star power to television, house shows, and even first-day ticket sales. At between four fifty and five fifty thousand. As his salary, the last three years, Flair made in his career with a final run of three years, making more money in that three years than any other three-year period in his career. In pro wrestling, a wrestler's peak earning years tend to directly follow their best years in the ring because there's a lag time between peaking of skills and peaking of marketability and name value. With Flair, that's probably been the case. If reports are accurate, Flair did renew with WCW. It surprises a few people in WCW because Flair has had his problems with the way the company has operated lately. He has watched the Kevin Nash faction take over power in WCW, and the Kevin Sullivan faction, which he was closest to, lost power. He saw Nash go unpunished for lashing out physically at Roddy Piper several weeks ago. Yeah? <laughs> okay, Bix, what are we to believe here? I mean, it's clearly not true as written. We know that now. Well, who is the sources that are feeding away this information here, I wonder? And is the well-placed source one of the two sources or a third source? Yeah. I mean, according to one well-placed source, I feel like implies that it's either Floyd or McMahon for that one. Yeah. But I, I don't know what to think of this. Who would be feeding the story and why? Yeah, because Dave has nothing about it. Right. In the Observer, which is, you know, interesting in its own right. So, and we know that Flair, um, his contract was up when in 98. When, do, when, when that story is going on, are we told that his contract expired? Well, did he read, well... It was talked about, we remember, on the Patreon show, where it was mentioned that he was going, he signed the letter of intent. He had yet to sign the contract. But also, when did the other contract expire, too? I guess it doesn't necessarily matter. (laughs) But he signed a letter of intent in late 97, early 98. Okay, so I'm pulling up the Patreon notes to jog my memory here. Look for intent. Uh, okay, so we have the March 16th Observer includes a note that Flair isn't... Wait, I missed where I was. 
Uh, although Flair has not signed his new three-year contract, he has signed a letter of intent, which is a legally binding document, so he can't go elsewhere until 2001, unless Bischoff releases him to do so. And also, the contract he has at the end was signed in February 2000, which, given, like, the stuff we talked about in the Patreon show with, like, how the lawsuit technically drags on in January, February 99... That makes me think that Flair ends up signing a one-year deal in February 99. You know? Yeah. Or even potentially that the leather of intent was February 98. But... Trying to see if there's anything about when he actually signed the letter of intent and what the timeline on that was. I'm not really seeing anything yet. Well, I mean, it's obviously not here. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But again, why is this being fed to Wade and only Wade? Or at least only Wade that got more than one source? Yeah. That is weird. So the legal threats he got about the letter of intent said he was under contract for three years with a nice size raise. <laughs> Which is, uh, so that would mean, if that's true, that would mean, that's not how they treated it. If he signed a new contract in February 2000. Hmm. Hey, what do you make of this? I mean, who, does seen, it, who does it benefit, though, to have the story out there? We've seen this throughout doing this show. And, you know, it, where it comes out that. We have so-and-so that's signing your deal or whatever like that, or blah, 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 blah. And it comes out that that's not true. Um, I don't know who it benefits. I mean, and I don't know why someone would be feeding away that information. I mean, it's just a weird deal. Um if it's not true, which obviously, from what we gathered in with other stuff, that it's not true. I, I mean, there's I, no I, way I it's so... true. Flair signing a new contract, or almost signing a new contract, is one of the biggest wrestling news stories in 1998. With the fallout. Weird deal. <laughs> okay, okay, well, wait a second. Okay. So, yeah, okay, it looks like they were acting as if the contract was signed. Okay, so it looks like he signed the letter of intent on February 15th, 98, because the contract period was to expire on February 15th, 01, and then obviously he signed something new, or maybe it was through 2000, because he signs a new contract on February 16th, 2000. That runs through February 15th, 03. But still, it's not, there's nothing, it's not nothing here in 97. Right. You know? <laughs> So it's just like, why? <laughs> That's the thing. I don't get who this benefits. I think some people just just send shit to people to see if they'll put it out there, or they send just, or they feed shit to other people in the company to see if they send it, or if they feed it to the newsletters to try to catch a leak. Yeah, That's probably another thing too. Yeah. So um, here we okay. So we have if this is. 
Okay, so this is text directly from the letter, or not from the letter, from the lawsuit Flair files. On February 15th, 1998, Ric Flair's five-year contract with WCW expired. Three months earlier, WCW proposed a three-year extension letter of agreement, a short-form contract for Flair to sign outlining the basic terms of an eventual long-form contract. Flair did not sign the initial letter of agreement dated November 5th, but did sign a letter dated November 11th. Letter of agreement called for a three-year term playing, paying Flair 725000 725000 and 500000 respectfully each year, with, a, with potential for more in the third year if he was asked to make more than 130 appearances. Uh, the last paragraph of the letter of agreement says more detailed contract would be prepared by WCW and signed by the parties, but until then, letter of agreement would be fully enforceable and legally binding between the parties. Uh, Flair and WCW Vice President Nick Lambra signed the agreement. Before signing, though, Flair insisted on a qualification. A handwritten note in the margin said he agreed only if, quote, quote if subject to review and mutual acceptance. Flair's representatives contend WCW violated that note, thus voiding the letter of agreement. So yeah, this this story here in the torch is completely false. <laughs> I mean, it had, yeah, yes. and I don't think it benefits anyone. So the question becomes: Was this a plant to try to catch someone? Uh, it's what it looks like. Because that's the thing: if it doesn't benefit anyone, what's the other reason to do? Only other reason to do it. It's that. I feel like. Unless you're just fucking around and trying to get fake stories in the newsletters, just for fun. Well, I mean, there's a, we, 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 you know, Wade sources, are, you know, we joke about it on time, you know, who his sources were at the time. Well, no, we but, had more sources than that. It's just we know there I know, are certain... but we, well, there's one of them that's it that was in a feud with Ric Flair at that time. Or had just been in a feud with Ric Flair, yes. Yeah, so, and it also, you know, it kind of makes you wonder. I don't know. All right. So anyway, let's get to something that's factual. World Championship Wrestling shouted all attendance and gate records for the Quad Cities with their Grammar Convention review show on June 15th from the Mark of the Quad in Moline, Illinois. The show drew 9,613 fans, paying $142,118, which broke of the air's attendance records set back in the early 60s. This show was about 565 of a legitimate sellout and drew an additional $66,000 in merchandise. The one part you left out was there about, was there was about a thousand comps or thereabouts. Well, I mean, I said it. <laughs> I just didn't say it directly, but 9613, 8538 pay. No, you didn't say 8538. That's the thing. You said 9613 paying 142,118. Okay. It was around <laughs> the middle show, but whatever. It was around the middle show as far as advancing the storyline and got a very mixed response. Dave thought it was a good show, mixing up good and bad average matches, most of which came across better than Nick figured to be on paper, which largely strong booking that had a purpose, the sore levels would be the batches. Some of the finishes left something to be desired, and it was an overall very good announced performance by Tony Schiavone as the host. And although Bobby the Brain Heenan is showing that his brain isn't what it once was, at no point was Dusty Rhodes his stereotypical overbearing personality, and Mike today did a great job in the opener. From an organization standpoint, it was a night and day difference with Terry Taylor running things. The announcers fed the eventual storylines much better than when they appeared to go out and call matches with no clue as to what's going on. Not to say that even in these circumstances that Bobby Heenan was all there, although he only made one major faux pas. Still not understanding the tap submission rule, which one of the main things this show was designed to get over. 
In particular, after the replay showed Ming tapping for Crispin Wall's crossface, Ming was still Heenan was still asking if Ming had submitted or the referee had stopped the match because Ming had passed out. You think I'm not understanding the tap out of Nitro two weeks back with Barbarian, but he figured it out by now. With three tap out finishes, only one DQ in, and the booking was often solid, and some of the car matches built up a specific story and paid off on it at the end. However, matches one, Ultimate Dragon versus Psychosis, four, Glacier Raph, and seven, Mongo against Kevin Green, almost the same finish. The old outside interference backfires, so a little too much for one car. Going off the air without the explanations, what happened to Ric Flair when he simply disappeared, defied all credibility. And exactly how many referees were knocked out in the DDP Randy Savage match, which was only made worse because the Savage dropping referees it was looking way too similar to the Steve Austin Shawn Michaels match that took place seven days earlier. Okay. Uh, real quick, just to clarify, I believe it was a few weeks earlier on Nitro that they had the announcers officially explain that tapping out was now considered a submission. Yeah. And Heenan really was starting to regress bad in this era. And be more drunk on broadcasts. More often, more obviously. Um... Yeah, I mean, it It kind of makes you wonder if we had social media back then, would Heenan gotten the Jim Ross treatment from WCW? In terms of fans pointing out mistakes and other things, yeah. <laughs> to the point where, you know, Ross was you know, taken off of live television, basically. Yes. Kind of makes you wonder if Heenan would have been taken off Nitro and just been doing like Thunder. I mean, even Which when he's under, yeah, ninety-seven anyway, but still. Even when he's on the ball and his health isn't as much of an issue, it does seem these days like Jr. Though, like it seems like he is best not calling a longer broadcast, regardless. It probably would have been better to have Dusty go to Nitro and have Heenan go back to Saturday night. Hmm. Maybe. Saturday night was a show that would have been better for Heenan. You know. Yeah, because I mean it's it's not as uh, weighty. I mean you could get you get your you know get your stuff off like he was on Worldwide. You know I thought he did better on Worldwide than he did on Nitro and Thunder. Plus it's not this live A show, so he doesn't have to deal with all the bullshit either. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can get your jokes off and shit like that, you know, and be taped. Yeah. And Dusty would have fit, Dusty would have fit in better on a on a Nitro, I think. It'd been funny to have him on there, yeah. reacting it live, you know. I mean, he's on enough of the pay per views. The yeah, we know what he's like in that role. Or even Zabisco, you know. I mean, Zabisco's already on Nitro, but you know, have him be the main Nitro announcer, you know, or something like that. I don't know, but yeah, it was just sad. Watch Heenan start to go down at this point in time. Alright, so Shavon and Open the Show describing the third pick of sick if you're the great rank of Bashman broadcast to your home. Actually it was the eighth. The first bash was in nineteen eighty eight. Although they were Great Rank of Bash House shows starting with the Charlotte Baseball Stadium show on July 6, nineteen eighty five. Where Rick Flair to keep it cool out through twenty seven thousand fans and in eighty six eighty seven there were bash summer tours arenas. First bash review was in 1988 with Flair and Luger. But there were also no bash reviews for 93 and 94. 
Stemming from the boggles of shows under that name in 91, among the worst ever in 92. The name was brought back in 95. Okay. Here's what I think Tony is intending to do. Because there were matches from Bash cards broadcast on TV in 86 and 87, I think he's using that as the starting point, but forgetting that there was no Bash in 93 or 94. When he was there in the company. Yes. But are you with me there that that's at least what Tony is trying to do? No. Oh, you don't think so? <laughs> I just, you think he's just I go- think he. I, I think he's just being fed that line. But then why are better. you not going back to 85? Why wouldn't you say 14? He, I'm, I know, but he knows better. Because he was there in 93, 94 as, as the lead broadcaster, and there's no such thing as a Great American Bash Preview. He knows better. I mean, there was no Great American Bash period. There was no tour. There was nothing Great American Bash. Exactly, Bash. Yeah. yeah. So he he knows. He was there. He just fed that line, you know. I don't know. But anyway. Show up in Ultimo Dragon meaning Psychosis in 1420. The storyline for this match was it was a battle of respect. And the idea that one wanted to beat the other one by submission. Wait a second. How weird is it that Psychosis has been in two different matches on WCW-produced pay-per-view shows that were billed as the Battle of Respect? Because <laughs> what was his match at When Worlds Collide billed as, Chris? A Battle of Respect. Yes. Or the Battle for uh, Respect, that, I guess, right? Still, yeah, but that, same difference. That, I know, but that's not WCW. I mean, I think the branding of those matches was WCW. When Worlds Collide is not WCW. The pay-per-view was WCW. But yeah, I mean, it it was never talked about on WCW television. Hardly. You know what I mean, though. That's what I'm saying. Well, that's what I'm saying. You're being technical when I'm being literal. (laughs) I mean, it's not WCW. It's AAA. But it's almost surely WCW who named that match the Battle for Respect. Even though nobody on television probably knew that. They outright say it on the commentary on the pay-per-view. The people that's watching the pay-per-view. And in the ads for the whatchamacallit, too. I think they said in the ads in the control centers and the Barker Channel stuff. (laughs) But again, it's a different audience. And it was three years earlier. I'm just saying it's weird. I'm not saying there's any greater significance to it. I'm just saying it's weird. I bet if you if you ask motherfuckers that's watching this Great Bash show about that, they're like, what? Of course. I'm not <laughs> saying otherwise. Only you would be, would be thinking about this. I mean, you know how many times I watched that pay-per-view as a kid? <laughs> well, all right. Uh, match started starting you think was supposed to do a lot of American heel tricks and going away from the Lucha style. Dragon was over much bigger as a face than you'd think, with a fan swapping huge from any of his spots for taking his kicks and a move where he did basically a spinning torture rack and drop. Dragon missed Pescado onto the floor, and Sonyona met him with a series of kicks to the floor. Sakosis straight dragons throw it over the ropes and outside the ring, they dropped him off the top rope. Sakosis got near fall with the La Mahistral, the Moo Dragon, and she's won several WCF matches. Dragon went to suplex on the outside of the ring after blocking his kick spot. The Sakosa came over the top rope to the floor to the floor to clobber him. Dragon used his trademark Asai moonsault. And in the ring, he hit a tombstone final drive, which is described as being one of Sakosa's finishing moves. On him for Deer Fall. 
Lost in your calls at this point, and it turned to a great match. One of the highlights was Dragon doing a somersault into the ring, into the Frankensteiner in one spot. Skos reversed it into a cradle for near fall. Skos went for a moonsault block, but Dragon got up, met him with a dry kick to the knee. Dragon went to the top rope for his run, into a hook around a finisher, hit the move. So far tire suplex, Ono got on the apron. Dragon went after Ono, Skos hit him with a dry kick off top rope to the back. Skos went with Dragon to the Ono, into an Ono kick, but Dragon reversed it, and Skos got kicked instead. And then Dragon used the Dragon Sleeper for the tap-out finish. Three and three-quarter stars. You know, you can argue maybe that he was over enough that maybe he should have even gotten a bigger push. But you read stuff like this and you realize, like, in, the, in that they're giving him an actual program with a storyline and everything. Like, they, and probably more so Kevin Sullivan, realized what they had in Ultimo and that he was getting, like, weirdly over. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, before he got hurt, you know? You know, I, I think you know, if he doesn't get injured, his career, I mean, he probably has a, a really good run. He, he, I mean, he, I don't know if he gets up to a Ray level, but I think he does very well. Well, and... He also, I mean, even if he gets hurt, but if he doesn't go to that surgeon with the botched surgery, and then there's also, like, the pipeline for his students into WCW continuing as well. Yes. Yeah. You know? Um, granted, you end up with the Russo WCW and stuff, so that changes a lot regardless, probably. <sighs> You know, so I doubt we're getting, like, you know, Milano Collection AT in WCW. Um, yeah, probably not. But they clearly had, recognized they had something. I don't know if he, if he sticks around, if he stays in the TV title picture or what. But he had momentum, and... There, there's definitely some what ifs there, because I don't even think it was that major an elbow injury, right? Like he needed surgery, so it was major enough that he needed surgery, but it wasn't something that was supposed to keep him out for a particularly long period of time. I don't think it's just that the surgeon was grossly negligent. That was the problem. Yeah, that was the problem. And the WCW recommended him, which is why WCW. I believe was a plane was a defendant in the lawsuit. Yeah, but yeah, this is one of the, the, his best matches, and one definitely wants to go to his best matches at WCW. So they had a good feud. Yeah. All right. Uh, next we get Harlem Heat beating the Steiner brothers in twelve oh two. About what you expect from these teams. Steiner had a lot of suplexes and clotheslines. Booker did a few cool spots. In between, it was so so. Most of they got heat on Rick. Rick got the hot tag to Scott, who for the first time in his career had a Frankenstein off the top rope on Booker and had him pinned. At this point, NWO Vince at the ring and kicked Booker, and the ref had DQ'd the Steiners for outside interference, directly giving Harlem Heat a title shot row wild on August 9th. Although Nitro next night has announced a rematch between the two teams had been ordered for June 23rd Nitro, with the winner of that match getting the title shot. From a storyline standpoint, the story is the NWO was trying to make sure the Steiners didn't win the match and thus get a title shot. This finish is probably acceptable on a Nitro or Saturday Night Show, but it was really lame and flat for a pay-per-view. 
After the match, Steiner destroyed Vince with a double clothesline. He ripped Bulldog off the top rope as he was on Scott's shoulders. Vince's fame physique from his WF years is no longer there. Star and a half. Yeah, shitty finish. I mean, I get it, the story. Yes. But shitty finish. Yes. That said, good of Scott to realize that it's going to get harder as he's putting on all this size to do what's already a very difficult move in the Frankensteiner. You know, to the point that how many wrestlers have done the original Frankensteiner ever? Like, four or five? Yeah. Like, Scott Steiner, Doug Furness, Keiji Muto, Kota Ibushi, maybe one or two more. So, to he gets to keep the Frankensteiner, and he does the top rope Frankensteiner, which, in all actuality, is a much easier move for both guys to pull off. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't think that way, but yeah. Because you, I mean, from the top rope, you have the chance of a bad landing. But you don't have to really jump as much if you're the guy giving the move. The guy taking the move controls the vast majority of his bump. It's just a better choice at this point in his career. Yeah. Conan beat Hugh Morris in 1034. They tried to do a lot of bat work. The crowd didn't get into it. Morris had good facials and really agile for a guy of his size, but Dave still never seen him have a great complete match. Conan twisted his knee legit, taking a bump to the ring steps. From that point, the match fell apart. Finish saw Morris on the top rope for a moonsault, and it took Conan forever to get up, sweep his legs for him to fall off the ropes. On the mat, Conan used to kill Sunrise for a combination half crab and arm lock for the submission. As public interviews during their interview, which went nowhere on television and died live, Conan had to be helped out of the ring, which wasn't shown on television because it would have taken both from a knee injury angle and a double stretch job angle playing for later in the show. Negative half a star. <sighs> yeah. Um, not good. Not good for Conan. No. Also, Dave has Conan's real name here as... Charles Carlos Espada Ashinoff. Yeah. He just combined Conan's two alleged real names into one. <laughs> yeah. It, it, uh, I need to pull up the law, the TNA lawsuit or something with it to remind myself, like, because I think Ashinoff, Charles Ashinoff is the, let me see, let me see what they actually call him in this lawsuit. They Okay, so the lawsuit, when TNA sues him, they call him Charles, quote, Carlos Ashinoff. Luchawicki has him as Carlos Santiago Espada. Okay. <laughs> the impression I get is his legal name's Charles, everyone called him Carlos, and something's getting lost in translation at different points as far as mother's name, father's name, and maybe a step-parent's name. Especially with the Spanish naming conventions. Yeah, probably so. But legally, I believe he's always been Charles Ashinoff. Chuck. Chuck Ashinoff. <laughs> Better him than Chuck Caruso. <laughs> No, I should have said better, better, I should have said, you know, I should, yeah, I should have said Chuck Ashenoff better than Chuck Arnold. Chuck Arnold, yeah. Yeah. Glacier beat Raph in 1202. (laughs) 
Morris was handcuffed to the ring post for this match. Did a lot of kicks and palm blows early. Glacier hit a Pescado and threw Raph to the steps. At one point, Mortis pushed Raph out of the way, causing Glacier to crash to the corner. Raph had Mortis high for a powerbomb, but dropped him backwards to a hot shot. Raph used a rolling body block off the apron, which is kind of an impressive move for his size. They tried to go Raph at six foot ten or six eleven. He's more like six foot six, six seven. Even with all the trappings and throwing in some nice moves for a guy of his size, he still got the charisma of Adam Bomb, and the match really never got over. Finish saw Mortis throw a chain in the ring, but Glacier got it and hit Raph with it for the pin. As this was going on, James Vandenberg got the key to the handcuffs and the referee released Mortis. The two handcuffed glaciers in the ring robes. It took them two tries to pull that one off. And attacked him after the match, three quarters of a star. Can you imagine what Brian Clark would be like in a different time and place where his athletic prime wasn't wasted in all these weird, shitty mid-guard gimmicks? <sighs> yeah, but we see guys we've seen guys like him in recent years that does all this crazy stuff. Well, not crazy stuff, but does all this stuff that a guy his size, you know. <sighs> shouldn't be doing so to speak but they never get over that hump you know i mean and, 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 well, and the one good, time good he got over, the one time he got over was when he was doing less of that stuff and yeah had, exactly and he had his one cool finishing move and went on a win streak i mean you look at guys like warlow and brian cage and um die jack and, and, and guys like that there are do all this stuff at their size that are so impressive. And you would think, well, God, these guys are amazing. They, they do the big man spots. They can do the flying. These guys should be main eventers. But you got to have that extra oomph to you. And well, I mean, they well, don't. And, and Brian Clark didn't. I think he's more charismatic at this point than Dave's giving him credit for, but yes. Um, and, you know, the names you mentioned, like Cage... Cage I, think, Cage, I think it's two things. One, it's become more clear in time that he is not a complete worker. And the other thing is I think more people, I think as they see him around more and more different guys, they realize, oh, wait, this, this is more of a conventionally sized guy on a lot of supplements than a guy who is, like, naturally gigantic. Um, well, they like Brian Clark wasn't uh, dabbling and stuff. No, but Brian Clark's tall. You know, very tall. Yeah, but still, I mean, still, he's big. I mean, Brian Cage is not a tall man, absolutely not, but he's seen as a big guy. He is, but I, I mean, the example I always saw people make is that, like, if you look at them side by side, Ethan Page has a much bigger frame than Brian Cage does. Well, yeah, but still, he's not perceived as a big man. Right. More so, lately, he has been to, a, to degrees on and off, but yeah. Um... <sighs> And then who else did you say? Dijak. I mean, Dijak has something, and maybe they'll eventually harness it the right way. Um, and then what? The, there was another one you mentioned. I forget who. Um, Wardlow. I mean, Wardlow has the similar look. There is that to Clark, but I don't even feel like it was the moves that were getting Clark, uh, not Clark, Wardlow, or any over though. It wasn't being an agile big guy that was getting him on his way. It was the MJF storyline and the powerbomb gimmick. Yeah, but still, I mean, he was doing the swanton. He was doing this other stuff, too. Yes. So. 
I also yeah. love how we're saying this as Wardlow is theoretically a champion with a push. Well. <laughs> I mean, for all intents and purposes, the actual TV champion is Orange Cassidy. So, there's that. Uh, all right. Akira Hokuto retained the WCW women's side of being Medusa in 11:41. This match is far more significant than just the stipulation that Medusa would have to retire since she's going to become a valet. If she lost, this result truly signified the death of women's wrestling in the United States once again. Sure, women's wrestling will continue to exist on any level, but WF gave up in 95 has looked back. You know, WCW by this result has given up on it as well. While both groups tried to make Medusa the standard bearer, figuring her combination of some ability and sex appeal would be marketable. It didn't work on the federation. She didn't have breakthrough charisma. More importantly, the only way gimmicks like women or meanies can work 97, as he more than once a year sideshow at, is that they perform better than the men. On occasion, Medusa and Bullnaka on WF were better than the men. And not consistently, and eventually nobody cared. And once they did the birth of faith feud, everyone knew the division was dead. For a lot of people didn't understand the situation that put Tuncino Medusa from throwing the WF belt in the garbage can when she up on Nitro. But that was what Eric Bischoff wanted, and he got her a two year contract with WCW when her opportunities in wrestling were limited. For reasons they never figured it out, a lot of people didn't understand that Medusa was fired by WF. Well, technically, they decided not to renew her contract and drop women's wrestling altogether. Seeing his chance for a major in-your-face move, Bischoff made a deal with her, and it was clear at the beginning with the company had no idea what they were actually going to do with her after the belt in the garbage can once they got her. They tried bringing in a Japanese wrestling legend of Hokuto, gave her a storyline, but it never got over. In America, so they tried to put her against, got over even less, and couldn't have good matches with her. Bottom line was business. Cost too much to fly in opponents for Japan to feed her when they weren't going to have a great match. When they weren't going to have a great match, nobody cared about it anyway. When the promoters receiving the male audience wanted to see TNA valets rather than women wrestle. It's unfortunate due to lack of real time ability in the States. It'd be probably many years for women's wrestling resources for WCW. You know, anything presented with women before an ECW audience can be anything but a sideshow catfight. As for the match, it was the best one the two have had thus far with a good dramatic storyline and well executed moves. At one point, Medusa did a double sledge off the ropes and sold it as if her knee went out. Lee Marshall, who was the NWA television announcer in the late 80s, immediately brought in the Medusa and previously injured her dead leg against Winnie Richter. Don't know if that's true, as Dave doesn't remember, but it's really clever booking. Hokuto worked the knee with a knee breaker on La, La Tapatilla, the Ramiro Romero special upside down surfboard, bringing a near fall with a normal life suplex. Medusa came back with a high power bomb for a near fall. Hokuto used a suplex off top rope for a near fall. He went back to a great knee bar submission that went over the head of all three announcers, and Medusa showed it to the ropes. Okada missed a drop, kick off the top rope. Medusa used a German suplex on Ono and broke the bridge for the damage to knee. Okada kept working on the knee, and then climbed to the top rope with a splash, but Medusa got her knees up, which only further damaged to the knee. Medusa got a clothesline for near fall, but collapsed trying to suplex, and Okada scored a pin with her trademark Northern Lights bomb. Medusa saw the injury so well that when Gene Oakland would interview her, fans chanting, leave her alone at him, three stars. Okay, do you want to watch the clip first or talk about Dave's thoughts on the state of women's wrestling first? Let's watch the whole thing. Let's watch it. Here's a cover one, and Medusa rolls out of that. She will not give up. You ever see this much, that much fighting a woman before? Wow, it's awesome. She is one heck of a champion. Win or lose this one. You bet. <laughs> And as much as it pains me to say this, Bobby, I think you're probably right that if Medusa is successful here, she's not going to want to give Hope though a rematch for quite some time, if ever at all. She may not be able to. She may need to go some rehab with this knee here. Well, it's not over yet. Look at this. Now. 
hope so. And Sonny pulled on that leg, that hyperextended into that knee even further. And now, once again, Hokuto just fooling in on the injury. Totally dedicating her offense at this point to the injured left knee of Medusa. Well, the story here, here is, is not only the knee, but it's the perseverance by Medusa to be able to just forget about the pain at times and stay in it, not give up. Let's see, she's defenseless. Here comes the champion, Akito Hokuto, off the top rope, and here she comes. Oh. Medusa got the legs up, but I don't think... I don't know if I'd have done that. No, no. It was a desperation move. It worked, but now Medusa cannot even make a cover here. But look at the fight in this woman. How bad does she want that world championship? How bad does she want to not be put in the unemployment line? She loves wrestling. She loves what she does. If she wants to be the champion, I don't I don't doubt her. She, I, she'll do it. Out of desperation of running Larry. One, two. And that time the champ kicked out. And there you see the disappointment in Medusa. Look at the face on the challenger. I think everybody in this sold-out arena... She's really favoring that leg. Recognizes what Medusa is trying to accomplish today. Pick her up, guys. Collapse. No, it just collapsed. It just gave way. The only just way seized up. What had happened, she was too close to the ropes that time, and she tried to get her balance, and thus the knee buckled again. Oh! Hey. on her head. Good night, Medusa. One, two, three. Oh! Now what does she do? It's over. Oh, it is over. Akira Hokuto retains the Ladies Heavyweight Championship, and we have seen the end of a great career of Medusa. They're not finished. What in the world are they trying to accomplish here? The lady's career is over. And she's biting on the leg, on the shin of Medusa. And Medusa now just... This is unbelievable. Hope they'll still go to work on the left knee. I just don't know what to say. I said, I've, I've followed this woman her whole career, her whole, the pardon the uh, phrase from Larry, her whole glorious career. And to think that it ended here at the Great American Bash, I'm, I'm still processing the information, guys, because quite honestly, I, I just can't believe that Medusa is finished. One tough customer right there. One tough cookie. Okoto retains the title. Wasn't an easy fight, and it was a fight. She took it right to Medusa. And she's broken down here. You can see that she's crying. This oh, is... no. Is he going to want fries or Oh, oh stop no. it. Just stop it. <laughs> you shut up. Maybe I could be a hairdresser or, or a stewardess. Can we, can we turn his microphone off? You are looking at one of the finest athletes, men or women, to ever compete in this fine sport, regardless of what others might suggest. Well, one good news is you won't be standing in an unemployment line on that battle. <laughs> well, here's Okato. She's got her up. Medusa's in some pretty bad shape right now, that leg. For the one, two, three. Your winner and still the woman's heavyweight champion of the world. Okato. You know, it amazes me that you would think that I would have anything to do with people not liking you. As the referee. Of course you do. Every week <laughs> when they do the 1-800-COLLECT thing, you're calling him a weasel. <laughs> the weasel. Reese, Lee Marshall, thank you very much. As the referees help Medusa Women's to her her. feet, she gets a rousing yes. ovation for the fans here. She's going to need some help getting out, and uh, uh, Dusty Rhodes is going to sit back down here and wow. join us. And uh, Dusty, that was a tough one. I'm going to tell you what, you know. Wait, wait a minute. Okay, Dusty, before you talk, yeah. Gene Oakland is down there. Wow. The end of a career. Gene, go ahead. Are you there? Yeah, Tony. Uh, uh, Chuck, what, what's, what's the status of this left knee? You know, Chattase. about eight years ago, Whitney Richards Chattase. blew that same knee out 
and I've got a feeling the same thing happened here tonight. Can I get an answer? For me, not right now. You know, maybe that shouldn't even be a consideration due to the fact that her career right now is history. It's over. It's toast for this young lady. Medusa. Medusa, do you realize what's happened here tonight? This is something you put your career on the line. Do you have any idea as to the gravity of that? Well, apparently, I'm not going to get an answer from her, Tony. Well, I can't say I blame her. Really. Listen to this chant from these people here at ringside tonight. This young lady is hurt. She's hurt badly. She's being assisted. Tony, let's get back to you. Gene, thanks a lot. Thanks for your efforts there as well. And that, that's really a tough spot to be in. And uh, that's a tough one to call. Well, happy trails. You won't see her kiss her anymore. Oh, get out of here. You, you're a low light is what you are. And that's all Don't I'm going to say. Don't talk that way to Dusty. All right, fans. That Northern Lights bomb at the finish was actually safe on the slow-mo. You could see that she tucked well, but... Yeah, Devastating, yes. Um, Okay, so where do we start first? Do we start with the match and the finish and the angle, or do we start with... Yeah, 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 we'll do that first. Um, I mean... Yeah, I mean, it's good. I mean, the match was, was, was good. Hokuto, I mean, what can you say about her? It's and, her best uh, performance in WCW. Yeah, and Deuce was up for it, you know, and she went out there and worked hard too. And I thought she everything. did a, I thought she did a great job with that clothesline, as far as making it look like she was like desperate and trying to run with her knee blown out. Like she did a really yeah. good job executing while still selling. Yeah, but this this is a time in wrestling history where women's wrestling as far as serious women's wrestling in the United States was you know starting to go to the lowest it had ever been and it would be that way on a major stage for quite a few years um and it goes to how WWF started pushing their women that's the that is what where where we're at started with Sonny and it's going, starting to get the Sable in this era. And even though Sable is a re, you know does wrestle matches, you know, and they bring in people like Jacqueline and Ivory and Luna's there. I mean, they have serious women's wrestlers. It's all TNA. Well, there's also, you know, to look at it from a different point of view too. There's that story from the Luna Dark Side episode that McFoley tells. Of how, yeah, the Sable and Marrow versus Dustin and Luna match happens at WrestleMania 14, which is Sable's first match. And how even in the back, where everyone should know better, everyone's just crowding Sable and talking about what a great job she did, even though, you know, is it... A, recall Mick putting it, and as, you know, certainly with hindsight became obvious, that was all Luna carrying her. And but, but Luna's not getting the push. Luna's not, doesn't have the look. Luna's not going to be the star. Well, that's, that's part of my point, though. That, like, behind the scenes, they're not even giving any recognition to the women who are helping carry the more non-wrestler women. 
you know, they're looking at them as afterthoughts. They're not even looking at them as well, the they're, 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 them over. They're there. You know, yeah. they're there. Um, they're, they're doing their job, you know, of making the woman that's being pushed look good. Yeah. And I think Luna and Jackie still do not get enough credit for how good they made Sable look. Here's the thing, you know. You you ask a lot of fans, what do you remember about Jackie? What do you think they're going to say? Uh, the multiple times she fell out of her top. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, in WCW, I, I think part of the problem, unfortunately, is that, you know, Hokuto... Hokuto. Hokuto was Hokuto! Kensuke <laughs> Sasaki. That's her husband, yes. <laughs> I, um, I, I did appreciate, by the way, that Lee Marshall actually pronounced it correctly. Akira Hokuto, yes. Yeah, well, he's a women's wrestling expert. Um, well, it's his job. Yes. This is her best WCW performance, but she also looked like she was not giving it her all during that run. This is like her WWE Nakamura run. You know? Like, she's still good. And if she wants to, she can still perform at the same level, but she isn't. Um, Okuto. Does this get over better with someone who's doing more of like an impressive version of the Japanese women's style at the time? No. (laughs) You don't think so, whether it's a Kong on one end or a Toyota on the other? No? Okay. No. Just the wrong time, and WCW wasn't behind it, and you would have to educate the fans. And WWF, and WWE, when when, by the time they did this, the fans were educated because of NXT. But you can also say too that yeah, it was just the one feud, but the Jumping Bomb Angels got over. Different era, because you had. You had serious women's wrestling on shows. True. Yeah, yes. I know there was you know, the bullshit going on, but then you know you just have Moolah and Richter as feud. When I mean, you just have Winnie Richter as champion, right? It's being taken seriously, even if it's not good wrestling. Yes. Yeah, that's a, that's is, a fair way to put it. It's, yeah. it's, it's legitimate. Yeah, and here they had not had really a proper women's division ever. And it was it's such WCW an afterthought when they did it. Yeah, WCW hadn't really done anything with women since ninety ninety one. And even then, that was the original Medusa thing for a few weeks, and previously the LPWA stuff. Yeah. And before uh, Lunch or Blaze, WF hadn't, hadn't done women since eighty nine. Basically, four years. Yeah. So. And even when she's around, she's only. In her one feud at a time. And there's no division around her. No, exactly. I mean, honestly, in terms of having a division, WCW in 96-97 is actually better than WWF during the Alundra Blaze run. Because at least they have the Gaia wrestlers and Malia Hosaka and maybe one or two others working the B-shows. They have more of a division. Yes. Yeah. It's just, it's... He's not really wrong in anything he says here. But it, it, I mean, it took re-education to the fans, starting with NXT, 
and saying these women are more than just bikini contests. And I think the AJ Lee character helped with that too. On the main roster, yes. She's wanting to have serious matches and as much as it doesn't age well and her whole pipe bombshell promo and all that, you probably did need a character going out there and shitting on the whole bikini model thing, etc. Well, that that had to happen. Yeah, it did have to happen. But it elevated them in the process because the Bellas became better workers after all that. Yeah. You know, and Caitlin. Yeah. Yeah. Others did too. Yeah, I mean, there was stuff even in that era where things are bad. Like, go back and look at how people responded, like, to the AJ Caitlin feud at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was a very well-regarded feud, both for the storyline stuff and the in-ring at the time online. Yeah. Like, there was so stuff there, but I, th- I think she deserves credit in that chain, though. Yeah. So, it just, it, it, it re-education. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think one of the darkest things in the on-screen side, obviously, is that Trish Stratus had, and, you know, her feuds had them on the way there in WWE, yes. and, then, and then as and soon then as she went, retired, and, they just got rid of it. Yeah. Well. They just reverted. I mean, yeah. Well, you know, what's the correlation? Who's the, who's got, who gets more power in that era? John Laurinaitis. Yeah. So, hi. Chris Benoit beat me in 1459. It was a death match. Oh, great. Nancy Sullivan is on our sister with Benoit. Although no knowledge was made of it, and no storyline reason given. As best we could tell, it's just another example of Kevin Sullivan losing power. Uh. There, there has been talk of Nancy resurfacing in someone else's corner, just disappearing from the scene. Sullivan is supposed to return to booking in August, theoretically after retiring from the ring at the next pay-per-view show. Although that isn't as definite as people are saying. If he does, Powers Booker likely won't be what it was. We'll have more on Nancy later in the show. Uh, later in the segment. This match will have a basic storyline that Benoit kept going back to the crossface and mean kept using his power to break it or get to the ropes until he finally warmed down and made him tap with it. In that way, the match had a good storyline and obviously Benoit's one of the five best performers in the country. The negatives are Ming is very limited, and the fans at home don't respect Ming for his legit toughness the way those in the business do, so never register the people who see him as a large, uncharismatic undercar guy who's been around forever and never done anything. Negative to the rules of this match is that they don't do pins, but the matches could end with a 10-count knockout. So instead of exciting their faults with excitement, whenever a hot move was hit, they did 10 counts that the crowd didn't understand and kept killing the momentum. Ben wanted a great to pay at the bell, made had a diamond headbutt, and putting the crossface on being that he powered out. Second crossface saw a rope break. Ming used a splash off the top, but Benoit got up at nine. Benoit got two eight counts on Ming with German suplexes. Ming got tongue a death grip on but Benoit escaped by falling outside the ring to the floor. All the women bringing from the ten counts made the match get boring as it went so long. Benoit got the crossface twice more with rope breaks until finally get it again. And Ming not submitting and being inches from the ropes before he finally tapped out. And that's didn't do a good job of getting the drama over as Ming being so close to the roast just so far and nor get the tap out of him. Actually, they didn't see into the replay. Both men went on a stretch after the match to sell the, sell the brutality, which is kind of silly because neither appeared to take any more than usual beating two and a quarter stars. Yeah, this is a weird one. Um, 
the finish was weird. I mean, and that they're doing the doing double stretcher job uh, on this, which we saw Benoit in more physical matches not do a stretcher job. Um, it just they're trying to. This is about education, like we're trying to talk about with the women's wrestling. They're trying to educate fans on this, but this wasn't the way. And it wasn't the guys to do this with. Um, I mean, not to, against each other. Maybe they want to get somebody else would have worked better. Today's point, though, first about Ming. Um, Ming's a guy who always was around getting some type of t- you know getting TV time and everything. And the the smart fans, you know. Knew Ming and was behind Ming, you know, and all his incarnations. But that's right. The, the the people that are not the smarter fans couldn't give a shit about him. They have not done much to ever get across his reputation. No. But the thing, but the thing is, though. But here's the thing, though. I don't know if I would have mattered. Um, because that's a thing where toughness, reputation, blah blah blah, that gets over with the boys. You got to have charisma. You got to have that extra, like I mentioned a while ago, to take it to the next level. And Ming didn't have that as a main event act. Now, if he had like a manager that was, you know, a main event type manager, like he had WWF when he he was with the the family and King Haku. Yeah. I mean, it's the best run. Because Heenan's doing all the talking, got the, the gimmick and everything. It's just without that, without that, that, that bells and whistles. I mean, yeah, he's a tough motherfucker, and the real, you know, the hardcore fans know that, but it's not going to get over to the masses. It's also why the Islanders is one of his best runs. Well, the heel run because Tama was so charismatic, and he could play off of that. Well, that's you know, that, but I mean, as King Haku, I mean, that is his most famous run. Yeah. And it's because of the Heenan family, the crown, the gimmick, all that stuff. Yeah. And, and it's, it's just no slight to him because, I mean, he's a great performer, but it just wasn't going to get what Dave was talking about of being that guy who made a difference to a certain. And this, and let's be honest as well this is 97 wcw has now grown into a new audience a bigger audience that don't really care about him and a lot of other guys mm-hmm. so but any other thoughts on the match and the way everything was laid out here i think you covered it okay kevin green and steve mongo and michael in 921 with the exception of people like Owen Hart, Hiroshi Hase, and Junakiyama, all of whom had put in far more time training for pro wrestling, they doesn't know if he's ever seen such a natural from the f- third match as Kevin Green. Due to his age and the fact he's probably never going to be a full-time wrestler, he'll surely never be the wrestler aforementioned three turned out to be, but he's amazing given he's only had a few weeks total of training time and it's only his third pro match. And Mongo's hardly the great worker that Rick Flair Anderson were to carry him. At this spot where Mongo started yelling at Green's mother, who then clocked it with her purse. Speaking of Green, has anyone ever found his wife? 
Remember, she disappeared last July at the bash. Nobody's ever seen her since. Uh, Dave thought she fell off the roof of the giant or something. <laughs> fell off the roof. Oh, right, because she totally disappears to the back when Deborah does and never comes back out. Exactly, yeah. Totally disappeared, man. She didn't when Jack came out. Well, we, we know where she was at because she sang National Anthem at, uh, at, at some of the games they oh. played after that. So. Authorities um, imagine when Jeff Jarrett came out and hit Kevin Green with a briefcase, but Green pulled Mongo to the path of the briefcase, and Mongo got nailed and pinned. After the match, Deborah was yelling at Jarrett for screwing up. They announced the question why, after Jarrett screwed up, that he walked away without having Mongo two stars. Yeah, I think Kevin Green has, has, become, has become forgotten. Yes. This wrestling run. I mean, as much as we talk about. Bad Bunny and and uh, Logan Paul. I mean, Kevin Green was that guy 25 years ago. And I doubt Kevin Green was getting all these rehearsals and personal Shawn Michaels sessions. And he wasn't. No, yeah. he wasn't. That's the difference. And he's a guy that's doing this at the time when he's still playing football. And this is June. So he's about to go to training camp. He's got yeah. mini camps going on. Yes. You know? I mean, so that's another thing too. And he was, he, and Ric Flair has said this before. I mean, Ric Flair, I tell you, if Kevin Green put forth the full time and effort, you know, he could have been one of the best wrestlers in the business. He had an aptitude that very few people did. That was an outsider. He had charisma. He had the look. He could work. The problem was, at this point in time, he'd been in the NFL for 13 seasons. Yeah. And he, and he is, uh, he's about to be 35 years old. So, but I will say this I am surprised that once Kevin retired from football, he didn't try to become more of a wrestler. I am going to say, I will say that. Hmm. I mean, I I can see it both ways, I guess. But by that time, he was, you know, almost forty. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, I mean, just just a phenom at, at what he did. I mean, what he has ahead of the be- other best celebrity performances in this era is he got it the way that Logan Paul and Bad Bunny do now. He got it. It, it you know, LT was led to a very good match. But you could tell it was just it was a paycheck for him and he didn't necessarily get what he was doing. LT was just a great athlete that adapted well enough to have one match. And was also told to feel free to just throw hard forearms at Bam Bam Bigelow and not have to worry about pulling his shots that much too. Yeah. You know, which is not something that always happened in this kind of situation. But Kevin Green just gets it. Yeah. You know, some people do, some don't. I mean, I give this example to people sometimes. Obviously, Satnam Singh needs some time and some seasoning. But you can tell he gets it. You know what I mean? 
It's it's a different situation because he's so fucking big. No, I know, but I'm saying compared to other... It it limits him. But even compared to other green giant types, you can tell he gets it in a way that Elegante, early giant Silva, etc. did not. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean... I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know what what the future could have held for him, but I know what we saw. He he definitely could have been something. Yes. Mongo, on the other hand, <laughs> Mongo been wrestling uh, a year by this point in time. Yeah. Yeah. But he did but give Mongo us don't. Was older. Yeah, and he did give us don't there, stand there drinking a cup of coffee while a man's talking to you. I mean, Mongo at this time was 40. So, different. And Mongo was kind of a different type of player than Kevin Green was. So, yeah. All right, next, WWE World Tag Title Match. The Outsiders. Scott on Kevin Nash. The Tony Tiles being Rick Flair and Ronnie Piper in 10.02. Flair opened with a frenzied series of, ch- cheers of, frenzied series of chops. On Scott Hall until he did his foot into the turnbuckle, landed on the apron, and ran into Kevin Nash's foot. After six, Trip Flair from the outside, he took punishment for a few minutes. Match had great heat, and everyone seemed to be on the same page at the problems from a week earlier. Of course, Piper's so washed up, even when he's on the page, he isn't exactly a speed reader anymore. Flair had Nash a low blow and hot tag Piper. Piper got home to sleeper, but the ref occupied with Flair. Scott Hall crotched Piper on the top rope. Six kicked Piper and went after Flair. Flair chased six to the back, was never heard from again. They speculated when he's back telling Wade about the contract. They speculated Flair was jumped by the NWO when he went backstage, but it was ridiculous that they went off the air without an explanation. This up Piper against both men in a situation like that is an easy heat together, and this was no different. Finally, Piper was worn down after a clothesline to the back from Hall and big foot from Nash. Hall used the outsider edge or NWO drop or Razor's edge or Splash Mount or whatever else you want to call on him for the pin. The original plan was for Flair and Piper to turn on each other to finish, but that was changed because company felt too many people knew about it. In other words, they're back to that mentality. They'd rather surprise 1% of the people than do angles they believe when they formulate them are the best thing for the other 99% when it comes to business. Luckily, WCW is in a hot position where they can survive that kind of defeatist mentality and that they allow outside forces to change their storylines for them. They'll probably eventually do the angle anyway just because Flair and Piper don't have a program at this point unless it's with each other, two and a quarter stars. The stupidest goddamn thing. That's one of the stupidest goddamn things in wrestling history. It's this mentality that everyone knows is coming, so we gotta swerve them. It's wrestling. You're supposed to make it obvious that it's coming. <laughs> it's so fucking stupid. I, I, I'm glad we've mostly gotten away from that. I'm glad that I think particularly in AEW, I mean, and more so now in the Triple H and WWE than before, there seems to be an awareness that you can have things be predictable and that's okay. And I won't say who. There was a wrestler who was in a storyline where everyone kind of called what would happen. And I asked them, like, what do you think? How do you feel about people calling this? And the response was, great. Shows that we were telling a logical story. You're not just swerving them to swerve them. Well, you know who that, I mean, that mentality comes from is Russo. Mm hmm. 
I bet this is pre-Rousseau. I mean, and, and there have been other examples know, but that, in but the, WCW. But the, yeah, but WCW was doing it before, but WWF was doing it because of Vince Russo. Yeah, it became more prevalent because of Russo, but WCW did it going back as far as Bash 89 with not turning into Gilbert. Well, yeah, that's a whole lot of deal there. But that, I think, has its own little special uh, asterisk by it, the, because it's Ric Flair. Now, the, the head booker killing Eddie Gilbert's angle. Well, and also Eddie gets taken off the booking committee. Right yeah, they're sad too. Yeah. So. But the reason that was given and reported everywhere at the time was that it had become too predictable. Yeah. Which, how how many weeks of build did they even do for that angle on TV? It wasn't a lot, right? Well, they here's the thing. They they get away from it, and they really know uh, not a whole lot of – there wasn't really a whole lot of build. It was, it was just that Eddie was suddenly back with Sting. Yeah, and it just it, it had that subtle look to it where those of us that know watch. Okay, we we know what to do. But then they go back to it later on in the year with Pillman, and that's with Flair as the Booker, and they drop it immediately. That's so everybody, yeah. All right, um, and but yeah, Flair. I mean, they do the Flair and Piper deal eventually, but it takes a minute. They don't really feud until, like, a year later. Their big singles matches a year later yeah. in Cash. Yeah. Yeah. I, Macho Man Randy Savage, beat DDP down on page when a wild falls kind of anywhere, lights out match at 1656. A great smartly worked brawl. One thing watching this show is that when it comes to timing, when it's the right point to do a move, Page and Ultimate Dragon are almost perfect. Well, we know why Paige is. <laughs> that thing's laid out ahead of time. Uh, Paige came through the crowd as everyone was distracted by Kimberly. He had his ribs to take for the nitro angle and did a Piscato, but sold his own ribs. Later, Savage hit behind Elizabeth. Paige slipped through Elizabeth's eye. Two weather brawl through the crowd, which included Paige wearing out Savage with a crutch. They got back in the ring and Savage threw some leftover white powder from the 80s into Paige's face. <laughs> I mean, I, I, Dave's not talking about cocaine, but it is funny. Uh, and broke what appeared to be a plate over Paige's head because powder in the 90s was definitely not a finish you saw a whole lot of. Um, Savage and did the bandages on Paige's ribs and then decked and piled Mickey J. Mark Curtis came out. He was thrown out of the ring. Savage threw Paige over the top rope, went up to Kimberly before he could hit her. The Apache ran out and got in his way. They ended up brought to the band to a VIP picnic type area. Paige broke a trail over Savage's head, hit him with a, sl- a slower pot, a slower pot, <laughs> slammed him through a picnic table, and finally poured charcoal from a barbecue grill all over him. Back on the ring, Paige crossed Savage on the post and gave him a face first pile driver similar to a pedigree. Savage made a comeback with him, Paige to the steps. He undid the mats on the floor and went for a pile driver, but Nate Patrick stopped him. Savage punched him. The two traded the chair shot, low blow for Paige, while he hit the diving cutter with a referee to count. Scott Hall ran out and stomped on Nip Patrick. Page began fighting off Hall until Savage grabbed the tag title belt and clocked Page moving from behind. Hall dropped him with the edge. Savage climbed to the top throw, hit the elbow, and Hall dropped Patrick over the count of the fall. The show immediately went off the air after the pinfall as it appeared the match went long as they were working on borrowed time. Three and three quarter stars. Let's watch the end. I want to I see how, cl- how close they came here to the uh, end of the deal. Because this was not the first time, and not the last. 
Okay, let's see. The version that's on the network runs just under two hours, 50 minutes. I mean, just get like that the last minute or so, whatever. Yeah. So I'm curious to see how, how it went to the credits. As you guys brought up, there's no one to count him out. Much less, there's no cover yet. Screen. I mean, look at that ring. Oh, I think I went back further than I meant to. But we'll take a screen too. I yeah, I know. All right, so let me skip ahead a little bit, I guess, because I thought I went to like 248, but I went to 246. All right, there we go. Have a great summer, and thanks for being with us. For the actually go back a little bit, because it seems like the pin just happened. They're already starting to sign off. So let's go to uh, there. Let's go there. Yeah. Of this match, yeah, taking control of this pay-per-view, if they can win this one. Savage kicks the referee. I don't see how Nick Patrick's going to count. Yeah, it's above and beyond the call of duty for Nick Patrick. Oh, for all referees, the big elbow, and there's no referee to count. And now, well, look at this now. Scott Hall moving him over that direction. One. Wow. Two. Oh, man. Whoa. Fans are here out of time for all of us. Have a great summer. And thanks for being with us for the great American Bash. And don't forget Nitro tomorrow night. Wow. The NWO again has shown its domination. Woo. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty quick. It doesn't seem like there's any big cuts, though, on the network. So are they wanting to have a hard out of 250? You think? They had enough time to get their uh, credits in, too. Wait, I thought I muted that. Yeah, we got to get the credits in there, Bix. You know, as always, WCW Fairview's got to have these names that we see all the time. When did... Woody, stage manager. Yeah. Uh, we got all your camera people. Yeah, we don't have any... Oh, Moses Williams. There's a recognizable name. Yes. Dillinger, Alan Sharp, Lynn Brent. Yeah. Here we go. Wrestling Operations. Janie Engel, Paul W. Taylor, Jody Hamilton. Paul W. Taylor of the Taylor Gang. Yes. (laughs) That's right. Leader of the Taylor Gang. Production Facilities, the Nashville Network. Interesting. Yeah. Gary Jester. Yeah. Mike Weber. In marketing and promotion along with Yvonne Fernandez. Yes. We have our normal deals here. Thanking on the union. So we trying to keep Mitchell Supervised Producers. Nate Lambros, CPO Administration. David Crockett, VP Production. Yes. And, of course, executive producer Craig Leathers. Executive Vice President Eric Bischoff. I'm back next month for WCW Bash at the Beach. Yep, so there it is. Yeah, quick way to end the show. We're out of time. They must have been going for a hard out of 10 to the top of the hour. They must have wanted that extra room in there for whatever reason. But uh, regarding the match itself, I mean, that was a hell of a match. They always work well together. The, the match that, I mean, it, this is what put Paige on the map. Yes. 
Well, laying out the NWO at the beginning of the year and then this. Yeah, that's what I mean. That was the beginning, but then this this match in this series, you know. Yes. Um, it's, the it's the beginning of the ribs. Oh, the tape ribs. Yes. There's also one yeah. moment I remember uh, that comes up in the torch review because I was getting the torch at the time. But there's a moment where Dusty says something about Liz carrying out or hitting someone with a waitress tray. But it's before she brings out the waitress tray to use as a foreign object. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess we know who was agenting that match. <laughs> All right, so that's the Grimmick and Bash. All right, Torch has a thing here. Some of the biggest pops were for Flair, the Outsiders, and Paige. After showing off the air, Hog on the house mic called uh, the, the Quad Cities in the Bill Country. Kevin Green's parents to the Grimming Bash wore Ma and Pa Green Carolina Panthers jerseys. Mongo, though, was over as a baby face. Well, it is the Quad Cities. A lot of bear fans in that crowd. So there is that. Yes. Speaking of bears. Nitro in Chicago. Drew 16,500. 13.953 paying 2.18.285 on June 16th in United Center, Chicago, which a few hundred side of the sellout crowd they have for Nitro in the same building in January. I can't believe you did that transition, and we're not talking about like a Dale Veazey or whatever. Well, Chicago Bears, and we're yeah. in Chicago. Well, you didn't say speaking of Chicago Bears, though. You said speaking of Bears. Well, yeah, but I thought you were going for a joke or something. You weren't, though. Yeah, because of the Chicago Bears. Yeah. Well, I gave was one of the largest in the history of the company, but fell short of last week's record. While well, the $112,000 in merchandise, the third biggest in company history, trailing only the recent night shows in Philadelphia and Boston. The crowd was super hot for much of the show, which gave the show a great feel. And a lot of the wrestling was good as well. The show on the NWO coming to the building, and Hulk Hogan and Dennis Rodman did an interview, challenging Luger and John for later in the show. As it turned out, both WCW and WFTs in their opening segments of the main event match, where WFTs Ken Sharma and Steve Olson and another company ever delivered. Rodman was cool at speed, as both times he referred to Lex Luger as Lex Luthor, the heel character of the Superman comic books. All right, we got to watch this. <laughs> as you get the network back going again here. The network is acting weird. This happened once, like a month ago or two ago, where it just, it just stalls. And doesn't finish loading the page, and I don't know what to make of that. Um, should, do you want me to just... Because I tried... I mean, I can try loading another tab and see, but I don't think it's... Okay, there we go. That hey. one loaded. That. Who knows? Okay, they both loaded. That's why. <laughs> so we're just starting from the beginning here? Yeah, I mean, we just... I, I said we just need where Hogan and Rahman get in the ring while they're talking. Welcome fans to WCW Monday Nitro, and you are looking live as the limousine is pulled up here to the United Center, the home of the world champion Chicago Bulls. Tonight is the home of professional wrestling's number one program, Nitro Live. And oh my goodness, that is an NWO limousine. Tony Schiavone, Larry Zabisco, Mike Tanay. Okay, let's skip ahead then. Or, or when are we going to see Rodman? Or is he there? He's there. He's behind. 
Uh, and they're smoking cigars. Well, it's Ron, man. Of course they are. And this is fairly early in the uh, new tag belts, right? And Raman's wearing the NWO Bite Me shirt. Oh, and Six is still oh, a cruiserweight not... champion for another week or two. Yeah, why didn't he have a title defense at the pay-per-view? Well, none, none of the time, Biggs. Clearly, they ran out of time with this. Raman's got the belt. All right. All right. All right. Here we go. Let's go see Okay. I'll skip ahead slightly. Don't do it too much. I'm not. It's... I, I can never figure out if that's the issue. Guys, yeah. we'll just go ahead and start playing it. Well, they're getting in the ring now, so yeah. You see this capacity crowd on hand, standing as the world heavyweight champion Hollywood Hulk Hogan and the worm Dennis Rodman are in. And Eric Bischoff has the microphone. Nothing! Okay, to give to give some uh, context, what's going on here? The Bulls had just won the NBA Finals. Uh, they just won the last game on June thirteenth. That was Game Six. Nitro is the sixteenth. So yeah, the Chicago. I mean, what perfect timing to have a Nitro in Chicago. Now, when they won, was it a home game or what? It was in Chicago. <laughs> yeah, it was United Center. Okay. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. It's perfect timing. And now we're counting down to July 13th. Passion to Beach, the Giant and Luger want a piece of this. <laughs> you know, all my NWOites in Chi-Town. They feel the same way about the Giant and Luger as they do about Utah, brah. And you know, when you got Rod the Bod, the dirty dog Dennis Rodman, as your tag team partner, you are guaranteed victory. Four times world champion, six times rebounding champion. We called my mother a few minutes ago and told her we already beat him up, that we already won. Because it's in the house, brah. The Hogan lying to his mother. You know, the outsiders got me on my toes. They told me to change with the times. They brought me up to speed. I love those guys. And my man, the six-pack, he can do it all night long. 
but they did it for us last night. And tonight, me and Rodman decided that we're gonna flush that no good stinky giant out in Flexi Lexi. And if they got the guts to come out here, I'm gonna let Rodman beat both of them up by himself right here tonight. How about that? I can't, that's a stupid you see that? statement. How about that? And you know what? The whole world knows that Dennis Rodman is a man of few words, don't we? But I know, I Rod, you got something you want to say about Luger and the Giant. Are we ready to rock tonight? I can't hear you. Are we ready to rock? Yeah. Man, man, Hollywood. Rock the bot here. You know, we got Lex Luthor. We got the giant in the back back there, you know? You know, the giant may be bigger than me. He may be bigger than me, but you know what they say, the old cliche, the bigger they are. That's right, baby. So giant Lex Luthor, where you at? Lex Luthor. Hey, the way I feel, Rod, bring him out here at any time during Nitro, and I'll watch your back. And I want you to body slam that stinky giant for me. Everybody knows, Bischoff, that I can destroy Luger now. Like that. Like that. So Luger Giant, they're ready for you. Come and get a little piece of this. Hit the music. So the NWO, led by Eric Bischoff, the world champion, Hollywood Hulk Hogan, and the man they're calling Hot Rod Rod DeBond. Rodman out here not wanting to wait really until July 13th. They said let's flesh him out. Let's bring him out right now as we kick off two hours of WCW Monday Nitro, guys. You know, looking at Rodman makes me sorry. I was born in Chicago. Well, let's see Dennis Rodman in action. We see him against some of the biggest stars in sports. Let's see him against the biggest athlete in all of professional the sports. This guy's a nothing. Giant. He's the man of a thousand fouls. That's it. But he's a type of guy, Larry, we've said this all along, that likes to hit you from behind, sneak attack, and that's all what they're about. Look, at, I'm not arguing he fits right into the new world order because that's what they are, a bunch of cowards, a bunch of backstabbers, and Rodman's no different than any of them. A 1997 in-ring Hogan promo that doesn't overstay its welcome? Is this a present? Am I supposed to be celebrating <laughs> something? <laughs> it's to the point. And, uh, yeah, I mean, Rodman got his chance to talk. Lex to me, that, uh, that's a sign that they did not want Rodman out there on live TV for 20 minutes. And there's that, too. Because who knows what he would have said. But uh, uh, The Lex Luthor thing doesn't come off that badly because he's a heel. Well, I mean, it's Dennis Rodman. <laughs> you know, it's Dennis Rodman. But, uh, they could, I mean, like I said before, they could not have had better luck in this. And the way the timing worked out. And then, and then the next year, they have even better luck because they have him in alone on opposite teams at the pay per view right after they're against each other in the finals. I know, it's insane. And they may or may not have agreed to do a work scuffle with each other to hype it during a game. Yes. <laughs> yes. 
And either way, they got into a scuffle during a game that helped type the pay-per-view. Yes. So, yeah. Glacier beat Mortis with the chronic kick at 216, and afterwards Raph joined up in beating Glacier. Ernest Cat Miller made the save. Mortis has a lot of potential as a wrestler, but this angle is getting lame and stale very quickly. Eh. So I guess I can say that. Eh. Yeah. All right, next Medusa. Get her in review. Uh, let's go to that, shall we? As she addresses what happened the previous night. CW Monday Nitro here in Chicago and all across America last night at the Great American Bash. This young lady whose career I have followed so very closely, her career has come to an end. Eugene. Looks like she's about to uh, shoot her new stand-up concert film, Delirious. (laughs) Yes, she is in a red leather suit there. Yes. Can you imagine Medusa doing gay honeymooners? (laughs) it makes you want I mean it does make you kind of wonder how that show would be treated today delirious more than raw raw would never happen today um delirious Delirious has its moments (laughs) delirious has its moments but delirious you could get away with more of today but the way everybody is now, there would definitely be a lot of people that would not be uh, not not be too happy with eighties comedy there. No, <laughs> but you could. There are ways you could tweak, for example, the gay honeymooners bit, and if you focus it more on the idea of what if. Uh, <laughs> Why am I forgetting the characters? More than, just, more, more, than, more than just that. There was other stuff in there too that just would not would not fly today. Let's put it that way. Is it delirious or raw that has the I can't turn around while I'm on stage because I'm worried that gay guys will check out my butt thing? It's delirious, I think. Yeah. yeah. That's that's the that's probably the worst part. Uh um but yeah. But anyway. What I was going to say right, is you could turn gay honeymooners into something that would work today by focusing on the idea of them being a couple. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like it's just the, it's not like it's just the shock comedy of the, of, you know, the two of them having sex. But anyway. And if you wanted yeah. a title shot, you put your career on the line. You lost last night in Moline. Medusa has all of this sunk in yet. I came out here Cat calls from the guys to say something that last guys? night was the end of my wrestling career. I am a I am a woman of my word. And it was career versus title last night and I ended my career. And Gene, I can't believe that I'm out here tonight. Take, take it, take it easy. This is something that's going to take to some say, time. To say, no, 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 to say that. I just want to say thanks that it's to every one of you out there that has made Medusa who she is today. And. 
I just want to say thanks for all the support from all my fans, my family, <laughs> and my friends. And I love what I do. And in my heart, I'll always be a wrestler. In Jean. Saying her goodbyes tonight here in Chicago. I just can't believe I'm in front of everybody saying that it's the end of my career. And I just wanted to say goodbye. And I love you all, man. man. Thank you, Medusa. What a touching moment here in Chicago. Tony, back to you. Well, that's actually very sad. And, you know, as she really, if you go back last night, Mike, we, we were all there. You go back last night, she really poured her heart and soul in her career and exemplified that in the match, in the effort that she gave last night against Okoto. But the knee gave out when she attempted a double axe hand over the top, gave out. Okoto realizing it was a career or it was a knee that uh, jeopardized her career uh, earlier. And uh, she went right for that, nothing she could do. And you certainly can't blame Hokuto for taking advantage of that injury. All those years of dedication for Medusa, we have to say down the drain. All right. Last week on this program, Dean Malenko uh -huh. lost the U.S. Heavy it's weird because she's clearly genuinely emotional, but she's also seemingly trying to fake cry, and that's a weird combination. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is that. Like, it comes off much better when she's it's, not trying to get tears out. That's the thing. It's like, the emotion is clearly yeah. there and genuine, but because she's not tearing up and it seems like she's trying to, it comes off faker than it should. Yeah. Which is a shame. And also, by the way, can you just imagine, too, so, trying to figure out the best way to talk about this. So, in her book... She says she's, I forget how she phrased it, she's pretty sure the reason she got basically fired by WWF is that she had been having an affair with a top guy who was married, and once it was ending, he basically went to the office and got her fired. And she yeah. makes it clear that it's someone who had a powerful friend group around him and also was in WCW not long after she was. Well, so, we all we we basically speculate it's Kevin Nash. I know. I'm giving. I'm laying the groundwork to explain why everyone thinks it's Kevin Nash. Can you imagine being in her position? You get this lifeline from WCW. They're saying they're going to do a women's division. All this, and then Nash shows up with this big contract as a top guy with power. Yeah. Not a great time on her end. Not her fault. Any of it? <laughs> no. Anyway, Dean Malenko beat Chavo Guerrero Jr. with a crow belief in 338. Eddie Guerrero watched the match out like a heel, never had his nephew. Eddie was doing heel interviews backstage. We were both surprised to throw this. How good a job he did in his new role. Well, it shouldn't have been. He was a great heel in the past. Well, yes. But he is a much better heel character here than he was in Gringo Slocos. Because... It's a different character. It's a different yeah. character. He's doing... He's because Art Barr was doing certain stuff, playing a certain role in the tag team. So Eddie wasn't doing that stuff. Here he's like a combination of the two. He's doing all the Eddie heel stuff, but he's also doing all the Art Barr heel stuff. Yeah. Super Kalo pinned the park and 344 angle stitched off top road, rolled into a cradle. Aside from one great toe pay by Kalo, the match wasn't that good. After the match, get ready to get this set up. After the match, Parker literally destroyed Kolo with a sickening shot with a plastic chair. 
Kalola Jimmy was out backstage for a long time and took it to the hospital where he needed stitches on both his forehead and his nose and may have suffered a concussion. Where we got was that Parker actually felt worse because of the guilt. Well, well it's let's good watch, to see let's watch that this. his personality wasn't always what it is. Let's watch that, shall we? <laughs> and by the way, boy, do you understand the need for seat fillers when you see what this looks like here, where I have it paused. Because here we have, like, sold out gate record. Well, I mean, not gate record here, but still, huge crowd, big gate. And because of whatever timing, there were a bunch of people right on hard cam that are not in their seats, and it makes things look worse than shit. Well, solution match to the problem going to the bathroom. Okay. Super Kala with the win. See, you, you never know. I would have bet the polka on the polka. Be a big win for him, Mike. Certainly is. A landmark victory for Colo, but LaParka is not going to settle for that. Look at this attack. The knee between the, the shoulder blades and now attack on the floor, and he's going under the ring. He's looking for something. He's got well, a chair. He found a chair. Oh! Oh! oh. <laughs> Did he break a it? hard plastic chair that yes. over the head oh. of Colo? And he basically is out here, but that is not stopping LaParka. I mean, that's what was. It's a it's an elementary school chair. Yes. Yes. Oh, right. it's a hard that's hard plastic. And, let's, 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 let's and it has the metal shot. legs. Yeah. Uh. Right, here we go. All right. Unpause. I want to hear the impact. He got a chair. He found a chair. Oh, oh my God! Fontello's <laughs> knocking. A hard plastic chair that broke over the head of Colo, and he basically is out here, but that is not stopping LaParka. Colo's out. He's going to try it again. All right, let's go now to our Valvoline replay. Valvoline, of course, used by America's top mechanics. As, as Mark Curtis stands between the combatants, here it is again, Larry. Well, look at that. LaParka was using his weight and size. Had the advantage, Callow using his speed, caught up in points. Maybe he winded the man, I don't know. But after the match, Callow stuck around too long, and LaParka oh. said, hey, man, take a oh. siesta. People who know use Babylon, the winner, Super Callow, here live on WCW Monday Nitro. In this first hour now, let's go back to Mean Gene. Nice. Tony, wow. I thank you very much. It is live, and it's getting livelier. And this is basically the wow. beginning of the chairman, too, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, he killed him. <laughs> oh, oh, that was not good. Yeah. Harlem Heat beat the amazing French Canadians in 337. Booker T pinned Shock after the, the Big Apple high sidekick. J.J. Dillon did an interview saying that due to what happened the previous night, the Steiners are home. You have a rematch to determine who gets attacked on a shot at the August pay-per-view on the June 23rd night show from Macon, Georgia. A show that I did not attend. Oh. Uh, Harlem Heat no, complained. Vincent came out and said he had done them a favor the previous night, and both Heat members destroyed Vincent. Six, because the Cruiserweight time being Ray Mysterio Jr., 447, very good TV match. Yeah, less than five minutes. Raiden also flipped off and close to the floor. He had six beaten with a hook on Ronald's top when Nash and Hall went to interfere. Ray thwarted their attempts to, to a huge pot when he spin kicked Nash, who sold the move. But was caught with a kick by six and the bus killer submission. After the match, Ray got powerbombed by Nash, which led to Hall and Nash's Savage interview. And Paige in the crowd challenged to Hall and Savage to a tag match with a mystery partner and looked to the sky and indicated his partner would be Sting. 
Well, we'll see. Next. Ultimate Dragon from Chris Jericho in 439 with a Tiger Suplex. Pretty good, although these two have had numerous better matches. Jericho seemed nervous and rushing things because of the short time the match was given. Hmm. Ryan Piper reflected in an interview that went absolutely nowhere. Piper actually got booed as he knocked Dennis Rodman in the one city where Rodman would be cheered. Flair never explained why he disappeared in 94, and in the end, they simply blew over their ankle. Blew off their angle, which may be the total blow off or a tease. They'll do an angle in the week or two. <laughs> okay. Such a weird deal. Yeah. And you also, know? Piper obviously thinks he needs to get a shot in at Rodman, though, because they were calling him Hot Rod. Yes. And you know that hated. He hated that. And they shouldn't have called him that if there was no plans for anything with Rodman and Piper. Yeah. Vicious and Delicious. Scott Norton and Buck Bagwell beat Jeff Jarrett and Mongo in 709 when Mongo turned on Jarrett and Powell drove him and Bagwell made the pin. Fans cheered Mongo like crazy since he was star of the Bears, but still booed Jarrett big time. It was a huge fight when Jarrett gave, when Mongo gave Jarrett the pile driver. Deborah sided with Steve on this one, so they dropped their plans to putting Deborah exclusively with Jarrett. Mm, not so much. Bagwell looked really good. <laughs> All right, I want to see this commercial. So, uh, go back to the second screen. Oh, the, the t-shirt commercial. Okay. Because this is a shirt I actually bought because of the commercial. Did you get it from the commercial or did you get it at a flea market of questionable provenance? I didn't buy no flea market bix. I bought it at a live event. Okay. But anyway, let's watch the commercial for the new NWO shirts. The following announcement has been paid for by the New World Order. Just when you thought you had all the merchandise the NWO had to offer? No, you're wrong! The NWO for Life shirt! Get it? Sweet. Get your NWO for Life t-shirt for only 20 bucks. Just call 1-800-NWO-0242. Fly the new colors, New World Order. Look what we added. Life. The preceding announcement has been paid for by the New World Order. Isn't there a longer version where Nash there is fun of... How it's basically the same shirt, just with four life under the logo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there is a longer one. Yeah, that's my preferred uh, version of this. Yeah. Commercial. Yes. All right. So they spent the entire show teasing that Hogan and Rondo would face off a Luger and the Giants to the point that Bobby Heenan referred to it as the biggest match ever in the history of Chicago wrestling. Somehow they thought the history books would have still remembered Gotcha Hackenschmidt or Roger O'Connor ahead of it hundred years from now. Anyway, Hogan hit Luger with the belt. Giant had Rodman for a slam, but Hogan hit Giant with the belt. Hall, Nash, six later, Savage all came out. They had a spray paint in the on Luger and the Giant's back while the ring literally filled it with debris. Then it got super heat and was great when it comes to building the favorite view. All right, let's watch uh, some of this show. Okay, let's see what the, where the chapter mark takes us. Come on. Uh, okay, yeah, well, it, no, there's like 10 minutes left when the chapter starts, so let's... See. I said some of this. I know, <laughs> all... I'm trying to figure out where I should go up to. Go back. Okay. Here? Ah, uh, here we go. All right, here we go. Yeah. Well, in the ring... So there was six minutes when Luger and Zion came out. Yes. <laughs> so here we go. Take your eyes off your opponents. They really wanted to wait till they got out of the ring, I thought. But now they've chased them back in the ring. Of course, Luger not 
eye contact with the fans. And look at my Tyler Bate in a way. How? The hair. Kinda. So they gotta be very cautious getting to the ring area once again. Mind game. Would you look at that hairdo? Wow. Dennis Rodman, Hollywood Hogan, Giant Luger, big time sporting main event here, fans. Big time athletes in that ring. And Hogan, apparently Hogan cannot wait to get his hands on him. And everybody's standing here. And look at this. Now, once they get in the ring, they want to... Do we think the crowd noise was removed part of the entrance on the original airing? Or do we think that's a weird WWE Network edit? I don't know. Back up here. I wonder how much preparation Rodman and Hogan have done together. Knowing how arrogant and cocky they are. Here they go! Rodman is in the clutches of the Giant! He's got him! And the Giant! Look at this! He's got Rodman up! Does he ever! What I mean, and that's like multiple bottles all at one time. It was just okay, I have lines. to see that again. Because it went right into the camera. He's got him. Look at this. He's got Rodman up. Does he ever? Oh. And down hard. And the... Also, to me, it looks like what happened was that Rodman was scared that Giant was going to try to choke slam him, and Giant had to explain that he was not going to choke slam him, that he was going to pick I him guess. up and then because. Rodman's hesitating. It looks like he really doesn't want to go up. And then Giant says something to him. Giant! Trying to get him up! He's got him! Look at this! He's got Rodman up! Does he ever? There's that soda again. And down hard goes Rodman as Hogan attacked the Giant from behind. Uh Uh-oh, here we go. Oh, he does the Hogan point. Oh, you see Fear and Hogan there, don't you? Rodman's got the belt. Luger's been wiped out, and Rodman nails the Giant with the world title belt. The Giant is down as well. Rodman's down. Goes down hard. And now Luger gets down with the belt. And now the Wolfpack has come out. The The ring is just being pelted. The ring. Look at that. The NWO. An impossible assault on Luger and the Giant. Rodman's good. That's the funny part. Okay, so do we think this is celebratory trash throwing, or do we think it's a small minority of the audience that is pissed that we're clearly not getting an actual match with Rod? No, I think that I think it's I think it's fans this time know it's part of the show. Okay, and and there is it's them cheering. I mean, because they're the crowd's obviously cheering this going on. Yeah, so that's what it is. Once again, we have seen a master plan by the NWO. Look at that, Tony Rodman. He's not afraid of anyone. He's got the giant light up. And there he is, a member of the NWO, Dennis Rodman. In the clutches. Rodman's got the world title. The power that some of these fans are getting on their throws. (laughs) When have you ever heard the drinks hit the ring so loudly before? <laughs> Good lord. 
get the spray can out. We saw this not too long ago. Luger remembers this and uncensored. When he had him down. And now the Wolfpack lays him out for Rodman. Jacket or a towel? It looks like it might have been a starter jacket at Hogan. <laughs> it's a windbreaker. I don't know if it's a starter jacket or not, but it's not Bulls because that's like Charlotte Hornets colors. <laughs> yeah. Batman must be really angry. <laughs> a damn jacket. <laughs> you know, you're not getting that back, brother. <laughs> yeah. That was a hot fucking deal. I mean, and, and again, <clears throat> Raman has just been on a, a world champion NBA team three days earlier. He's one of the most famous athletes in sports. And here he is doing this big angle on wrestling television. I mean, that, that's huge. But you know what? It'd be, it'd be bigger. It'd be bigger today. That's the thing. In regards to sports media. Yeah. Because if I remember correctly, ESPN really didn't do a whole hell of a lot covering Rodman in WCW. Or when Malone was there. Because wrestling still had that stigma. Yes. Now it doesn't have that stigma. You know? Yeah. The thing about how big it would be now, you know, if we, uh, you know, if you had someone like Rahman and Carl Malone competing, you know, at, at WrestleMania or something like that. I mean, gigantic as far as sports media. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, WWE's I mean, firing imagine- all, all cylinders, man. They're firing all cylinders. To the can you imagine them getting into the scuffle during that game with Twitter? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> this is whole thing, you know? And with a pay-per-view that's not on pay-per-view, but is part of a subscription that real people have. 
And then think about this. I mean, then you're going to get also in the next year, you got to get fucking Jay Leno involved. You know? Yeah. In a social media world, I mean, that is completely different. Yes. All right. Torch has some notes. Before Night Show on the air, there were two dark matches. Psychosis pinned Yuji Nagata at 33 minutes. There's a squash after a top of the leg drop. And the signers beat Public Enemy at five minutes. Johnny Grunge brought a table into the ring, said Rick Steiner for a splash. Steiner moved. Grunge crashed the table. Rick pinned him. Michael Buffer went to the ring, at which point the crowd razzed him, saying, Utah sucks. Why? Because Utah Jazz used his Let's Get Ready to Rumble in their game opening routine. Buffer responded, In the words of the NWO, Utah can bite me. <laughs> Dave Ness, we'll see if his d- deal gets renewed next year. In the words of the NWO, Utah can bite me. <laughs> bite me. <laughs> Ramen got the biggest pop of the night when he first came in. Hogan got a mix of booze and cheers, and reaction was geared slowly towards him. Crowd's interest was high for Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, Randy Savage, DDP's angle. They didn't react at all to Medusa or, or Glacier. They were pretty drained when Dragon faced Jericho. After the night, the fans continued to litter the ring with garbage and giant lugers of the NWO attack for a long time before getting helped out of the ring. Homemade signs were the only thing drawing attention at the Chicago Nitro. A fan wore a homemade t-shirt that said, Lex Luger says, take your roids. <laughs> well, it is one of his. Allocates. Yes. Bob Probert of Chicago Blackhawks was originally going to work the uh, Nitro, being in Flair's corner, in a rematch against Scott Hall. The feeling was they didn't want to have anything to detract from the ramen appearance and with all the star power on that show and Flair having wrestled so much at Nitro of late, they really didn't need to put him in the ring this week. I bet. Oh, I bet they got under Flair's crawl. Because Bob Probert's a friend of Flair. He's a name hockey player in Chicago, one of Flair's favorite cities. You know that had to piss him off. Yes. Oh, all because of ramen. I mean, why not do both? It wasn't going to detract from ramen. Ramen is was in his own stratosphere at this time. Yes. As far as fame. Yes. It wasn't going to detract from ramen at all. And fans would have loved it because Bob Prover was a very popular guy in Chicago. So it would have been a big deal for everyone involved. Yes. Nope. <laughs> It's funny though that I mean this didn't happen because you know Scott Hall would been on the other side. You know, and, and with Nash Nash and, and crew, you know, gaining power, you would think that they wouldn't want that to happen, but eh? Well, I mean that's the reason that's the one good reason not to do it, is that you kinda have to concede that the NWO are gonna be babyfaces because of Rodman. So do you want the NWO specifically up against another Chicago sports figure. I mean, maybe, maybe that's the maybe. problem. All right. Yeah. Rob was on a tonight show on June 18th and he and Jay Leno talked about the wrestling and they showed a 10 second clip of Nitro. The clip of the ramen angle aired on sports center, CNN throughout the entertainment media. So it was great puff for WCW. I mean, they covered it, but it wasn't like it would be today. 
Uh, there were those within the company quietly happy that even with all the hype and buildup for Ryman and Hogan being there live, the actual rating of the show did was lower than the show's weekly average. We'll talk more about that later. Um, there's been a ton of mainstream print media on WCW besides all the Rodman-induced coverage. The July issue of Atlanta Magazine ran an 11-page feature based on the Nitro show from the Omni and watching the tryout at the power plant. Bischoff and WCW are allowing reporters to get far more inside than WF ever allowed them in their heyday. The store was a good pub, but a lot of the references to face and heels together, etc., would have made promoters cringe in the old days. Breaking Bill Watts' Ten Commandments. Now back to Raman. Chicago Sun-Times ran a store in the Raman Angle on June 17th in a special section with profiles of me WC wrestlers and Bischoff on the 15th. The section was printing inside for a major newspaper. June 18th, Long Beach Press-Telegram ran a story about the head-to-head Los Angeles shows with no new ground broken, really not much, not saying much. That's coming up the week after our week, where WCW's running the internet-exclusive show in Los Angeles. The pay-per-listen uh, Saturday night. Pay-per-listen. And Raw, I don't know, it wasn't Raw, I think they were running a house show at um, the sports arena? At the Pond. The Pond, uh, yeah, the Pond, which, you know, technically it's in Los Angeles, Anaheim, Orange County, but still. It's in the L.A. market. Competing, yes. Yeah. All right, WCW ran a five-show German tour from June 18th to the 22nd, where they played down, which they played down because the feeling ahead of time was that it would be a disaster. They've heard nothing but good about the tour, but it was poorly promoted, and most of the matches were really bad, and that was compared very favorably to other shows in the same cities. The shows ranged from one-third to half-full, with crowds ranged from 2,500 to 5,500, with big names like Sting, Luger, Giant, Hall, Nash, Page, Steiners, no one appearing. Sting never wrestled, but every night after the Hall and Nash, Giant, Luger matches, which ended with NWA outside and first DQs, Sting made a grand entrance save, used a power failure, and lights go on, he's in the ring. The retired Medusa worked with Luna Vachon every night. Alex Wright is from Germany, where it's his face, Julian against E. Morris. Six went on early for the tours, apparently he had a family problem he had to return for so, I mean, which I want to take this out because it's not in our week here, this uh, result. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, the, the German tour, you look at the numbers that they did, which I'm going to do right now. I mean, this is a good tour to go on, you know, because they, they had some penetration. I mean, Hamburg, they didn't have any... Uh, Attendance. Uh, we don't have. There's some we don't have results for. Uh, outside of our week, they drew 5,500 overhouse and to 3,000 in Frankfurt. Now the show during our week was in Hamburg, the Sport Hall. But we'll have results for. We had Rey Mysterio Jr. over Lord Steven Regal, Medusa over Luna, Outside over Hugh Morris, Turner's over Home Heat, DDP over Michael Wall Street by disqualification. Then one over Ming, Malenko over six by DQ, and Luger and China over Hall and Nash by DQ. So, I mean, you don't have Hogan, of course, but you got, you know, pretty much all the major names there. Yeah. So. You got Sting doing stuff even. And, you know, for the televised event on the 21st, of the week, they, they had pyrotechnic and special effects, so. Yeah. So, yeah. All right, weekend number saw main event to a 1.0, Saturday night did a 2.2, despite it being the best Saturday show in a long time, and Pro had a pitiful 1.1. Now, Dave was talking about the uh, Saturday night show. It, it had two very good matches. 
Lucha Six Man with Sakosa, Silver King, and Damian Seisseis be Ultimo Dragon, Uhudu Guerrero, and La Parca with Sakosa and Dragon, and then a four star match. Far better than Nitro match two days earlier. And the best match, the best match on Saturday night probably in more than a year, they had a U.S. title match with Malenko beating Jeff Jarrett by disqualification. When Mongo hit Malenko with a briefcase for the title save, it was also a very good match. So Dave put number Saturday night, Bix. That's good. That's nice. I do remember that six man match being really, really good. But you get them out there, you, you put them out there and give them time to work. They're gonna, they're gonna be good more often than not. Yes. And Saturday night gave them the chance to do that more than Nitro would. Yeah. How, how about uh, Dave putting over Jeff Jarrett too? Well, yeah, he's in Malenko, and yeah, they work good together. Yes. <laughs> well, that's what obviously before that. No, it, well before it, that. It, uh, my world and Brie Wu do not know space and time, Chris. What was Jeff Jarrett's WCW theme? Oh, the one, uh, the one that was used as the backing track for the West Texas Rednecks, uh, good old boys. Yeah, I'm listening to it now. Here. <laughs> yeah, it's not good. <laughs> Here it is. And then for comparison. What? It's like the vanilla ice. Uh, no, that, the, the other Queen's version is dun 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 dun. dun. My version is dun 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 dun. dun. This 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 is one of the most Jimmy Hart songs ever in WCW too. Yes. I'm shocked uh, that they're not talking about walking down the beach looking for some action while listening to their favorite rock and roll station. <laughs> I, I do want to get up to the one best line in this song, though. Got American flags flying in our yard. Every Saturday night, we like to party hard. We got an old hound dog in a pickup truck. We like long-legged country girls who know how to love. <laughs> <laughs> Because as we all as know, love th- rhymes with truck. Yes. Paul W. Taylor won the book Chris Jericho to be six for the Cruiserweight title a few weeks back, but the char- title change was ni- wasn't Nick's. It was postponed. So it should happen sometime soon. The thing from the NWO is that since Six has just done the big job in Charlotte, they want him to get a few wins like the Ray on one on nine, show to build his heat back up before the upset loss of the title. And that happens at uh, the forum. So not too much longer. All right, so more about woman. From the tour. To the torch. Yes. Yeah, woman was on the Germany tour despite her missing recent TV appearances with Benoit. Announcers ignored her absence, and Torch and WCW over a week ago said WCW had released her. She and her Kevin Sullivan had a fallen out, with woman, and woman has sent feelers elsewhere regarding work. 
So she either A, officially was officially finished WCW following the Germany tour, or B, she was known WCW already brought her back, thus explaining her presence in Germany. It's A. If I remember right, isn't it? <clears throat> uh, yeah, pretty much. Okay. Um, okay, so for where we are in the timeline, God, things fell apart quick once she got with Chris, because that was April. Um, granted, things had also gotten much worse with Kevin as well. Um, has the incident with the knife and the arrest happened yet? I don't know. I was trying to find no the date for that. I know it's around this time, but I couldn't find the date, so I don't know. But the other thing is that I don't know if you've ever seen this. There was this weird rumor that I'd seen a bunch online. I think it even made it into her Wikipedia entry at some point that she quit because Kevin or someone tried to book her in an angle where she'd be stripped and be topless. That's not something that's ever reported in the newsletters or anything like that at the time, right? No. No. I don't remember ever hearing an actual source for that. Do you? No. It's just a thing that's out there that people repeat. Um, <laughs> I don't see any reason to believe it. It just seems like it's everything else that's going on. Um, yeah. It was weird how she just disappeared, though. Huh? That they didn't even try to explain it. Yeah. And yeah, just as a reminder for everyone, <laughs> the whole angle where he's trying to, you know, steal Kevin Sullivan's wife or however you want to put it, I mean, that's mostly cooled off by the time they actually get together. Yeah. But there's a one, likely in that with Ric Flair as a manager. It was mutually decided that she would stop wrestling for now because there weren't any marketable opponents. Final opponents for Japan was too expensive to do regularly. So, same thing that Dave said, as far as that. But, Ric Flair was a part of that, though. He didn't mention Flair by name, he mentioned valet, but that never happens. I mean, she doesn't end up being a valet or anything, either. No. Weird. Ravens made the debut this month. Final contract details were being worked out last week and this week. And he's there very soon. Yes. There's locker room heat in general that Kevin Nett, Kevin, Nett, Kevin Green, Dennis Rodman, and Reggie White have been earning more per match than some WCW wrestlers earn in six months, or even a year. There was actually some locker room satisfaction taking in Rodman not popping a rating in the buy rate for Slamboree with Reggie White not popping a larger than average buy rate. The Wolfpack's contracts are being renegotiated in part because of the basically above concerns. We are being if there's money to pay those celebrities six figure share appearances, there's room to pay Hall and Nash even more. Green, by the way, has suggested he may retire from football after next season and go into pro wrestling full time. It may be a leverage move for the contract money, or it could be sincere. You'd be surprised how much his per batch value drops when he's no longer a crossover celebrity. Green's apparently back in good grace with the Carolina Panthers. It's agreed to work for less than he previously asked for because his wrestling and will make up the difference. Now back to Hall and Nash real quick. Um, WCW was renegotiating deals with civil wrestlers. Hall and Nash got raised his light. late last year. Dan and Ryan, they would be the highest paid wrestler in the company outside of Hulk Hogan. They were given a raise to waive that clause in case Bret Hart signed for even more. Chris Benoit just got a raise, plus top Mexican workers are scheduled to finally get a raise in the six figures. They were on pace to make less than $100,000 per year. Yeah. Okay, so that's interesting. I don't remember hearing that before, that when they waived favored nations, it was in exchange for a raise. That doesn't make sense, though. 
Yeah. Um, as far as the pro athletes and what they're making, so looking at what the data we have as far as pay, there's no payroll listed for Rodman in 97, weirdly enough. It's 500000 in 98, and then almost $1.2 million in 99. Also, I don't remember if this ever got covered at the time. Rodman sued WCW in, ni- in November 98 in a contract dispute, and it ended in June 99. What did Rodman do in 99? Where am I, what am I missing? Randy Savage at Road Wild. That's right. I forgot about that. Okay, so Kevin Green... Do you have any guesses as to what Kevin Green made? Uh, five hundred thousand. Hundred sixteen thousand and ninety six, four hundred thirty thousand and ninety seven, five hundred twenty thousand and ninety eight. Hmm. Reggie White made two hundred nine thousand. That's a lot of money that they probably didn't make back. No. For Rodman, maybe they did, but not for the others. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, it was worth it to them as far as publicity. And it was interesting that here's something about Green going, possibly going to full-time in the wrestling, which doesn't happen. Right, because you are getting a certain amount of publicity value out of it. How much would that cost if you were buying ads? But it's also true as well that if Kevin Green became a full-time wrestler, yes, his his appeal would probably drop because he's there all the time. So that's something that you have to be careful with, you know? Yes. But that time, that's a different era. There is no part-timers in this era, you know what I'm saying? This isn't the era of Brock Lesnar and stuff like that. Okay, so this is interesting. Okay. Dave? Was it Dave or Wade? Wade. Wade says they renegotiated towards the end of the year. The contract database for WCW says Hall and Nash's contracts both started on January 1st, 97 and expired on December 31st, 01. Okay. Here's where that gets interesting. For 97, they both made about 750000 Weren't we told they were making in that range to jump? Yeah. 700, maybe 750. And for 96, Nash made 336. But he's there for more than half the year. Hmm. And then, yeah, in 97. So wait a second. Yeah, if it was a new deal, though. The big race starts in 98, though, for whatever reason. Um, Maybe it was the way they budgeted it. I don't know. But they start making, you know. In the one and a half million range, ninety eight. Brian Oz will be returning with, Jer- but Jerry Sass won't be with him if he's still got the net problem. <clears throat> and he's going to sue the company over because it's got all shooting on him or whatever the hell happened. Yeah, it's for Tommy Hugh Morse to the third member Public Enemy. Although that's far from a done deal. Oh, that would have been something. Oh my god, <laughs> that would have been a little crazy. Uh, the E three video games conference was held this past week in Atlanta. WWE finally got to do something it's been wanting to do for years. Present pro wrestling at the HM and CNN Center. They have matches from June 19th to the 21st, featuring people like Raft, Chip Minton, Bobby Walker, High Voltage, Billy Kidman, Ice Train, and Mortis. And as many as 1,200 people watching from the convention during the lunch breaks on June 19th. 
How many E3s were there that were not in Vegas? I don't know. I hope WWE has footage of this, but with no hidden gems, where would they be uh, releasing it? Yeah. And that would be like a very, very limited uh, the amount of people would want to see this. So. Uh, the Torch. WCB is running the problems with bootlegging and merchandise, especially T-shirts, outside arenas, especially in Boston. WCB now is patrolling the parking lot to prevent bootleggers. Yeah, you got to oh, do yeah. that when you get popular. <clears throat> oh, there's a lot of that. A lot of it. I knew quite a few people that had bootleg shirts. Um, and WF2. In this era, there's a lot of bootleg WF and bootleg WCB shirts. Absolutely. Yes. Um, now, I've always wondered, though, I think we've talked about this before, at least with the WWF shirts, do you think the bootlegs proliferate as much if the retail shirts were not so shitty? Well, the bootleg shirts weren't that much better. I mean, weren't better. No. <laughs> a lot of the time, no. But still, you get what I'm saying, though. It's like... I've always wondered why they made this decision, though, and they did this for decades, to have the retail merchandise with the shirt designs be so much worse than the ones they sell directly, and it always has a picture of the wrestler, and just all the stuff you don't want. Yeah. Bootleg shirts did that, too. Yeah. But also, you could just bootleg the NWO logo really easy, too. Oh, God, yeah. A variety wire store said that TNT would like to pair a weekly version of the proposed Shadow Warriors TV show starring Carl Weathers Hulk Hogan with a new wrestling show on Friday nights. Eric Bischoff has said if any wrestling is added to the schedule, it will be one hour on TBS following Nitro on TNT. Huh? Okay, there's a lot going on here. Yeah. <laughs> um, so TNT wanted the wrestling show paired with Shadow Warriors. Which ends up not being a TV show, just a couple of movies. Yes. And then Bischoff's wanting an hour on TBS following Nitro? Hmm. So this is, I think this is Bischoff wanting a third hour in 1997, but, but on a different network. that's all he's willing to add. Yeah. Which is why he's so pissed off about Thunder. Yeah. WCW is working on Mike Tyson appearing at Las Vegas Nitro. So if it's fight two days earlier, it probably won't be a definite until the last minute. And it doesn't happen, but... Well, I... here, here, okay, here's the question, though, Biggs. Here's the question. How different is all this shit if Mike Tyson doesn't bite around what feels here? Is that the bite fight? Yes. Okay. He probably appears on my show two days later. Yeah. And then we don't get Mike Tyson WF in the next a year later. And boy, does that change everything. Yeah, because as hot as Austin was getting, post-screwjob and everything, that roster is so bare. I don't know well, what Austin sustains without, you know... He doesn't. Without he doesn't. Tyson, and... Yeah. It, 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 we talked about it on the Patreon show. Does WCW I mean, win the wrestling war if there's no bite fight? It's very possible. Because also remember, I forget if they had gotten the uh, the renewal by that point. Remember, they came very close to that Raw was going to be canceled at that point. Yeah. 
But yeah, I mean, you talk about, you know, one of the biggest happenstances ever because, okay, the um, Nitro at Grand Garden Arena was June the 30th. Tyson Holyfield was June 28th. The same night as the paper listen Hmm. from Los Angeles. That is it. (laughs) You're talking about a what if in wrestling history. So also they're trying to peak all of these angles and celebrity things at the same time, too. Yeah. If my touch doesn't find Brandon Holyfield's here, it's very possible he's on Nitro two days later. And who knows what he would have been doing, but still. Him, him being in the WCW fold and being around pretty much guarantees he wouldn't have been WF in January. And... If you have him and Rodman, then you have the whole perception of being where the bad boy celebrities go. Mm-hmm. Or at least the bad boy athletes. Mm-hmm. And that takes away, I think, a lot of juice from the image that WWF tries to present starting at the end of the year, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, of course, I mean, I, I might as well tell the story because it's a minor element of that Patreon show. And then it turns out, I don't think it's reported at the time in the newsletters, it comes up when the Tyson stuff's going on the following year. When they're advertising the major surprise, somehow Vince became convinced it was the ultimate warrior and tried to get a restraining order over something that was not happening. Yeah. Because wrestling. And, and Turner would not allow WCW to have, to negotiate with Tyson after the earbody incident. Yeah. So, a oh, big what if there, folks. Huge. All of my Tyson and take a chunk out of Brandon Holyfield's here. All right, let's go to the land of the rising sun now, New Japan Pro Wrestling. So that's where the retirement of Ricky Joshua at a press conference in Tokyo on June 19th was surprising. But only for humorous candor. Choshu, real name Mitsuo Yoshida, age 45, announced he would only wrestle eight more matches before retiring on the January 4th, 98 show at Tokyo Dome to conclude a pro career of more than 23 years. He also announced an added show to the New Japan schedule, which had a retirement ceremony for him on August 31st at Yokohama Arena. Choshu cited an injury to his right shoulder, which makes it impossible to lift his famous lariat arm as the main reason for his retirement. He strongly suggested, and it was widely believed, unlike every new person retirement of a major star, this one is legitimate. Church should be hitting and talking retirement for nearly two years. First late 95, after exhaustion has taken its toll on him, after an incredible last three weeks of promotion of the October 9th, 95 Tokyo Dome show, when UWFI, that resulted in what was still the largest live gate in pro wrestling history, 6.1 million, and the biggest crowd ever to attend an indoor sporting event in Japan, 67,000. A few days after that event, Choshu claimed he hadn't got much sleep over the previous several weeks, strongly hinted he'd be out of the ring by early 96. However, he never officially announced retirement and used 96 as his final run for glory, captured a G1 climax in a week where he secretly screwed up his knee on the first night and struggled through the week to complete, complete his planned comeback story after he had announced beforehand would be his final G1 in highly dramatic fashion. This set up his final world title challenge at the January 4th Tokyo Dojo Show, which even with the weakest undercard for a Dojo in years, his shots, Shoshimoto's IWGB Heavyweight title resulted in a sell of 62,500 fans. The fifth time in his career, he had on a show that drew more than 50,000 fans. A figure that only two or three men in history can claim. 
But even last year, Jerome Finley was a choice. He's finally pushing himself in the G1 and challenge Hashimoto the dome main event was his final hurrah and beyond the rainbow in the 97. The humor in the press conference was Cho should be asked if he would ever make a comeback from his retirement. He responded something to the effect of, never. Unless New Japan becomes a poor company. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, let's see here. Let's see, does stay retired for a little while. All right, Ricky Choshu. It's still not that long. It's not. No. Probably right. easier to pull up wrestling data for this one since you can look at the whole overview and it'll. All right, he retires on August. Excuse me, no. <laughs> Here's what's funny: his actual last reti- his last show is January fourth, ninety eight, Tokyo Dome show. That's where he wrestles uh, five times, and he comes back in two years, July thirtieth, two thousand, with Onita. But that's one match. So that's one match to you. And then he's so back for Google. Well, he's back for a one. Then he's gone in 02. And then he's back in 03 full time for World Japan. And then from then on is keeping but, his but, schedule. The thing is, though, the thing is, though, in honesty, though, with Shoshu is he's, he's mainly working, sh- you know, some shows. He's not working regular schedule. No. He's not, he's not working a regular schedule. Until World Span. It makes you wish more people did the Mick Foley retirement where they stress as an active wrestler. Yeah, and, that, and he, that's basically what he is. He, he retired as an active wrestler until World Span. Yeah. But that's his company, so of course he had to wrestle to, you know, to get it going. But, I mean, he, he does better here than most other people did. You gotta give him that. Yes. So. And obviously, he was not expecting to leave New Japan and, and feel the need to start his own company that he had to care. Well, that's years later. That's what I'm saying. I mean, he's been he's been that time that you know these guys can carry the load. Yes. Well, Mudo's Mudo and Shono start falling apart physically, and the the younger generation doesn't get to that standard. Although he tries and tries and tries. But by pushing him. Yeah. And then Anoki comes back. You know, Anokiism begins and then it's you know, the game's completely changed then. Alright, Joshi will concentrate on his primary duties of the past several years of being the head booker for New Japan. And the most powerful force in their front office. And will also like to help train new wrestlers for the company. But Joshi's career resume as a wrestler firmly established himself as a Hall of Famer in this industry. His record set while being a booker actually blow away his credentials in the ring. Yeah, he's got him. <laughs> I mean, as a draw in terms of all the big dome houses, yes, he's a better candidate as a booker, but that, I mean, I almost feel like you shouldn't even make the comparison because he is still a Hall of Fame wrestler. Well, absolutely. He's a Hall of Famer in both ways. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's just that simple. It's just that simple. Besides the August show in Yokohama and the final Tokyo Dome show, Choshu wrestled July 1st in Hachiroe, July 6th in Sapporo, August 1st Sumo Hall, August 10th at Nagoya Dome, September 18th in Tokuyama, his hometown, and November 2nd the Fukuoka Dome, which is basically the schedule it works. No specific matches were announced for his retirement tour, although the Sapporo match had already been announced as he and Hashimoto against Great Muda and Chono. 
It's with Yokama Master being a snail Yogawa. That Jerome is that there will never be a Choshu Akira Maeda match after all. That's why there's tremendous money in a one night live gate. If it is participating in the match, Maeda would do long term damage to his ring pro- ring's promotion. And for those who are wondering, since it's not stated here, by this point they had buried the hatchet personally. Yeah. I mean, that is a big money match. Yes. It's this era is when they start doing like magazine photo shoots together and stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then it is it happen. was it the it we covered the Choshu retirement with Maeda being there, didn't we? Yeah. So like yeah, they have they have buried the hatchet at least, which is nice. Um I don't know. I mean, Maeda is already kind of de-emphasized as a top star in rings by this point anyway to a point. He's not Yeah, but Tippy top. Yeah, but Reigns is starting to become more of a shoot promotion. Right. And I gotta feel like Maeda doesn't really consider himself on borrowed time yet if he's turning this down, too. Yeah. It really would have been interesting to see him do another pro wrestling style match, too. Traditional style. Yeah. Alright, speaking of retirements, Nikon Sports reported that the original Mr. Pogo, who retired last year, would return to wrestling for Big Japan on July 13th, 22nd, 23rd, excuse me, at Cork and Hall against Great Kajika. Huh. Well, that didn't last. Of course not. All right, FMW. At this point, it appears that Ken Shamrock will face Vader on the September 28th Kawasaki Baseball Stadium show. The, field, the deal wasn't finalized as of our last report, but that was where the negotiations were headed. The feeling from Masushanita and others is that Gregory Verachev, the so- Soviet Olympic judo player, had been gone from Japan for so long, his name would mean nothing, and a match with Shamrock wouldn't sell enough tickets to justify bringing Shamrock over. They split with Kimo, but he won about $150,000 put Shamrock over, and that was out of their price range. Bam Bam Bigelow would have done it for less, but the holdup was that Big- where Bigelow was told the match was going to t- be taped on a Sunday fair and the next day on Raw, he didn't want to appear on Raw doing the job. Onita believes this is the year FNW can overtake all Japan's number two wrestling promotion in Japan. Which is why he's trying to work with WF and ECW with interpromotional type matches. Onita wants to bring five or six WF stars to Japan for both November and December and do Japanese angles with them. Oh, this is all at one point in the planning stages. They're going to do a second baseball stadium show now in December, which is the current plans are, which consists of five WF matches, including Chamber versus Vader rematch as the main event, which likely means they'll split their two matches. And a Terry Funk, Tommy Dreamer versus Onita and Wing Counter Murph plus a Bar Bar Bomb match. He said we were heavyweight title match. He said we tag title match. And several FMW matches with WWF and ECW both being partners in the show. FMW announced the show for August 2nd at the Shio Dome in Tokyo with a supposed Bar Bar match between Wing Counter Murph and Masato Tanaka, with the winner getting a singles match with Onita at Kawasaki Stadium. We've also heard Onita may turn heel in this show, a lot Hogan and Bret Hart, and set a tag match for the stadium main event. That All Japan comment is interesting, since this is when FMW and All Japan start working together. Yeah. I mean, including on that Kawasaki Stadium show. They send Kabashi and Mossman. Yeah. That's a yeah, weird comment, isn't it? But, uh... And Onita is still part of the office by that point, right? Or is he out? I think he's out. So, okay, he's just talent at that point. Mm-hmm. So that's why Bob is willing to do business, because Bob's issue, as he explained in Japanese media, his issue was not with other companies. 
it was with other companies run by guys who left all Japan. Or Anoki. Yes. Because of their history. But once Onita's out of the picture, he's fine working with FMW. Clearly, he liked Hayabusa and Tenzaki a lot. Yeah. I believe, by the way... I don't know if it's online yet. I think I saw... Am I confusing it with the Takayama Kawada? I feel like I saw something that said that there might finally be an official commercial pro shot release of that tag match from Kawasaki Stadium, but I'm not sure if I'm misremembering. But now, Ken Shamrock on the show does happen against Vader. That does happen as planned here. Mm -hmm. But it does not air on Monday Night Raw, nor is it acknowledged at all on the World Wrestling Federation Television Network. No. No. But, uh, yeah... Yeah, so within a couple, within a few months, there are WWF wrestlers on shows from FMW, Nishinoku Pro, and All Japan. And Onita does turn. Yeah. So you get that too. Yeah, Onita does turn. Alright, uh, Kashima on June 18th, City Gym, from 1750. The Dragon Winger of Mamoru Komodo. Christopher Damar of Miyasato. Hideki Asako of Flank Ichihara. The Toxic Core, Shoshisuya, Kreshman Damar, and Miss Mongol will be Kari Nakayama, Yuko Kazuki, and Miyuki Sagabe. Then we have, uh, this match. Hiskasa Oya, Mr. Gansuke, the Headhunters, and Black Hayabusa. Over Tetsuya Kuroda, Hayato Nanjo, Riki Fuji, Hayabusa, and Mr. Pogo number two. Black Hayabusa is Jose Estrada Jr. Yeah. And then Brass Knuckles Tag Title match. Wayne Kanemura and Bad Boy Hito retained over Masato Tanaka and Koji Nakagawa. Hmm. So, this regular FMW, Tarzan Goto's opened up his Shin FMW office on June 17th in Kawasaki before 783 fans set a record by doing six matches in one night, three singles and three tags, including the main event beating his usual tag partner Ryo Miyaki in a barbar board death match. So Tarzan right, Goto is in every match on this show, to be clear. Yeah. Yes. Tarzan go over Kastoshi Niyama. Tarzan go over Takashikano. Nobukazu Arai Nicho Yaguchi over Tarzan Goto and Ryomiyaki. Rikyo Ito and Masaki Mochizuki over Tarzan Goto and Ryomiyaki. Kishikawabada, Shimi Masazaki and Shigeo Kimura over Mitsunobu Kukazawa, Tarzan Goto and Ryomiyaki. And in a Caribbean barbar and barbar board death match, Tarzan Goto over Ryomiyaki. And Ryomiyaki worked four matches. <laughs> yeah? But, uh, yeah, Tar- <laughs> at least Ricky Joshi didn't work every match on the World's Man show. How many FMW offshoots have we had that had some variation of the name? So we have FMW, we have WMF, we have Shin FMW, we have FMWE. What else? A lot. I mean, if we want to count it, WEW. Yeah. I mean, I know there's got to be at least one or two other Onita versions besides FNWE, I would think. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of offshoots from, from FNW. Maybe more than any other promotion ever. Yes. IWA Japan. They opened their tour up on June 19th. And they're using one for our Tommy Rich, Freddy Krueger, Doug Gilbert, Terry Gordy, and Leatherface, Rick Patterson as their foreigners. As I go to that show at Eda Workers Sports Center. We have Yuji Kido, all caps, over Hideo Tomo Igawa. Amy Murakawa over Sachin Ishimori. Akinori Sukioka over Tudor the Turtle. Freddy Krueger over Great Takeru. 
Leatherface Terry Gordy over uh, Kasumi Hirano and Takakua Benke. And Keisuke Yamada, Masao Rihara, and Great Kabuki over Takeshi Sato, Keita Matsuda, and Wildfire Tommy Rich. Sure. Um, <laughs> Tsukioka, of course, is Kushinbo Kamen. Yeah. And as always, it always just feels weird when we read results like this. The most relevant wrestler on the show in 2023 is Emi Murakawa. Because <laughs> that's Emi Sato. Oh, yeah, but- but we have a match where Tommy Rich is working with Masao Orihara. So there you go. Yes. Yes, that is absolutely wonderful. Imagine if he ended up in an Apex of Triangle tournament or really any movie <laughs> <a> show. <laughs> yeah. Michinoku Pro, June 14th at Iwanuma City Gym. Grand Naniwa over Masao Yakasushi. Walter Wilkins Jr. over Narashikawa. Jin Sashizaki over The Magic Man. Tiger Mask 4, Super Delphin, Grand Hamada, and Great Sasuke, over Hanzo Nakajima, Shoichi Funaki, Mince Teo, and Dick Togo. Kaitai. And then similar World Wars Away title, Muscara Mahika retained over Yoni Genjin. Hmm. How'd he get a title for <laughs> Well, it's a welterweight title, you know. But a made event even with Yoni Genjin, okay. Um. Interesting, too, that we have a babyface match opening the show with two names, which is not really how Sasuke looked in this era at all, normally. Yeah. Uh, Magic Man, for those who have never seen him, was a Michigan-based... or No, was it, it wasn't Michigan. It was St. Louis, right? St. Louis-based uh, wrestler and magician who uh, also appeared on the Jerry Springer show. Yes. And... Best known for his match at the uh, Sumo Hall show in October, where... Who did he face in that? Oh, I don't even remember. It was someone ridiculous. But anyway, that's Magic Man. And I need to watch more 97 Mission Oku Pro, because it really is a continuation of the 96 stuff. It's just not talked up as much. Kingdom. Kingdom, which does a work UFC style, ran uh, June 20th at Yogi Gym in Tokyo. And failed to sell the second show during 3,300 fans in a 3,800-seat arena, which is not a good sign. The big angle was that Antonio Noki, Sorsiyama, and Neogon were there for photo ops with Nobuhiko Takada, who didn't work with the show, with the storyline being he's not going to do a competitive match, saved himself for the elusive fix on Gracie. At the show, Takada said he hoped the match would take place in October, although the odds of it really happening seemed to decrease by the week. All right, the results of the show, Billy Scott over Shunsuke Matsui. Dajiro Matsui. Kenichi Yamamoto over Nico Gordo. Yui Sano, Nakasano over Mark Hall. Yoshiro Takayama over Masito Kakiara. And Yoji Anjo over Kazushi Sakuraba. Hmm. One of the nice things about Kingdom is that Sakuraba actually gets a push. Yeah. Um. Interesting that Takada is saying that since. Look, the reason that he never even considers issuing a challenge to avenge Anjo against Hickson, is that he knows he's not a real fighter and he's going to get his ass kicked. So, especially given that it's Kingdom, it's a shoot-style promotion, they're not running more than, like, once a month. It's not like he'd be needed to do a lot of matches. This is him not wanting to get injured before training for the Hickson fight and lose out on his last big payoff, Right. I guess, yeah. Because he's got to know that he's not good, right? Yeah. 
But this, he sees that potential money. That's what he's looking at. And he's sacrificing Kingdom for it, too. Yeah. Pancrase ran on June 18th for Gorgon Hall for a solid 2250, with the top matches having Jason DeLucia become number two contender for King of Pancrase, beating Kuma Kunyoku in 1851 when a doctor stopped the match. And Minoru Suzuki knocked out many-time India freestyle wrestling champion Jajit Singh in 21 seconds. Singh is coming off a bronze medal winning performance at the Asian Freestyle Wrestling Championships this past April in Iran. Hmm. Results. Satoshi Hashigawa over Paul Lazenby by decision. Twitter's Paul Lazenby. Osami Shibuya over David Moore by submission. Takafumi Ito over Jason Gansi by submission. Ryushi Yanagasawa over Les Johnson by, Johnston by submission. Then Delusha over Kyoku and Minoru Suzuki over Jajit Singh by KO. Hmm. In 21 seconds. Yeah. yeah. All Japan women, their biggest show of the week was, uh, well, the biggest show of the week in Japan was All Japan women running a, a double shot June 17th and 18th at Nakajima Sports Center in Sapporo. Well, the first night, they drew an announced 3,200, which indicates a poor crowd realistically. With Kyoko Inoue winning back the vacant Triple WA title being Karuito in 2601 with a Niagara driver and rematched their 60 minute draw on March 31st. Now, about the former tag champions, LCO, Esko Mina Mimishimoto, who are getting the big push now as a heel team, beat Manami Toyota and Toshio Yamana in 2210. Mina and Shimoda get a shot at Kumiko Mikawa and Tomoko Watanabe's Triple WA tag titles on June 18th. In addition, Mariko Yoshida retained the CMLL women's title, pinning Rie Tamada. Now, the next night, they drew announced 3700, uh, with Takako Inoue becoming the new All Pacific champion. Winning the uh, vacant belt in the match with Toshiro Yamada with her Takaka Panic. Knee to the head of the top rope at 15.08. The main event saw Etsuko Mita and Mimishimoto getting the big push as heels. Using four arms to bring back the blade back to AJW. Winning the Triple WA tag titles from Kamiko Mikawa and Tomoko Watanabe in a best of three fall match at 28.45. Mita and Shimoda's matches this past week have generally been bloody. And apparently the June 17th match where they beat Toyota and Yamada saw Toyota bleed like crazy. It's kind of weird, says Toyota and Takako Inoue are scheduled and did appear as runway models at a high-level fashion show in Tokyo a few days later. You know, you read this, though, <laughs> and it really is clear, though. I don't know who was booking what, when, though, but it's very obvious. Once the whole uh, interpromotional well was dry, they had no idea what to do next. No, but they bring in the blade back. Yeah. It's not like it was uncommon in the eighties, but they hadn't but and they hadn't done it as much since the last boom. You know, like obviously, you know, there's Hokuto Kandori is the big example everyone would think of. But it's not like it was a constant here as it was for a lot of the dumb Matsumoto stuff. Um, yeah. But it in this context it feels like desperation. You know? Yeah. They haven't really gotten any new stars ready, and then once they do have some new women ready, the decline in popularity makes it so that they have slimmer pickings, and the ones who do show up just aren't right. No one's really the right fit to be like that new star. It's not like there's no good talent, but I mean, who would you say are the three biggest stars of the next generation? Monakanishi, Kayonumi, and Nani Takahashi? Probably, yeah. And none of them really click. And they tried with them. They really did. 
uh, didn't work. And they had, like, different types in terms of wrestling styles and looks and everything, the three of them. But neither really, I mean, none of them really connected in a big way. Plus, once they're getting the bigger push, Guy is getting stronger, RFCN starts up, and it's just, things just get worse for all the family. Yeah. Speaking of Gaia. Chiyo Nakado, 19, was fired by Gaia. No reason were made public other than she broke a company rule. Well, that's ominous. <laughs> I'm willing to bet that it involved a man. Are, are we working under the assumption they had, if not the three nose, and something comparable to the three nose? Yeah, had to be. That's what I'm willing to bet. Yeah. Medusa talks about the three nose in her book. Well, she was there. She should know. Yes, and how it led to what she refers to as her only lesbian experience. <laughs> Did she say who it was with? Uh, she said it was with another wrestler who was very handsome, almost like a guy, was the way she put it. Hmm, I wonder who that was. And it is pretty interpromotional, so it's not like they have a big roster, but I don't want to get into too much speculation as far as that. I mean, she was peeved, though, that uh, after she, in her words, went to town on her colleague, that the other wrestler <laughs> did not reciprocate. <laughs> oh, oh, that's terrible. <laughs> in so many words, that is not nice. <laughs> terrible. Yeah, yeah, come on. It's only common courtesy. JWP held their second part of their double Masami 20th year anniversary deal on June 15th at Corcoran Hall as Masami and Jago Yakuda reformed their tag team for the first time in 13 years, beating Dynamite Kensai and Candy Okutsu. Yakuda was Masami's original wrestling trainer, even though both were the same age, 35. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that. <laughs> Alright, uh, results from the show. Kiri Suzuki over Sorry, Asumi. Tomoko Kazumi went to a 30-minute draw with Tomoko Miyaguchi. Plumariko and Bolshoi Kid beat Riko Amano and Mayumi Miyazaki. Hikari Fukuoka over Kanaka Matoya. And Jaguar Yakuta dubbed Masami over Dynamite Kansai and Kandyo Kutsu. And to truly make this uh, international, we go Eurasia. to Austria. Yeah. Eurasia. Go to Austria, CWA, Alavance. June 19th at the Who Market in Wien, Austria. We have Fit Finley over Christian Eckstein. Ulf Herman over Mark the Hunter by Countout. Cannonball Grizzly, Yo Baby, Yo Baby, Yo, over Rico de Cuba by Countout. Tony St. Clair over Rasta the Voodoo Man by disqualification. And Franz Schumann over Robbie Brookside. And our main event, Michael Kovac and Osama Nishimura over Eddie Steinblock and Powerhouse Neidhart. Jason Anderson. Yeah. All right, well, that's it for the first half of the show. It's halftime. So there's some great 1997 commercials we'll pick up to halftime where we'll talk about the Patreon. Well, the streaming services and all the other stuff we do. Then we'll come back where we have another Triple Mania show to talk about in Mexico, featuring Jason A. Roberts, of all people, and uh, Eric Bischoff, big meetings in Mexico. All that more after the break. Do you like shopping from home? Listening to people like her? That gold just sparkles. Hey! Snap out of it! Go to Franklin Mills. Over 200 stores where you can touch great stuff at actual 20 to 60% savings. Designer suits. And look, no 800 number to call. I can actually try these on before I buy them. Shopping's not a spectator sport. Go to Franklin Mills. Be quiet. 
Celebrate the grand reopening of Last Call from Neiman Marcus. Have you been to Franklin Mills this month? Just announced a limited time offer from your local Pontiac dealers. Get low 5.9% APR GMAC financing for up to 60 months on any new Sunfire, coupe, or convertible. You heard right. Low 5.9% financing for up to 60 months on any new Sunfire, coupe, GT, or convertible. Choose from a wide selection. Prices start as low as $12,559 with low 5.9% financing for up to 60 months. This is a limited time offer. So hurry to your Pontiac dealer today. Nope. Any last words? Nope. What do you want on your tombstone? Tombstone? Good idea. Let's have pizza. Time for Tombstone Mini Deep Dish Pizza. New one-of-a-kind buttery crust. Same to die for flavor. A little tombstone goes a long way. Just a little taste? Nope. Brands you know your pocket we always got something for the family at goals we know just how it should be that's more like it yeah that's more like it if the clean and streamlined look of bugle boy is the latest trend in men's fashion so is shopping at kohl's where you'll get bugle boy's famous name styles at kohl's famous low prices at kohl's, Perfect day for a sport ute. I'd put it in four-wheel drive high. Get those extra gear rotations going, huh? <laughs> but you could hit an incline. So you might want to do four-wheel low. Get that torque working for you? Oh, yeah. Of course, there's ice. High-low, two-wheel, four-wheel. What do you think? Think? You're in the Bravada. It's got smart track, automatically adjusting to changing road conditions. No buttons, no levers, no thinking required. So where's that lever, anyway? Bravada. It knows the road. When I see this stain, I see Fred. My klutzy brother dripped greasy pizza on my white carpet. Now what's going to get this out? Introducing 409 Carpet Cleaner with powerful grease cutters from 409. In fact, on this pizza stain, it beats the leading carpet cleaner. Bye-bye, <laughs> Fred. With new 409 Carpet Cleaner, stains are out of sight, out of mind. Live like a man. Steal the covers, big boy. Pump and sweat and lift. Grunt like a man. Do manly things. Grab a bottle of Mega Men Multivitamins from GNC. Down 41 ingredients in one tablet. Take those vitamins and minerals and herbs for all they're worth. Very manly. Mega Men Multivitamins, exclusively at General Nutrition Centers. GNC. Live well. Hope you enjoyed those great 1997 commercials. It'll be 50 to have time to send the show. We're going to begin talking about Patreon. Patreon.com slash Between the Sheets. And we've already started recording part two of our uh, look at Andrew and Masters WA, which will be coming out uh, in a couple of weeks. So, um, yes, we started in the 2002. And it's um, already a really interesting show. Um, we get to talk about the pay-per-view airing here. In the United States, we get some contradictions regarding uh, a few stories, of course, as we have a uh, newsletter people forgetting what they reported again. 
and we get an interview with Andrew McManus, uh, which is has a lot of interesting stuff in there. So, uh, yeah, should be quite the show. So if you haven't listened to part one yet, do that. Five dollars a month gets you access to that and all the other audio that we've done in our almost seven complete years of the Patreon. And um, yeah, you put that five dollars down, and then you'll be able to listen to part two when it comes out in a couple of weeks. So yeah, awesome uh, value for your buck there. Lots of audio we've done. So um, yeah, so five dollars gets you all that. Dollar month gets you access to the Discord things in this section, which we'll do in just a second. Twenty-five dollars that allows you to pick a show for the week. Now, I have two shows in mind, just in case the show that you may want us to do, maybe something we've already done in the past, or could be a week that somebody else already has picked for the future in the calendar. Uh, get one of us, ask us about that, see if uh, if this, you know we can help you out regarding that stuff, and uh, follow the protocol picture on website. Get to get the information to fix, uh, 30 day rules in effect, 10 year rules in effect, and uh, get, yeah, we can Wednesday to Tuesday on the timeline. So you do all that, and we get everything taken care of, and you should get your show on the air. $50 I said for a segment of the show, and 100 for the whole show. That's uh, if you choose, you don't have to, just part of the, the perk. Patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right, Big Scott, this week is our new and or returning patrons. Just one is we're hitting that time of the month. Uh, we In the middle of the month. Yes. yes. I'd like to thank Jeremy Fulbright. Jeremy, you get the full spotlight. The Fulbright, I guess, <laughs> Jeremy. So uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Jeremy, for being uh, part of our Patreon. And we thank all of you. All the patrons. The patrons have been there from the beginning. Ones left and came back. Ones that have... Left, not come back, but hopefully we'll come back again and join us. And uh, yeah, let's keep the Patreon thriving, folks. Patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right, Bix. Streaming services. Uh, some interesting shows taking place this week. I know last week we didn't have a whole hell of a lot going on, but uh, some interesting shows this week. So, uh, what you got? On, uh, let's start with uh, IWTV. What's going on with yes. IWTV? Well, you're thinking. Well, remember, we're talking about next week's shows. Last actual actual last week wasn't as crowded. This week, as we're recording this, that we plugged last week was crowded. It gets confusing. Um, well, no, I think that we have a lot of shows coming up for the week. I mean, we do next week too. But you know, the the weekend we're going to as we record that just took place once this is up. It has the prestige show. It has the action show. It has the dreamlight show. Yeah. But anyway, um, actually, before we get to the live streams, I saw this in the on-demand editions. I don't think this was live streamed. If it was, they didn't hype it much in advance. But uh, as we're recording this earlier this week, Fight Pro, F-I-G-H-T-T, why? I don't know. Um, They had a show that looks pretty interesting, which is why I'm mentioning it, they have a grappling division and a hybrid division. I don't know what these things mean. Uh, but it includes a few matches that look pretty interesting. Eli Isom against Cheeseburger. Colby Carino against Logan Easton LaRue. And a main event of Tony Deppin against uh, new Impact Wrestling creative team member Delirious. <laughs> yeah, how about that? Actually, wait a second. This must have been pre-taped and released. This must... <sighs> 
would this have been an empty arena thing? Because I don't think Deppin is back from the broken arm yet. But it says Tuesday, June 13th. So yeah, it's, I'm, I'm assuming this was something that was in the can that was released this week. Um, but that looks interesting. Also, I mean, it couldn't have been that long ago, though, if Colby's on it, because Colby's only started taking uh, dates again, or on him later. But interesting-looking show there. Then lots of stuff coming up on the live streams. Thursday at 8 is the latest Stan Styles Intergender Bonanza. Stan Styles. Yes. Uh, so, just mentioning that, not going to go, you know, that, no... Uh, Big names or anything, relatively speaking. Uh, uh, Stan Styles is defending his IG Bonanza Championship against Little Mean Kathleen. Oh, even though it's an intergender show, Mr. Ulala is taking on what appears to be another male wrestler. But it's whatever. It's Mr. Ulala, and I believe that's the ECWA one since it's a show in Jersey, presumably. Probably so. I would think so. Yes. Yes. I don't so, think they're flying West Coast, Mr. Lala, former guest of the show, into uh, into do that. I could no. be wrong, but I don't think they are. I think his promotion's still on IWTV, though, isn't it? Pow Pro? I'm sure it probably is. A lot of promotions on IWTV. Yes. So H2O has a show Saturday night as well at 80's turn. The Last Generation Deathmatch Tournament, which, I, if I remember... Okay, okay, yeah, the graphic says, the final students of Matt Tremont. So it's a deathmatch tournament that's basically uh, all of his last few classes of students uh, taking each other on, and the main event is uh, Tremont defending the IWTV title against Austin Luke. Which, I don't know if that's card subject to change, since at least as of this recording, I think Tremont's missing at least the weekend where we're recording this due to uh, being in the hospital from the puncture wound he suffered at the last show. But the tar- still got the tournament underneath. Well, not underneath, but you know what I mean. It's the main focus of the show. So there's that. Uh, NFW, Northern Federation of Wrestling, and Invictus are co-promoting for Northern Conquest on Sunday at 3 Eastern... And uh, they're not booking as many names as usual, but it does include uh, Ellis Taylor of Young, Dumb, and Broke. Uh, I'm forgetting names. All of a sudden, Jordan Oliver's table against Akira. And uh, that's it for IWTV this week, at least. So if you're not already a subscriber, use code BTSPOD when you sign up, and we will get a referral fee for each month you stay a paid subscriber. So that's independentwrestling.tv, code BTSPOD. Now on uh, Fight. Plus, three different GCW shows this weekend when this comes out. Uh, the first is their return to Chicago at Thalia Hall, which sounds like a person, not a place, but it's a venue. And that show includes Elio Del Vikingo versus Metalik, which would be a hell of a match. Play Christian defending the GCW title against Gringo Loco, Lufisto against Steph Delander. Bussy against uh, Sawyer Wreck and Joey Danella. Uh, Rene Yamashita and Los Mis- Los What am I saying? Los Macizos against... It says SG Rejects, so I'm guessing that's probably Mance Warner, Manders, and 
either John Wayne Murdoch or Reed Bentley, probably John Wayne Murdoch. Uh, Commander returning against Jordan Oliver, Nick Cage appearing in war. So, especially for that main event, should be interesting, especially since... had So, had Metalik worked with any AAA guys yet? Uh, he may have, I don't know. Okay. And in keeping track. Then, uh, they also, they returned to Huntsville uh, next weekend. I'm unofficially part of the uh, Conrad Top Guy weekend that he's doing at Ed Free Shows. Includes Blake Christian defending against Adam Priest, Effie versus Rene Amashita, Sawyer Wreck versus John Wade Murdoch, Joey Janela versus another friend of the show, and Tank. Yeah, that'd be a match. <laughs> yeah. Paul Radrick versus Hunter Drake and more. Uh, I, no, no, no Reverend uh, Dan Wilson in the, fo- in the promo image, so I don't know if he's on the show. <laughs> he may be busy. Yes. And then on Sunday, uh, where in Alabama is this one? Yeah, in Florence, Alabama, they're doing GCW versus New South uh, Part 2. Featuring GCW regulars against New South regulars. You know what's uh, the funny thing about them being in Florence? Mm. You know what the name of the county is that Florence is in in Alabama? I have no idea. Lauderdale County. da 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 Lauderdale County Coliseum. That's where uh, Russell was held for many years in Florence. Huh. Yeah. Oh. Oh wait. So is this okay? So this is not on Fight Plus. I thought it said it was, but I, you know what? Let's talk about this anyway because I think this is the first time they've done this. Uh, I pay per view on Fight since Thorvar works for both coming up this coming weekend on twenty fourth is. Saturday, 7.30 p.m. Eastern, Double Double C, 50th anniversary. Well, that should be interesting. Live. Spanish commentary, nothing in English. It doesn't... Well, I would... Yeah. Let me pop this into DeepL to see uh, what this full... Pop pop it into what? (laughs) You haven't used DeepL? It's the best uh, translator thing? I don't even know what you're talking about. Never heard of it. DeepL.com. It's the best of the machine translation things these days. <laughs> never, never heard of it. Uh, so 50th anniversary. Uh, Ray Gonzalez, Mr. Ray Tings is going to be there taking on Eddie Cologne, among other things. Oh, Chicky Star is going to be involved. So. Definitely a double double C show. So tinyurl.com slash BTS fight, that's F I T E, to sign up or order pay per view or whatever. Tinyurl.com slash BTS fight, F I T E. So that's that. I'm looking at something here. That's why. Okay. You missed a show. On which service? ITV Plus. Okay, what? AIW is doing a show on June 23rd. Are you sure that's not a re... That's not a, an archive show they're adding? Because I thought I checked. Friday, June 23rd, 7.30 p.m. at the Temple Live Asylum Room in Cleveland. We got, uh... Oh, I apologize Ma- to our friends. Matches announced the Barbarian against Kaplan. That's the <laughs> match. Uh, Derek Dillinger... 
and Wes Barkley will have mystery partners in a dream partner tag match. Uh, we got Becca versus Ziki Haim. Who's Ziki? Would you ever win? Katie Arquette and Jocelyn Navarro. Uh, I think that's the only matches announced. But uh, I'm looking to see. Uh, let's see if Paul London's going to be there. Uh, Matt Warner is going to be there. Uh, Devon Dudley's doing a meet and greet. Um, who else is going to be there? It's not matches yet. Announced to Infinity Beyond, Chisha Khan Delaney. Oh, okay. So, Are you looking at the AIW Twitter? Because I'm looking at the fight schedule. Yes, I'm looking at AIW Yeah, I was, I'm going by the fight schedule. That's why. It's not listed on the fight schedule yet for whatever reason. <laughs> is this Fight TV Plus on here? So I could be, I mean, maybe it will air. I don't know. I mean, it but probably it's, will. It's, I just think Fight is not good at these things. So, uh, yeah, I don't want to slight my dear friends at Absolute Intense Wrestling. No, of course so, not. So there you go. So there's another show Fight TV uh, will be involved with. So oh, hopefully. and uh, if you're going in person, a meet and greet with Devon Dudley. Yep, I said it. Okay. I did, so, did not notice that for some reason, and I was paying attention. So there you go. All right, so let's talk about uh, another... Dear sponsor, today's episode of private, private today's episode between the sheets sponsored by Private Internet Access, America's number one virtual private network. You're using incognito mode. You're in a source of honor storing your browsing data, and meantime, even selling it. But Private Internet Access can help. Private Internet Access encrypts and routes your internet traffic through one of its own servers, hiding your data from your in source provider or network administrator. With servers in over 75 different countries, you can get G. Unrestricted access to geoblock content from around the world. Private Internet Access comes easy to use apps and browser extensions for all devices, a rock solid privacy policy, open source security, advanced customization settings, and it was just ranked the fastest VPN in the world by PC Mac. If you sign on Private Internet Access right now, you can take advantage of a special deal only for Between the Sheets listeners. And this is what we offer you. We've got three packages. You can go with your regular monthly package at $11.95 a month. We can just go monthly. You can do a yearly package at $3.33 a month or $39.95 a year. Or the best deal, three years plus four free months, a dollar a month, 83% off, $79 for the first three years, yearly thereafter. The best deal on the market. Why is that? Because it's so much more expensive than virtually ever the VPN on the market. If you get it right now, you take advantage of private internet access 30 day risk free challenge. Try it for 30 days, see if you like it. If not, just turn it for a full refund. So you get that in US, when you go to privateinternetaccess.com slash between the sheets and try out the best damn VPN on the planet completely risk free. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Ne- next week on Between the Sheets, we're going to go to 2012. Yes, we had a lot of demand lately for newer shows. And uh, if we do a new show, we try to, you know, have a guest that will uh, cooperate with that type of show. And, uh, yeah, we'll talk about that in just a second. But first off, uh, non-guest-related parts of this show, WWE. We got a lot of little uh, tidbits on the network. What's the future of WWE Network? We got some people coming and going in WWE, and why is that? 
We got uh, the television. We'll talk about that. Raw and SmackDown. All kind of wacky stuff going on there. John Cena's 300 Make a Wish. We got uh, all kind of familiar names, including that CM Punk guy. He's on there. Kane and Daniel Bryan feeding with each other. So uh, we got a new TV show in WWE. And we got news on Linda McMahon's uh, election uh, situation. And uh, Jeremy Devitt's not happy. So we'll talk about that. We got the first episode of NXT. The NXT as we know it. That's right. So we'll talk about that. We got uh, Ric Flair having problems with one of his wives. We got um, some indie stuff. Uh, Shikara. Actually, talk about Shikara on the show as they have a show in Canada in Syracuse. Tournament of Death in CCW. We'll talk about that. We got international stuff. Uh, total nonstop action. TNA. The debut of Claire Lynch. Yeah. So we'll have that whole situation. And uh, all kind of stuff from Impact and wackiness in TNA as usual, including they have a baseball show that week in Buffalo. Buffalo, hello. So we'll talk about that. And we have a Ring of Honor pay-per-view to talk about from the Hammerstein Ballroom, which is not Border Wars, even though Dave's called it Border Wars. Yeah, Dave's <laughs> calling a show in Manhattan Border Wars. I think there might have been a Border Wars that weekend, but no, it's Best in the World 2012. <laughs> There was not. It's Best in World 2012. And uh, we have Adam Cole against Kyle O'Reilly on that show. We got uh, Kevin Steen and Davey Richards in the main event. We got Jim Cornette stuff. We have stuff involving Steve Carino, which means we have a guest. Well, that's not why we have a guest. The reason we have the guest no. is that he likes talking about Ring of Honor in this era. And he's at the show anyway, because our first time guest on for that segment is Colby Carino. <laughs> yes. So Colby will be joining us next week to talk about uh, Ring of Honor in a, in a period which he uh, holds dear to his heart. And well, his father was a key part of it. So we'll talk about that next week. And uh, yes, Steve, uh, Steve Carino has a lot of interesting uh, things to say about Jim Cornette on that show, which I'm sure a lot of you people will uh, fall in line with. So uh, all that more next week. On between the sheets, yes. And uh, Kobe will be on just for that one segment, but we're uh, pumped to have him on. So uh, there you go. All right, you can follow us on Twitter. Follow me at Chris Zellner, K-R-I-S-Z-E-L-N-E-R. Show proper BT Sheets Pod. Bix at David Bix. And um, Dark Side of the Ring, uh, the show episode that aired on uh, Wednesday as we record this was on the grams eddie and mike graham breaking the cycle show heavily featured around uh mike's daughter nicole and it's a very heavy show yes but the thing you could come away with is nicole gossett is an amazing woman absolutely amazing amazing woman i mean of all the dark side of the ring episodes i've watched and i've watched almost all of them She's maybe the most compelling person I've seen on any of those shows. I can see that. I mean, she's just a, a just amazing person. Just to, to deal with what she had dealt with, losing her father, her grandfather, her father, and her brother. And she so the, unfortunately found her brother too. Yeah, found her brother too. You know, 
just in just you know just you know insane stuff for somebody to deal with but her her mentality her attitude and her strength is just phenomenal I mean, just and like I said, amazing. I can't, it's the only word I can think about used for her. It's amazing, and uh, and the story's on there, man. I mean, just oh, you know. I mean, you get the glimpse of what Florida was about, the territory. You get the glimpse of what Eddie was like, sober and drunk, um, and Mike too, and 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 they do spend a decent amount of time on Nicole's brother. You know, who never was in the business. I mean, for an hour show, I think they hit a perfect balance of everything. Um, one of the things on that show that intrigued me the most was Don Curtis's wife. Dottie Curtis, yes. Dottie Curtis, which, you know, Eddie and Don went way back, but they never, and I understand probably why they didn't do this. They didn't get into why <laughs> there was a split there between Eddie and Don, which Don would would leave and form an outlaw promotion to Eddie for a short time in 1981. But yeah, just a tremendous episode of Dark Side of the Ring. One of my favorites they've ever done. Yeah. One thing, I mean, you couldn't get into all that with the runtime, but because I, I get why they opened the door with Dr. Jerry Graham and his mental health issues because it was the catalyst for the split up, split of the team with Eddie. But, I mean, if you really think about it, like, I mean, Luke less so, even though it was his gimmick, but, like, otherwise, I mean, even though none of them are related, like, I mean, look at the issues that Superstar Billy Graham had, mental health-wise, that he was open about, that, at least in terms of talking about it, other guys were not in that era, you know? It's like, it's this weird undercurrent running through the whole fake family in a weird way. Uh-huh. Well, here's another thing too. Here's another thing too that I, you know, that Doctor Jerry Graham stuff did. It opened the door, I think, for them to do an episode on him. And they probably could, because there are enough people that know him, like from the LA scene later on and stuff. That well, you got people still alive from that. I mean, I mean, you could, whoever. I mean, it's just whoever's willing to talk. But there are people still around from that era that you know, could do stuff yeah. still. And, you know, with this episode on the gossets, I think one thing that was very clear was that this is one of those episodes where they got all of the right people you would want to hear from in that episode. Kevin Sullivan, Brian Blair. I I am kind of surprised they didn't have Jimmy Garvin. But I get it because Jimmy was all on the last one. But Cornette's on every one of them. But, but he's kind of there as like the historian. Right. But Jimmy Garvin probably should have been a talking head on that episode. Why Jimmy? Because Jimmy, I mean, Jimmy grew up with Mike. I mean, I mean that's the reason why he got in the business. That's right. Because I forgot of, about that. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot there. I mean, I mean Jim, one, Jimmy went back with Mike more, more than, I mean, longer than Kevin. And longer, longer than Hearn. Who? And Lauren and Brian, yeah, Kern was around. Kern's another guy who could, who could have been on there, but I get not have one to have too many talking heads. Right. Yes, I agree. Um, and one thing I thought was super interesting too was, and I didn't really expect this, particularly from Kevin, was 
just how much even now, you know, 40, 50 years later, Kevin Sullivan and Brian Blair were shaken by the things Eddie ordered them to do, whether to fans or marks or whatever you want to say, in the snake pit, so to speak, you know, when there was no show going on at the Sportatorium, or to job guys that he wanted them to rough up or whatever. Um, yeah. Like, you could... I mean, you could really tell they... I mean, they were saying it, but you could tell just from the way they were talking that... I mean, Kevin called it the his big... I forget if he said it's biggest regret in life. I think he said his biggest regret in the wrestling business was doing that stuff. Yeah. Um, That was interesting. You know, just overall, just a very fair treatment of everything. I, the... I, I've seen people be critical of not talking about the land deal that's largely credited as the catalyst for Eddie spiraling. But the episode also makes it very clear that these were pre-existing issues for him. So it's something where it's probably better there to, if it, there was at least some discussion of it. I think, I think, I think they... But I also get not I, wanting to ascribe a specific thing happening well, that drove him to that. I think that they didn't want to get too far into what could possibly be conceived as a conspiracy theory on, on Eddie, too, that, that's always going around, that Eddie was a murderer. Eddie was murdered. Well, uh, uh, not to get, I won't get to the graphic part of it, but the reason there's a conspiracy theory is because as... Dottie Curtis mentions in the episode, he managed to shoot himself twice. Yeah. So. I mean, so th- th- there's, there's all kind of other stuff going around about that, but, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think, I think they, they, they want the line on things, especially like, um, you know, how much an effect that Dusty Levin had on him. You know, and but they, I mean, the thing is, you know, and I understand why they didn't mention it, but I mean, the thing is, when when after Eddie's suicide, I mean, there was that thought that Dusty was going to come back, and that Dusty changed his mind. I think we've talked about it on an eight on the show. We did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was the scuttlebutt that he was going to come back to Florida and run the territory, but they, he changed his mind, and obviously he he did the right decision. Yes. But, uh, it does make you wonder, though, why they didn't go to any Eddie disciples to book sooner. Because, I mean, until until Kevin Sullivan comes in, none of the bookers that year are guys he mentored. Well, okay, so you, you look at 80, you look at the Dusty Leaves, okay? You get um, Dory Flint Jr., and Buck Robley. Uh, I think Buck was first. Or Dory, Dory may have been first. Dory was first. Buck was after Dory. Alright. Not 80 Grand Disciples, although Dory had been there you know, off and on forever. Um, then you could, you follow that up with Dutch. Dutch Mantel, who had worked Florida in the 70s, undercard guy, but still not an 80 Grand guy. No, and he was specifically brought in to have a different kind of booking voice. Yeah, and he and, yeah, and he brought he come in, and that's why Eddie was there. Eddie was in charge, right? Eddie was still the boss, so Eddie brought these guys in, you know. And 
the book. I mean, the, uh, Dutch and Michael Hayes are booking. You know, when 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 they commit suicide, and then when my oh, taste was... control, well, when my taste control, that's what that's the end of Dutch and Michael Hayes, yeah. and that's when Wahoo comes in. And Wahoo had, you know, been a star in Florida at different times, but he wasn't an Eddie disciple. He had booked. He booked in Southwest and was very successful. Right. But he wasn't an Eddie disciple. Right. It's not a Dusty, J.J., Kevin Sullivan, Gary Hart, you know, yeah, Kevin Sullivan, I mean, Kevin Sullivan and Bob Root come in, you know, to replace Wahoo in, at the end of 85 and early 86. But by that point in time, the territory went down. They kind of, you know, have a little spell where they get it back up. And then Rube takes over as the full-time booker, and that's when he he's the one that basically kills the territory. Rube because he's the booker in 86 when the ter- when the shows are just so bad. Yes. But you look at the Grand Disciples, I mean, like you said, I name them off. Where the, I mean, so okay, Dusty's so a Crockett. Time I had Dusty, Watts. Wait, wait, that's self-explanatory. Uh, Gary Hart. Gary Hart is in Dallas. Kevin Sullivan. Kevin Sullivan, I mean, had just left. Yeah. Just left Florida. J.J.'s in Crockett with Dusty. J.J.'s in Crockett with Dusty. Is there anyone else I'm forgetting? Uh, I feel like I'm forgetting, like, one or two people that are considered, like, kind of... Even if they don't like to put it that way, people that were considered mentored by Eddie. I mean, I'm really the, the really you know the guy that they should have gotten, but he was just so done with the business. Jack Briscoe. Yeah. Had he booked anywhere? <laughs> I mean, the Briscoes had Briscoes. I don't know. That, I would say they ever booked, but. They had, you know, ownership points and stuff, so they definitely had, you know, creative opinions, I'm sure, at times. But I would have, I mean, Jack would have been the perfect guy, but he just, he was so done with the business by that point in time. He was disgusted. But, but anyway, I mean, it's just a fantastic episode of the show. So I definitely... Definitely suggest going out of your way to watch that and watch the dark side, uh, not dark side, watch Tales from the Territories on Florida too, as well to uh, as a, as a, like a uh, perfect companion piece. Yes, it gives you a good that. feel for the territory. I mean, honestly, in terms of giving a feel for the way the territory was and what made it different, I think that's the best Tales from the Territories episode. Yeah, it's a fantastic show. So, so yeah, I mean. There's all that. And next week is uh, Matt Bourne. Yes. <laughs> Which that'll be a different show in its own way from the preview. So uh, that'll be a definitely a must see show. Yes. They got Matt's daughter on there. And uh, yeah, it's going to be an interesting show. Yeah, I'm very curious of how much they delve into all the separate things, whether it's at his sister's marriage to Buddy Rose and then Matt's own stuff. With the... I, think that, I think they'll definitely get into the Buddy Rose thing, but one thing I'm, I'm, I don't know if they'll get into is stuff with George, in Georgia. I feel like you have to. I, you, you, I, well, I just don't know. Do we know who's interviewed in that one? I didn't see the preview yet. 
uh, Duggan, which makes sense because he was with Mimit South. And, and they uh, yeah. had their issues, yes. Um, Did they get on? Matt's daughter. Matt's daughter. Um, there were other people, too, that I didn't recognize. I think one of them may have been one of his wives. Uh, I don't see the preview on YouTube. But anyway, yeah, that should be an interesting one. I feel like you. Ha- I mean, if you have people to talk about, I feel like you have to talk about the Georgia thing, which is technically the Ohio thing. But yes, the kidnapping charges and all that. Yeah. So. Yeah. So we'll see how it goes on the dark side of the ring, and uh, and yeah. So. Well, I'm I'm sure this time on, on this section next week we'll uh, eventually address the big CM Punk elephant in the room. We're just not doing it right now. You mean we're waiting you, to see well, how, like uh, the, And also, as we're recording this, the ESPN interview uh, article, whatever that Mark Ramundi did with him, has not come out yet. But I'm just waiting to see how. I mean, we're waiting to see how collision goes. So there you go. All right. Well, on that note, let's get back to the rest of the show. All right, let's go to Mexico now, and we go to AAA, and there's a Triple Mania show. What a shock. What's this, the f- at least three shows in a row we've had Triple Mania, maybe four. So, uh, Triple Mania sweet spot season for Between the Sheets. The June 15th Triple Mania show from El Torreo, Cuatro Caminos, and Nacopan drew between 10 and 14,000 fans, depending upon the estimate for the best AAA crowd of the year so far. Now, we're here on television. This week is saw. Uh, Octagoncito and Mini Cibernetico team up with Chivitas Rayada over Pentagoncito, Mini Mankind, and Mini Gold Dust. Los Vipers, Hysteria, Maniaco, and Mosco de la Merced over Los Chivas Rayadas 1 and 2 in Venom by disqualification. And a match with tons of great flying moves, including space flying tiger drops all over the place. And Mosco debuting a Scorpio splash turned into a drop kick, if you can believe that. With him, I can. Abismo Negro, Carneo, Paraguayo Jr., and Mexicano beat Picudo, Mayflowers, Crazy 33, and Espectro Jr. Jerry Estrada missed the match as his arm was in a sling, but he did run in afterwards and attack Perito, but the Tedicos beat him up for the save. In a nothing match, Blue Demon Jr. teamed up with Tinebles and Tinebles Jr. to beat Pentagon, Scarecrow, and The Killer in a double juice street fight match where they brought all over the building. Sangre Chicana be heavy metal by disqualification. Tarantas plays strong rude ref to the point where he was pulling heavy off Chicana and holding him so Chicana would gain the advantage. Perito ran out with a guitar and gave him the heavy who used it on Tarantes. And Heavy's father, Pepe Casas, came out the referee, but DQ'd Heavy for using the guitar on Tarantes. Ah. After the match of two, he shoot Caballero, Coach Caballero matches, and each acceptance of that match should be coming soon. There are three other matches on the show, which will likely air next week on television. In a cage match with the mask at stake, Los Payasos beat Mascara Sagrada Jr., La Calaca, and Submuñeco. Calaca suffered the Parker Jr., who was injured in an auto accident a week earlier. Calaca lost the match. It was the best, revealing Sanguinario. Real name Luis Alberto Medina, who was Latin lover's old rival Monterrey. In a match that determined the champion of champions, Latin lover beat Petoff. Petoff losing the match to the main factor caused him to jump as he originally was supposed to win the match, but Latin Lover complained and the finish was changed. During the match, Latin suffered an elbow injury that required surgery to be out of match for two months. 
The other match saw Pedro Aguayo Sr., Octagon Caneca Supernetico going against Jake the Snake Roberts, Gorgeous George III, Gobardi Jr., who for the past few years won the Piazza, so got third Piazza, and Fuzzle Godata. But we didn't have results as a press time. Well, we do here. Wait, Gorgeous George III? That's right. The Stroh? Okay. Rob Kellum. Uh, all the results we had, and uh, the Technicals won that match. Okay. Um, so, okay, so where do we start here? Um, Kalaka, for those who don't know, is uh, basically evil Laparka. But, he but he's replacing Laparka on Junior on the team here. Well, no, it's not. It's a cage elimination mask match. Right? Oh, that's right. Sorry, sorry. Yes. I, I I had the same confusion as you for a second because I'm like, well, wait a second. Why is he replacing a Technico? Um, yeah, good worker. Died tragically young, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. Better, better known and probably best known to people who would be listening to this show probably as Mascara Maligna. Yeah. Well, and also these days would be known as uh, Gino Medina's father. There you go. And as far as the rest, I mean, it's 1997 AAA. It's not great. No. A minis match sounds a lot of fun, like a lot of fun, and the you know and the Vipers match, but this show doesn't sound great. They're an ancient time in their history. They have lost a lot of their top talent. And they're having to try new people and uh, see what happens. So, and they had another TV uh, taping on the 20th. And Anatoyo uh, General Jose Maria Atiega and Cuadrataro. Century dos Mil flying and kickboxer beat Rocco Valente, Tony Arce, and Volcano. Destructores. Hysteria, La Calaca, Loco Valentino, Maniaco, beat Discovery, Leon Negro, Luxor, and Supernova by disqualification. And the Supernova is Miki Segura. Miki Suicida. Rubizo Negro, Perito, and Cranio over Moscow, Fosgarada, and Ice Killer by disqualification. And Cobarde, The Killer, and Sangre Chicana over Connect, Cibernetico, and Tenebles in your main event. For those who are not familiar with him, uh, Ice Keeler is not in, is not a gimp. He's a, a hockey player. Yeah, he's the enforcer. Yeah, he's like a hockey goon. So there's Triple A. Now, CMLL, let's imagine he's regarding Eric Bischoff's playing trip to visit Paco Alonso and the political repercussions. As well known, WF has also had talks with Paco Alonso through Victor Quinones. Bischoff, who has talked eternally about doing a Frequent monthly Lucha Libre pay-per-view starting as early as late this year needs to add luchadors to the roster. Paco talked on the local press about being able to get 15 of his wrestlers on the contract at WCW, which has cost strife with promo Azteca, who their wrestlers are on the contract since Mexico, since in Mexico they have rival offices. In addition, it dilutes the control Conan has over the Lucha product. The other internal story, how it relates here, is that Azteca has been very aggressive late when it comes to rating talent, but Bischoff wants these two groups to work together and do a promotion versus promotion in England, Mexico. That'll be the focus of their pay-per-view shows. And they're a big theater in Mexico as well. At the same time, 
It says here at the time, same. Silver King and Netahano have jumped. Silver King for the second time. Apparently happened that Silver King was supposed to work in WCW again, but Paco told WCW he had Silver King on the contract. And it's not Silver King working Boston without his knowledge. Silver King claimed he didn't have a contract. Very few similar wrestlers on the contract, which is why rating is nearly as difficult as it would be in the United States or Japan. And quit similar to join from a second response. Man, the second time he's made the jump in two weeks. Due to Bischoff's attempts to make a truce between the groups, Promise got Silver King returned to CMLL, but this week it appears truce is gone again, with King and his uncle coming in. Rumors of other top CMLL stars are ready to quit the promotion as well. Technically speaking, King and Tejano announced in the press they were free agents and had left CMLL, so when they go to Azteca, it is that they were raided. But is it to a free agent signing a new deal? Vinny Quinone is also recruiting wrestlers on WF contracts, although we haven't heard any names officially signed. <laughs> Bischoff just doesn't know what he's dealing with with this uh, situation here. No, he does not. This isn't the U.S. I mean, you got a lot of bad blood and heat between Conan and Paco Alonso, and yeah, monthly lucha pay per views, Bix. Okay. When, that would have been something. What would that have been like? I'm I already don't know. doing monthly pay-per-view. Yeah, I'm curious to see how they would have done that. I, I'm going to guess they wouldn't have been live. Probably not. Probably not. Um, I w- I'm wondering maybe if it would be like a DirecTV exclusive or I'm, I don't know. That's a weird one. Obviously, never happens. No. Couldn't happen. So, yeah, that's an interesting bit there. But <laughs> Silver King, I quit. I quit again. <laughs> I mean, I, I I get I get why he's upset, but I mean, but this is just the stuff that the lucha scene in Mexico was like for so many years, and still to this day, even it is like you know. Those girls just stay a long time down there, long time for some people. Yeah. But anyway, it is fun. I mean, think about that. Think about how deep the Conan Paco Alonso thing is. Paco was one of the world with Antonio Pena. Over Conan. <laughs> that tells you something right there. All right. Uh, Rena Call Sale on the 17th, Tuesday well, show. Real quick, why do you think he made that distinction? Because he felt he. Because he felt Conan owed more to him because he felt he was the one who made him a star? I think Televisa had more to do with that than anything else. That was a Televisa thing for Padrissimo. No, 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 but I mean, I get, but still, if you're arguing he was willing to work with Pena more than Conan, do you, I'll put it this way, if Conan was still in AAA, do you think he would have been willing to do Padrissimo? Yeah. So is there really a distinction being made there? That's what I was trying to get at. Um, uh, well, I'm thinking. What I'm thinking is that Conan. 
I think that's a that's a Televisa thing. Like I said, Televisa thing is a difference. But he was willing, willing to work with AAA. If Conan's there, I mean, Conan didn't have to be involved in the show. That that may have been a caveat. You know? Yeah. I don't know. All right, Tuesday, Renthal, on the 17th. Kung Fu Junior and Pegaso, when he gets Cafre at Supremo Dos. Ciclocito Ramirez and Ultimo Dragacito, when he gets Damiacito Guerrero, the future virus in Shutacito. Filoso, Flash, and Olympus, when he gets Fiero, Kundra, and Mr. Rafaga. Atlantico, Olimpico, and Subasa, when he gets Amerigo Rocco, Damiano Guerrero, and Reyes Fayos. Antar, Astoria Jr., and Rego Mendoza, when he gets Io de Gladiador, Guerrero de la Muerte, and Mano Negra. Black Warrior, Rebel Pinero, Astanico, when he gets La Fiera, Mr. Niebla, and Tejano. And it's Shocker retaining the NBA language title, beating Emilio Chavez Jr. by disqualification. That's what Emilio got caught fouling Shocker. He felt like it was not, he was not a low blow. So there's the 17th. June 20th. Remake was headlined by Felino, Negro Costa, Notable Dragon, beating Ildo Santo, Databanda Jr., and Emilio Chavez Jr. in a good match. Best of Savahi was a ringside arguing with Casas. Super crowd here for Santo, particularly with Felino, even more than Casas. And Santo did get noticeable cheers unlike months ago when he was almost totally booed. In the third fall, Santo would deliver a tope on Casas and stayed his Savahi to the big climax. In the ring, Dragon Pin Wagner with the Rana to the Hurkarana called the Spinning Hurkarana off the top. To the, uh, the Dragon Steiner, as it's been called, so as not to confuse it with the Dragon, Dragon, Dragon Rana. Yes. All right. Uh, I like Rande, the Durango and Brandon, or Dr. Borman Jr. and Ringo Latino. And Mr. Aguirre Solar 2. And Osman Jr. over Chicago Express, Credo de Futuro, and Moguer. Then we have Pepe Aguayo, Solar number one, and Takamichinoku. Meaning Arcano de la Muerte, Oco Negro, and Violencia. Apollo Dantes, Kevin Quinn, and Steele. Yes, the future Val Venus. Uh, Brazo de Oro, Dos Caras, and Shulker. And then Felino, Negra Castellanos, Madragón, Dato Jr., Ida Santo, and Emilio Charles Jr. Now, the booking plans to build the biggest show of the year on September 19th, 19th the anniversarial show, with a Santo Felino mass match in the main event, which should draw huge. And that was not the match. <laughs> no, that didn't end up happening. Yeah, uh, this is all setting up Santo, Santo's uh, turn, like back Tenico, and the match that was on top was Santo against Negro Casas in the Mascara Contra Caballero match. Aha. That's where Casas got his head shaved. Negro Casas losing a hair match. Jeez. But Santo, uh, the turn is imminent. So it's coming. Wait, wait which turn? Batetenico. Okay, that's what I thought. I wanted to make sure. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, Batetenico. He's already, yeah, already turned But that's not him. until after the... the Anniversario, yeah. 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 Ultraman Jr. beat Piero this past week in a Moscow Contra Moscow match, revealing him as Mario Prado Jr. Black Warrior returned from Japan and returned on June 6th, 17th Calceo. They're still talking him going to Pro Mazteca, but that talk has been going on for months now. He does, but briefly. Yes. Right, IWRG, early IWRG show at Rainbow Capone on June 15th. 
We have Power Blanco and Power, power Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, the Power Shalom. Uh, women against Picasso and Sardo. Los Arroyos Tapatillos, one and two. Women against Gio and Neo. Bestia Rubia, Fantasy, and Shima Nobunaga. Women against Bombero and Fanal, Manyakup and Sumo Dandy Fuji. Circus, El Cuervo, and Solcero. Women against Dr. Cerebro, El Sino, and Judo Sua. And then our main event was to be honest, three, four, and five against Andy Barro, Chicano Power Jr., and Universal Dos Mil. Huh. So, yeah, so we've our got... Torimon guys. Yeah. Well, at this point, is the word, is the name Torimon even in play, or is it just Ultimo Dragon Jim? Ultimo Dragon Jim. Yeah. I, I still can't stop thinking, though, about the tag team in the opener of White Power and Shalom Power. <laughs> so you don't really mix uh, historically. <laughs> <laughs> no, they don't, Pix. That's quite the tag team. They, they put together their they put their differences aside, Pix, in a common battle. Oh, here. maybe it was uh, the abortionist and Cletus the fetus under the masks. They had an <laughs> unconventional alliance too. Yeah. Maybe it's one. Maybe Power Shalom was one of those Crown Heights. Uh, yeah, you know, the, you know, the, the situation crown highs from the early nineties. Well, oh, oh, because there were racial tensions. Then, yeah, I, I still don't think uh, the crown heights Hasidim would be on the side of uh, Power Blanco. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> what a team! Talk about your odd couple. Alright, uh, Promo Azteca. Besides Silver King and Tejana, who would be Rudos, also jumping this past week was Perov, the former Rudo AAA, who debuted on June 20th in Cuernavaca doing a run-in. The current booking plan is to make this similar to WCW New Japan, with the different factions that will be given names. One faction will consist of Silver King, Dandy, Perov, Sakos, and Huvi. Tejana will be put in a group with Bupanter, and if he just that warrior... One other would be Conan at the Garza, La Parca, Il de Luz Market. Another would be Los Vianos, Halloween, and Damian. Faction Warfare and Promesteca. All right, our results here. At Arena Isabel de Cuernavaca, May 20th. Excuse me, June 20th. Baron Sinestro 1 and Baron Sinestro 2 beat Anubis and Starbuck. Brazo, Cibernetico, and Sky Day beat Colt and Rocky Santana by disqualification. Antifaz, Del Norte, La Mascara, and Sosero beat Damian Ccc's Jurassico, and Zapatista. El Brazo, El Gitano, and Pantera beat Humzu Guerrera, Pantera de Ring, and Sacosis by disqualification. Hector Garza, Conan, and Mascara Sagrada beat Brubante, Ciancanas, and El Dandy. Then we get a show that's labeled as a CML Promo Azteca combined show here on June 17 at Arena Aficion de Pachuca. We have Flor Metallica, Lady Apache over La Diabolica and Pantera Serena. Avianos, 3, 4, and 5 over the Brazos. Oro, Plata, and Brazo. Mascarilla Sagrada beat Perafito in a decision match for the WWE Minis title. And in this match, Atlantis, Santo, La Parca, it all teamed up. 
to be Negro Casas, Sagrado, and Viana Tercero, where Viana Tercero and Sagrado replaced Dr. Weather Jr. Silver King. Well, that would have been a hell of a match if Dr. Weather Jr. Silver King were teaming with Casas against Atlantis, Santo, and Parca at this yep. time. But there you go. So there is some peace among some of the wrestlers in these offices that work in the. The sister's probably just a spot show, you know, which had different people on it. Right. So, but the point is, we don't have. Papa Sion would do that. Yeah. But we don't have the more modern style CMLL restrictions where you can't be on indie shows with talent from uh, the band list or whatever. Yeah. It, it's only an issue with AAA talent at this point. Oh, absolutely, yeah. All right, we got a little Puerto Rico bit here the, before we close the segment. Sabio Vegas WWA has officially closed down. Moving for a new television station and appears to have a new backer if he gets it to reopen. Okay, so I don't think we've talked about Double Double A much on here. All I really know about it is that I guess it was Sabio's thing, even though he's full time with the WWF. And that it's the promotion that, like, when you hear the stories of WWF wrestlers working in Puerto Rico in this era, it was for WWA, including the, you know, the whole story with Undertaker getting the bad staff infection and all that. So, like, what what is the deal with the double-double-A? I mean, there's a thing that Savio was doing on his own. But he couldn't do it on his own no more, and that's when he got back. Eventually, got backers, and that's when IWA got going. Well, Victor was involved, you know, with that more too. But was Victor involved in WWA? That Double Double A, or I don't think so. Well, when was Victor done with Double Double C in the first place? I, well, he's in Japan mainly a lot at this point. Well, that's point. what I was I mean, about to say. He started Mexico. focusing on Japan and Mexico. In Mexico business, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, that's that's what's going on there. But yeah, Savio, you know, eventually would get back on his feet again with with uh, IWA. So there you go. Spiritual predecessor, I guess. Yes. With the w- WWF uh, deal and everything. Yes. All right, let's go to the indie scene now. Let's start with NWA New Jersey. They ran a show in Vineland, New Jersey, or Vin- it is Vineland, not Vinland. It is Vineland. Right? Vineland. Yes. Okay, making sure. June fourteenth at the high school, we have Rocco Dorsey over Doink the Clown. Which one? Uh, no Tom Brady in this show, so it may not be him. Don Montoya over Mister Puerto Rico. Rick Ratchet over the Nutty Dentist. Oh, gee, I wonder who that's uh, poking fun at. <laughs> Tweet your marriage over Rich Scarpa. Okay. Nishwa Bedland over Doug Gilbert. Reckless Youth won the North American Heavyweight title from Ace Darling. The Misfits, Harley Lewis and Derek Domino, uh, won the United States Tag Titles from the Beach Bullies, Inferno Kid and Ray Odyssey. Not uh, Alex Porto and Sean Summers. No, and in Dan Severantine, NBA, we're never thought of being Devin Storm. That's a show with wrestlers on it. Yeah. It is a Corluzo show, I'll tell you that. You've got Nutty Dentist. The Nutty Dentist. Of course we do. (laughs) 
uh, and Extreme Championship Wrestling. They had some shows over the weekend. Warwick, Pennsylvania, on June 14th. In front of 350 fans, saw Sabu and Rob Van Dam beat Taz and Chris Candido when Sabu leg dropped Todd Gordon through a table. Hmm. And Taz ended up chucking out the damage control women, which got surprising surprise little crowd reactions. Usually, he's as big as pop in ECW is to beat up a woman. <laughs> oh. Hey, that's Dave. I mean, he's not wrong either. Uh, no. Rick Rude did a deal with Francine, which led to Shane, du- Shane, Shane Douglas. Shane Douglas and Francine Heat. Bam Bam Bigelow's advertised, but didn't appear, and there were some complaints about that. Turn Dreamer versus Louis Spicoli didn't happen because Dreamer didn't get back in Memphis on time. And though Louis Spicoli was there, Heyman was going to have him work the show. Eliminator scared tactiles, basically handicap match with Cronus being the FBI. Perry Saturn has his knee surgery on June the 10th and was considered successful. The doctor's prognosis was that he'd be able to return to wrestling in 8 to 12 months. He still came to the ring and did some spots outside the ring. 8 to 12 months, huh? Hmm. PG-13 put, was put over uh, Spike Dudley and Mikey Whipwreck. And Pitbulls got a lot of heat saying they're from the South. Su- and the Pitbulls. And got a lot of heat saying they're from the South. Well, Jamie Nadine knew how to work that crowd. I'll tell you that. <laughs> he definitely knew how to work that crowd. They did change these city tag titles to Devon and Bob Ray Dudley on June 20th in Walton, Massachusetts. The gimmick was that Joel Gertner had got a restraining order against Perry Saturn. Being a ringside, they did a handicap match with John Cronus, which turned into a three-on-one with Big Dick Dudley's liberal interference to win the title. Now the shows in Walton are 700, and then they drew 988 in Revere, the 21st. Which wasn't during our week, but might as well talk about it anyway. Revere was headlined by Van Damme and Sabu in a wild brawl over Dreamer Sandman, which was constant, wild action, but really sloppy. Taz and Luis Spicoli traded bars. Jim with Taz came and he chose Spicoli out in less than 30 seconds. After Spicoli was doing the Wolfpack sign in the ring. Taz and the match last 31 seconds for Spicoli tab. That was announced 28 seconds. They continued the scenario where Rick Rude and Francine, Rick Rude kissed Francine and she passed out. But when Shane Douglas asked her, she claimed Rude injured her neck. And Waltham, Dreamer, beats Spicoli in an quit match using the old flyers to the balls finish. Flyers to the balls. There's a link to ECW store in the June 15 newspaper in Asbury Park, New Jersey, covering the first show in that city. It was pretty much a favorable piece. Nowhere to cheer at all will appear on the June 28th show, but the plan right now is for him to face Tommy Dreamer on the August 17th pay-per-view and endure a few house shows up to that point. Terry Funk's only working a few days before the baby show. Hopefully, let him heal up by that time. Uh, Jerry Lawler is not working ECW house shows. No. Um, no, sir. I have the Asbury Park press story open. Um, would you like to take any guesses as to the headline and subheadline? No, don't, wouldn't know. Extreme Entertainment. Extreme Championship Wrestling is to other leagues what Hooters is to Chuck E. Cheese. Okay. Oh, that appears to maybe be a pulp quote. <laughs> oh, yeah, because it says the ECW. Oh, it says the ECW the whole time. Oh, and we have a quote from Michael K. Johnson, who covers the ECW for a newsletter called The Wrestling Lariat. Oh, how about that? Remember Michael K. Johnson the <laughs> third? That's your friend. Oh boy. This is as legitimate as it gets, says Michael K. Johnson, who covers EC- the ECW for a newsletter called The Wrestling Lariat. I've seen guys hit each other with baseball bats wrapped in barbed wire. I've seen guys do moonsaults off 
top of 15-foot steel cage and crashed through their opponent, he said. How do you fake that? Yeah, how do you do that, Bix? How do you learn to fall off a 20-foot ladder? <laughs> That's your friend. Is he? I don't think he likes me very much. <laughs> Michael K. Johnson. The third. The third. Yes. Not to be confused with Hunter Q. Robbins, the third. Well, you know, I mean, everybody, I mean, how old is he here? How old is Mike at this point of uh, the wrestling area? 19, 1997. Because that's 26 years ago now. I mean, if he's a young man. But he also obviously his... does not think ECW is a shoot. He's not going to, yeah, but he's not going to uh, say that in the press. Cafe brother. That's right. He's sports. He's sports media picks. He's got to be. He's got to uh, keep. You know, keep keep the uh, the kayfabe going here. Oh, they they talked to a fan, twenty two year old Shane Bubba Boucher of Neptune. Uh, Bubba Boucher, who's himself an aspiring pro wrestler. Uh, the ECW Boucher says is turned up like six notches. They use chairs more. They slam tables. They jump off rafters. It's more down to earth. It's more what's going on in the world today. Uh, yep. The ECW's fans range from civil engineers to uncivil fifth graders. They have one thing in common. They can all program their VCRs. This is an important skill, since ECW's matches are aired on the Madison Square Garden cable station on Saturday mornings at 2 a.m. Oh, there are apparently approximately yeah. 12 women in attendance at the Asbury Park show on May 2nd. Two of which were uh, Beulah and Francie. <laughs> Well, at least I counted them. Yeah. Oh, Bobby the ten-year-old. <laughs> okay. Bobby Duncan Jr. returned, and Heyman figures put him in Brian Lee's role. He's certainly an improvement. Duncan said that looked good, but if nice doing a brawling style. They don't bring him until the next year, right? Duncan is he there in ninety-seven? When was he there? Because I know he's in WCW in 98. I do remember that. Uh, I'm checking. So, I don't know. Okay, Boggy Duncan Jr. was already in in February. A little. And then he comes back in August. Well, he comes okay, back in so, June a little and then more in August. Okay. So, well, 97, 97 was the year then, not 98. Okay. Actually, no, I read it wrong. No, he's in throughout the summer. And okay. In, in early '98, too. I I, I kind of remember he was there in '98, but I just thought it was, he wasn't there in '97. So there you go. All right. Uh, Torsten and Terry Funk's daughter got married on June 15th. Was her? Would that have been the one? Jane either. But that would that have been in the one that was in the angle that we played recently? Uh, what was her name? Maybe. Oh, I can't remember her name now. Um, he said we get, be, we'll be getting a broadcast TV station, the new WPAX. Formula WBIS, Channel 31 in New York at 2 a.m. Saturday night time slots. WF is also going to get back a local television New York market on the same station. And we do a customized commentary for the market. Okay. So first of all, it's WPXN is uh, the call letters as the PAX network is getting ready to launch. Yes. Uh, They do get this. They are on there for a while. Um... I'd love to know how much they were paying, or at least theoretically paying, 
that they're doing both this and MSG at the same time. You know? Yeah. I'm cur- I've always been curious about that. I mean, it's a few years by then, so I guess they paid the bill, but it's not like WPXN is mentioned in the bankruptcy filing. Um, and this, you know, because I was did not have MSG at that point, because MSG had become a premium channel on my cable system. This let me watch ECW each week. And yes, this is also the addition of WWF New York at this time, which is just a revoiced over shotgun, but it makes its debut on Channel 31. Um... But it ends up bouncing around a bit, because it starts on there, it moves to WPIX at one point, and I think it ends up on Channel 55, just replacing Shotgun eventually. And I'm not even sure if it had different commentary at the end. And ECW is also getting back on Sunshine Network, what a fun in that 2 a.m. time slot. Already ECW plans to return to Florida in September. Sunshine previously dropped ECW due to content problems. ECW have found early success running house shows in Florida, but stopped touring there when they lost the Sunshine Clearance. So have they been off a year at this point? If they're not running Florida, they have not been on. Yeah. Content problems, the story of their life on television. Yeah, for more on that, to uh, go back, what, a couple months to the uh, coverage of the quote-unquote lesbian angle? Yeah. Mr. Hughes lost a ton of weight since he disappeared from his very brief WF stand as he worked at a Greg Price indie show on June 14th at Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina. He was losing weight, getting ready for that big NOD spot, obviously, uh, that we'll talk about later on in the show. Former Mississippi Valley, Kimono Wanna Lay, worked at the show as a manager of the Ring Lords and the Magic of the Rock and Roll Express. I wonder if anyone from WCW was scouting. <laughs> Uh, June 14th at the Roanoke Rapids High School in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, for our 270 fans. We have Kevin Kirby over Bob Starr, James Ivey over Denny Cooley, Billy Kidman. Well, there you go. There's your talent here, Bix. Billy Kidman over Mike Youngblood, Mr. Hughes over Great Dammit Valentine, and Rock and Roll Express over the Ring Lords by disqualification. Hmm. So maybe Paul Ward and Taylor may have something going on here. All right, USWA. Kimono Wanalea with the ring look. It's it's a weird spot there. All right, uh, the return to Memphis on June 14th at the Big One Flea Market drew about 560 fans and a $2,800 gate for the Jerry Lawler, Tommy Dreamer match to start the USWA-ECW feud here. Dreamer was at a live TV show that morning. As security guards protecting announcers, Lance Russell and Michael St. John, because they portrayed Dreamer as an out-of-control madman. There were several fans wearing ECW TV shirts at the studio and chance ECW throughout television. Well, on one hand, the promotional was happening that people knew about ECW. There were feelings concerned about how popular ECW was, and the crowd then take to ECW as a heel promotion as they did during the select amount of wrestling for you. All right, let me scroll down. Uh, TV soon, June 14th, the, fans, the few fans that were chanting ECW were fans from Mississippi. That promotion knew ahead of time would be doing it to add the at- to the atmosphere. So they weren't exactly plants, but they weren't exactly not plants either. Hmm. Okay. So there's that. All right. So anyway, um, Dreamer first showed up trying to attack Lawler as he had a TV match with against his cousin Carl Fergie, who is working as Mister Wrestling here. Or security held Dreamer back and threw him out of the building. Let's watch the clip, shall we, of this happening. Jerry had to say, not that he didn't mean it, but I think that some of it is because he's... Look out, look out, look out! 
Bill Barron's is part of this. And of course, Lawler, Lawler's ready to take him on. But I don't, I don't know if this arena, I don't know if this television station could stand what happened last week. Well, frankly, from what we heard before, we don't know how many other guys he brought with him. So maybe it's not a good idea to, to have. I know you don't care, Jerry, but uh, uh, well enough to be said that everything, uh, cameras are still intact, studio is almost intact. Mr. Wrestling is going to be stopped, and that is going to be the end of it. I'm checking to see if uh, referee Bill Rush is around. I don't see him. I think he's back trying to get Dreamer, and so the King has picked it up. And boy, i got to tell you one thing. They are a determined group. No more so determined than our own King. But let me tell you, this setup. With everything that's going on in the USWA, right. I wanted to see if we could... I saw it playing, and I love the cry here is Michael St. John's, St. John's University, <laughs> the fighting Michael St. John's. Hmm. All right, so finally later in the show, Dreamer broke through security and beat up USA Commissioner Elliot Pollock and pretty well destroyed the TV set through bleachers and a garbage scan in the ring. And while this was going on, the fans were cheering Dreamer like crazy. He also attacked two security guards who sold the attack poorly. Well, let's watch this, shall we? Time, Michael, if you live long enough, you're going to see everything, and I think today kind of proves it. Hello right. again, everybody. Lance Russell and Michael St. John, and we are right uh, here, ready to go huh? with another big day of USWA Championship Wrestling. But this is those... not what I was expecting. Um, Because this is more complete. Okay. This is the beginning of the show. Oh, okay. Sorry, I had to keep up in the wrong spot then. Because this one is also better quality than the other clip we had seen. There we go. Yeah, but this isn't the same thing. Now it is. is. Yeah. Are you sure? Yes. Yeah. Brian Christopher's here. No. No, I'm at the, I meant it's in the right thing now. Because I had okay. wanted to play the whole thing where he's hyping. See, I thought the beginning of the show was relevant, though, because I, I remembered he had, there's the whole speech he gives about how Dreamer's a dangerous individual. Okay. Earlier, Billy Travis was out here under the ring. He uh, he slipped out. For, uh oh, uh oh, more trouble, more trouble. Look out! Oh, he could just stay on the Pollock. Look out! Let's go, Barons.
St. John, we got to get over and check Michael. Lance Russell for Stacy saying bye-bye, everybody. The announcers on this program are selected and paid by parties other than this state, namely the promoters of USWA Championship Wrestling.
I mean, it went on way too long. And the thing is, is there where again? Where was the USWA help? You know, where's Lawler? Where's Brian? Over there. Well, he's not working in the company this time. I know. Hitting Elliot Pollock in the head with a chair. It just, it, it, I mean, it went on way too long. It was effective, but it went on way too long. Never ending. Yeah. I also didn't help the cause that uh, the ECW fans were just so to- so vocal. Yeah. In support of what he's doing. You know, I mean, I don't know. What are your thoughts on all this? Yeah, I thought it was fun, but I have the same issues with it that you did. It's too fucking long. There was a recap with still shots, by the way, on ECW TV. Yeah, I remember that. But, uh, yeah. Labeled on the network as Styles Recaps Recent Events. <laughs> this led to the house show later that evening, where Lawrence went to a no contest. There were a lot of fancy CW t-shirts, but around the crowd wasn't helped much by Dreamer being there. As he had been drawn by 500 fans to recent Saturday afternoon house shows, the Wee Night House shows the big one were drawn close to 250. And run them in six weeks. There are a chance of both ECW and ECW sucks. Dreamer came out shaking fans' hands, got a baby face reaction, and didn't play heel at all during the match. Lawler also played baby face and was cheer more than Tommy during the match. This year will be continuing, although not sure in what fashion. Paul Heyman was said to be coming in for the next house show. Although it was scheduled for June 28th, that won't be the case by the same day as an ECW arena show. I have a question, by the way. Since Tommy yeah. Dreamer gave the big, like, delayed pile driver to Bill Rush, does that mean that Bill and Rush... Bill and Rush... Bill Rush fell in love with him and became his new valet? <laughs> uh, no. Billy Joe Charles won the USA title from Brian Christopher at the show while the USA tag titles went up being held up. Flash Flanagan and Nick Vinsmore apparently won the belts being Tank and Recon the Truth Commission. But Elliot Pollard ruled this is a tag chance for Recon Interrogator. He's the one to hold the titles up. So, in other uh, words, Flash Flanagan and Eugene won the tag titles by beating Mantar and Bull Buchanan. But Elliot Pollock ruled that since the tag champs were Bull Buchanan and Kurgan, he was going to have to hold the titles <laughs> up. Yeah. Stephen Dunn, Mabel, Spellbinder, there, and Downtown Bruno are all gone. Dunn was fired some from this on June 13th with John Angelay Burton. Oh, boy. And to, and to draw more hardcore audience, they ran a 10 p.m. bar show in the Memphis area, but only drew 80 fans. They passed out squirt guns for the ringside fans, and Burton himself was having fun at ringside with the squirt guns. Dunn was furious at his match as Burton was squirting at him big time. Dunn says he's got a surgically repaired knee and felt Burton didn't respect the business, and they got in an argument, which wound up with Dunn getting fired. Next morning on television, Burton got into an actual mini fight with Bruno when Bruno slapped Burton because he thought Burton owed him a $50 payoff. Spellbinder was apparently fired because he had words in the dressing room with Mike Samples. Uh, you know what? I um, totally agree with Stephen Dunn. Yes, me too. That is ridiculous. You can't I mean, be spraying oh, water around at ringside in a wrestling show. Yes. That's so fucking stupid. This Larry Burton, so what do you expect? Yeah. Was Jeff Conway in attendance? 
Not noted here, no. I wonder if Larry Bertram was there with Larry Bird. They showed the same Vincent Man interview from last week where he played heel, knocking Lawler, Razor Ramon, and the Memphis fans. The angle television where manager Luther Biggs was arguing with Brian Christopher, booted Joe Travis in the ring and came out and clocked Christopher in his ankle with a guitar to give him the injury that led to him dropping the title. Southern California prelim wrestler Cincinnati Red was in as a jobber for Christopher. That would be Samoa Joe's original trainer, Cincinnati Red. That's right. Bulldog Scott Reigns, newcomer here, used to wrestle in Georgia Indies as Bo Ledoux. That's I right. That. Uh, Bo's old buddy, Bulldog Reigns, is Bo Ledoux. Mm-hmm. He was on WCW TV a little bit. Yeah. 69-year-old Gypsy Joe put over Dutch Mantel and now put himself as the icon around the house circuit this week. Wow. I think, I, we already just read that thing about the fans. Some of the USW wrestlers were laughing at Tommy Dreamer, a lifelong wrestler fan. They called him a mark because when he showed up the TV, he wanted to get his photo taken with Lance and, and Dutch. Dreamer is scheduled to wrestle all again on June 17th in Louisville. Well, let's go to the next week's Observer. A clarification on Tommy Dreamer did from last week. There was at least one wrestler or two saying he was a mar for one of his photo taken with Lance Russell. Dreamer's a longtime fan, a long been a wrestler, and obviously has a lot of respect for Lance and Dutch. So the day that he wanted the photo taken with him isn't meant as a knock at all. USWA management was thrilled with him as he did everything they asked of him. Basically, someone wanted to clarify that it was only one or two people being assholes in the locker room. I wonder who those who those people would have been. Uh, should we go back to the results to see who are? I'm guessing one of them. I'm guessing one of them is probably Billy Joe Travis. <laughs> Do you think he said Billy Just, thinks you're being a mark? Yeah. So I'm I'm guessing him. Brian Christopher doesn't strike no, me as for that. No, 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 no. no. Who else, Bruno? Uh, Bruno just got, Bruno got fired, so probably mm-hmm. not. No, Bruno's at that show th- though. Yeah, but I don't think he would have done that. He's, he's got other fish to fry. Speaking mm-hmm. of, Barry Burton made himself a big internet heel this past week with the interview with Bob Ryder, and of course the interview putting down Bruno just was fired on a three-way. Bruno apologized for putting his hands on Burton. Burton then told him he was still fired. Since so this is Memphis, someday they'll all make up. Anyway. Bruno should, should just get Sid involved. It would have changed everything. I don't know if they're on good terms at this point. So we go from the USWA to the USWF. The uh, United Shoot Wrestling Federation, I believe. Don Fry's debut as a pro wrestler on the USWF show on June 20th in Amarillo, Texas. I'm overwhelmed. Eric Valdez for 49 seconds, winning with a choke. Steve Nelson showed drew about 2,900 fans. Not bad. With Nelson beating Hideki Nakai at about 2.30 with a choke to keep his middleweight title in the main event. Next show is August 16th with Dan Severn against Paul Montello and Don Jabiera against Lisa Hunt, the crown of the first USWF Women's Champion, which will actually be the main event since women's matches get the most heat on these shows. David Davis won the under 200 division tournament, being Tony Castillo, and Nelson's looking to put him against Paul Jones, the career heavyweight champion on next car. Not Puddinghead Paul Jones. Uh, Dave was kind of big as a heel after, and as after winning, he did a Hogan posing routine to a lot of booze. USWF has been more aggressive late when it comes to pro wrestling. In his program, it stated that shoot wrestling is completely different than the work pro wrestling of the WF and WCW. So here's the thing. Even though he's billing it as shoot wrestling like UWFI did and Steve Nelson was a UWFI guy, USWF was a shoot. Yeah. 
just with rules slightly different than other MMA of the time, to appeal yeah. to wrestling fans in the Am Amarillo area. Yes. But, like, when you see, you know, some of the names who broke in there, like Evan Tanner and people like that, th those are legit fights. Those are not worked pro wrestling matches. Yes. And Lisa Hunt. Drew. At least the Hunt's name I haven't thought about in many years, so there's that. And how about Steve Nelson being ahead of the curve, too, with pushing women's division stuff? Yeah. All Pro Wrestling, Roland Alexander. They had a show at the Garage in Hayward on June 20th for the University of Waitala Tournament. First round matches saw Robert Thompson beat Boom Boom Kamini, Donovan Morgan over Frank Murdoch, Vic Grimes over Tony Jones, and Michael Monas over Aaron O'Grady, Crash Holly. Yeah, junior title match where Chris Cole retained over Chicano Flame. Semifinals of the tournament saw Modest over Vic Grimes and Morgan over Robert Thompson, which led to naturally the finals, which was not on the show. It was on. It would be on the next show. Interesting they do a tournament like that where you have the first round of semis on one show and then do your finals on the next show. Then who won, Modest or Morgan? I think it was Modest. Uh, we got some interesting stories here to close this section. Ryan Piper and Buddy Rose were guests on June 15th on afternoon radio show in Portland, hosted by former Portland Trailblazer Michael Thompson, father of Clay Thompson, current Golden State Warrior, a longtime wrestling fan, and Kermit Washington. Kermit Washington, who uh, broke Rudy Tomjanovich's face in one of the more uh, infamous moments in NBA history in, in 1977. He punched him in the face, Bix, and, and Rudy's face broke, basically. He had to have total reconstructive surgery. Yeah. Uh, Rose was ripping on Piper in character until Piper showed up. Piper talked about his early career in Los Angeles and Winnipeg in the late 70s era of Portland wrestling that put both on the map. Piper talked about WCW, but went talk about his tenure at WWF. All the callers praised Piper and ripped on Buddy Rose, who played heel. The show into a Piper and the host ripping Rose about his weight, and Piper promising to pay Rose a thousand dollars if he lost a hundred pounds in the next nine months. Thousand dollars on the contract he's on. <laughs> that all, but it's good to see that uh, Piper and Buddy Rose are doing something together here in this era. Yeah. Jesse Devine Ventura was at a reform party fundraiser in Minneapolis on June 14th, and indicated he would be running for governor of Minnesota on their ticket, although he has yet to officially announce it. Both Ventura and Jeep, Mr. Jeep Swenson have roles in the recently released Smash Batman and Robin. Swenson is sixth on the billing list, playing a larger-than-life person, although he doesn't have a speaking role, but looks freakishly large. That's basically his whole life. Ventura played a prison guard who gets killed by Poison Ivy, one of the movie villains. Yeah, Jeep Swenson is Bane here. Yes, he is Bane. Jesse is barely an extra. I mean, yeah, it's weird. Like, he's in and out. Um, and yeah, this is the beginning of his uh, campaign. That ends up being successful. Yeah. yeah. And and we close out with the former wrestler, well, excuse me, the only wrestler to be trained by Ric Flair, Stan Lane, was recently on ESPN2 doing the television announcing of speedboat racing. That's powerboat racing, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> and and course, no, he is not the father of Lauren Vobert. No, but he is the only powerboat racing announcer trained to be a pro wrestler by Ric Flair. 
Yes, he is. Let's see what Stan Lane Power Booth stuff is on YouTube right now. <laughs> uh, we've got him interviewing Reggie Fountain. <laughs> with, uh, yes, yeah, this is Superboat Stan Lane. Then we also have a... Uh, uh, let's just go to the, the shorter video. Stan Lane, welcome to Key West. Here on the Cox okay. YouTube channel. We're here at the uh, National Championships in Clearwater, Florida. The next stop for Superboat Racing is the World Championships in Key West. Less than a month away. You've already downloaded your QR app. We are ready to go totally interactive. we got stories from Reggie Fountain, Gasse, and Steele. You don't want to miss it. If you're ready, let's get started. Thank you, Stan. How well do we think being a powerboat announcer pays? It's, well, I mean, look, look at all the stuff you go. You get you get to go you get to go to all these you know nice looking places and stuff. So icons of offshore racing, the good good friend of Superboat International, Mr. Reggie Fountain. And Reggie, it's great to have you here in Clearwater as we look forward to our, not only the national championships here, but the world championships in Key West coming up next month. And many many of your Fountain Power Boats are here dicing it out for now. Could you imagine listening to a six minute interview with like Mr. Powerboat? <laughs> Yeah. Now, does this have... Oh, yes, we still have Lauren Boebert's comment uh, comments on one of these videos. <laughs> Stan Lane, Google Karen Weary. You two have a lot in common. Ha, ha, ha. Lauren and Sean won. Stan, zero. Karen Weary, D. This was nine years ago. This was nine responded eight days. Go back. That's what I responded to her. Eight days. Yeah, eight we're days. here at the national. Go back. Sorry. Yeah. I think Go back she, down. She did also comment on the other uh, video. I, I know, but I was. Bix. Go back I... to the one that you just looked at so I can read the comment. You did read the comment. It was short. No, I did not. Oh, no, I, I did you... not. Okay. There was a response to her. I know. I thought you did. Okay. Uh... No. All right, so Roll Tide, 95.47, responded, I bet you feel like a fool now. DNA does not lie. <laughs> so somebody found that video just to respond to a comment she made nine years ago. Well, the, I did. there are screenshots in my Mel Magazine article that show what video her comments are on. So there is that. But yeah, yeah oh yeah, what? so yeah, when she said that she never said anything publicly, uh, that's a lie. Because there are all, there were also comments on her mom's account that were clearly written by her, but here she is also alluding to them on her own account, bringing up the phlebotomist who they thought he might have paid to switch the samples. The what? The phlebotomist, the 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 person who takes your blood at the lab. Phlebotomist. Okay. Yes. You never heard the word phlebotomist before? No, I've never heard of that. Would you ever prefer to have a lab attack? That would have been a whole lot better. Okay. But anyway. Powerboat. Reggie <laughs> Fountain. What a name. If your name's Reggie Fountain, could you really be doing anything other than, like, having owning boats for people to race offshore in Key West? <laughs> it's perfect. All right, let's close out with the World Wrestling Federation. Four WF wrestlers were involved in an auto accident on late afternoon, June 15th, which left them all hospitalized. 
but as luck would turn out, none suffered serious injuries, and all but one checked themselves out of the hospital that night. The rest involved were Psycho Sid, Doug Furness, who suffered the most serious injuries, Phil LaFon, and Flash Funk. The accident occurred on the way to Ottawa, where the four scheduled to work wrestled that night from Montreal, where the wrestlers were stationed after working the previous night in Toronto. Sid was driving a Renan Lincoln Continental at a speed described as being around 100 miles an hour. It was apparently adjusting the sunroof, and the car went out of control, hit the shoulder of the road, and rolled four times about a mile from the Ontario border on the way from Montreal to Ottawa near Point Fortune, Quebec. The car was destroyed to the point of being unrecognizable, and all four wrestlers were taken to a Hawkesbury, Ontario General Hospital in an ambulance. The original fears that Sid was badly injured in the accident, but as it turned out, he suffered some facial cuts and suffered a major headache from a concussion, and he experienced some numbness in his arms and legs. He apparently re-aggravated his bad back. Furness was the most seriously injured, suffered a separated and broken shoulder, and underwent surgery on June 17th in San Diego. That's a long haul for him to go have surgery. <laughs> Ontario to San Diego to find out he said the damage. Well, he lives there. I know, but Jesus Christ. <laughs> All right, I'm curious. All right, Hawkesbury, Ontario, to San Diego, California. That is a 43-hour trek. <laughs> now, obviously, it's quicker by flight. But <laughs> yeah, wait a second. 43 hours by car. And where is Hawkesbury near? It's at the border up there, and the border going towards the um, United States. It's about an hour outside of Montreal, so I mean, I'm trying to see what it would be closest to looking at a map. Uh, Hawkesbury, Ontario. If you walked, it'd be 926 hours. <laughs> well, that's good you went Forrest Gump. You went Forrest Gump. Basically, I'm looking right now, if you flew, it'd be. Um, depending on the, uh, if you went nonstop, it'd be six hours. If you were connecting, it'd be uh, longer. So what airport six would flight. they be flying out of, in theory? San Diego, well, probably, uh, well, airport would be flying out of? I mean, in, uh, oh, there is a Hawkesbury airport. Uh, yeah, so. I don't know if that would be it, but. Yeah. It's a six-hour flight, but still, good lord, for somebody who has a broken shoulder. Yeah, it's Doug Furness. He can take it. LaFon suffered a concussion, numerous cuts and bruises all over his body. They had to shave a lot of his head in the hospital to get out of the, the glass they got in his forehead. Flash Funk came out of it, the most unscathed, just shaken up. The incident wasn't announced on television the next night. Funk is made back in action for the house shows this weekend, but the rest will be out of action for a few weeks. In the case of Furnace, likely longer than that. Now, let's flash forward a week. Injuries to LaFon and Furnace from the auto accident also appear to be more serious than originally thought. LaFon's been out of action for about a month. Furnace's return is more questionable. As it turned out, he didn't need shoulder surgery, but he just needed his shoulder immobilized so that he healed correctly. But an x-ray later that week revealed a broken vertebrae in his back. But still, flying all that way with, oh my goodness, oof. Tough bastard. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're and talking this, about the guy that would bike yeah. how many miles each day while he had Parkinson's? 
Yeah, I mean, these were, these were all tough dudes, but a lot of them were, well, I mean, basically, I would say all four of them were never the same after this. I mean, score Flash Funk, he went as bad, but Furnace LaFont definitely were not the same after this. No, I mean, they were already slowing down, but in their comebacks after this, LaFont had a little left. Doug was done. Mm-hmm. He just he just didn't have anything left after this accident. Understandably. Damn shame. It's a damn shame. But uh yeah, and Sid, you know, hurt he reactivated his bad back and stuff, so didn't help the rest of his career either. No. He had just come back too, right? Yeah. All right, so let's talk about Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart. Of course, the uh, previous Monday Night Raw was the uh, fight incident. So there's no word on what situation really is for Shawn. Scheduled meeting in San Antonio between Vince and Shawn's attorney on June 19th was canceled. There's a chance of meeting to be held sometime this week. Sean is claiming unsafe working conditions and neck and knee injuries suffering the unstaged fight with Bret Hart before the June 9th Raw, and that he wouldn't be able to return to action until mid-July. It appears the plans right now to use Mankind as a backup to eventually make him Austin's partner as the new odd couple tag team against the tournament winners should Michaels not return. Duffel's making plans with the idea that Michaels will start back around the latter part of July. Plans seem to be from a storyline standpoint to keep Michaels and Hart apart, so it doesn't like they'll turn this into an angle for a SummerSlam match due to problems. It's obvious it's a match that people are interested in seeing. On the weekend, Livewire and Superstars cable shows, they read a statement from Jim Ross on that situation saying that Michaels was in a contract breach and it seemingly left the WWF, and that neither man was injured in the fight. This is when that NWO shirt picture really gets going on the internet because people were just fully believing that Sean had breached his contract and he was going to go to WCW. Yes. Although Bischoff didn't want it. No, because Bischoff knew what kind of uh, mental and chemical shape Sean was in at the time and he knew that Sean would only make locker rumors. Yeah, but here's the thing though. Do you make that sacrifice to hurt your competition? Because as we talked about earlier in the show with Mike Tyson, how different things are. Take away Shawn Michaels from WF in late 97. There's no Generation X. You know? Yes. That that is as big of a death blow as Tyson going, you know, not being there. It would be a big deal. You, know, you don't have a catalyst. You don't have dinner, the generation X. And, and it changes everything with Bret Hart. Bret doesn't leave. You know? Mm-hmm. There's so much that changes from that for years. But, I mean, I get why, I get why Bischoff didn't want to do that. And I'm pretty, I'm pretty much guarantee you that it, that was Hogan more than Bischoff, Dix, that was making that call. Probably. All right, Torch adds more. Todd Pettengill talked about the final on the Saturday morning live where I showed June 14th, which is done on YouTube, referring to the Michaels Brett incident as a legitimate fight. In essence, admitting other fights aren't real and a part of the show. 
on Superstars the, the next morning, they dedicate a whole feature to the incident narrated by Pattengill. Mr. Tesla. Ninety-seven superstars. Uh, no, of course not. Um, Pengill changes the description of the incident to an old-fashioned fist fight. They play audio from Jim Ross's nine hundred line report. These two men had words. They fought. It was quickly broken up before anyone was seriously injured. It was unprofessional conduct by both athletes. And later in the night, about 7.15, Shawn Michaels told WF officials he could no longer function or compete in this environment. So apparently Michaels will not be honoring his contract. And apparently, at least for the time being, he will not be fulfilling his contractual commitments. It's very disheartening. There is such personal right. Personal, personal rivalries. There is such a personal rivalry. It's obviously out of control. I just hope Michael, after a few days, thinks about thinks about it and will reconsider his decision and return to WWF. That's what I hope. He has four years left on his contract. Now on Raw on the 16th, after hearing from Michael's attorney over the weekend, they opened the show saying that neither of those statements on the weekend television turned out to be true. That Michaels would return to WWF and perhaps be on television the following week. That Brett would be expected on television the following week. Brett wanted to do a live interview on the June 16th Raw to turn his fight into a wrestling angle and give his side of the situation in his typical semi-shooting work fashion. But for whatever reason, likely to avoid antagonizing Michaels, it was decided against using Brett on a live show for fear he might say something Sean would take the wrong way on a live interview. It was also on television that both men were injured in the fight, signing Michaels aforementioned injuries, and Brett re-aggravated his knee injury. He is expected back on the June 28th Anaheim House show, using that as a reason he wasn't at Raw, although they did show a tape of him doing an interview from June 14th in Toronto. Now, back, back to the torch. Bret Hart did not appear on Raw, nor was he backstage at the event. He did address the incident with Michaels in his weekly Calgary Sun column. He called Michaels self-centered and wrote, By now everybody knows it. Boy toy forfeited WF title and went home just to avoid facing the hitman WrestleMania 13. Now he's doing it again because he couldn't deal with getting the ring with me in Calgary. This time I don't dispute that Michaels really is looking for a smile because I removed it from his face with my fist. If you're wondering why you didn't see that match, it's because it happened in the locker room last Monday. I told WF the only way I'd give them an interview about the incident is if they let me talk on live TV so no one could edit the truth. Get ready because sometimes the truth hurts and I'm not pulling any punches. When I tell the whole story on Raw this Monday, Brett's words will would indicate this initial plan was to let Brett rip into Michaels on Raw this past Monday. Well, Michaels' attorney is sending the invitation to at least meet and discuss possible reconciliation. The WF decided it would be prudent to wait a week before addressing the situation and length on television. Now, the backstage fight, according to some more sources, began when Brett followed Sean to the locker room. He told him he had taken his comments too far. Wrestlers within the hearing range thought they were rehearsed for an interview on Raw. When Brett said that Sean's comments regarding Sonny were causing marital problems, the wrestlers realized it wasn't rehearsal for television. Michael shot some comments back at Brett and asked him, what are you going to do about it? Brett then jumped Michaels and took him to the floor. He grabbed him by the hair and pounded on him briefly as several wrestlers and officials stepped in to break it up. A week after the incident, there didn't seem the sense of how the entire situation would play out. Billy has removed Michaels from the main event of the July 6th in your house and replaced him with Ken Shamrock but hopes he returns in time for SummerSlam. According to WF, Michael's attorney says Sean is anxious to return. And real quick, I'll read this before we can talk about the whole thing. The uh, situation with tag titles was announced that they have a tournament on Raw, which began on the 16th. But a tournament winner's face on Austin, the partner of the choosing a title match. This idea was formulated when the period Michaels wasn't going to be around. But since the tournament was already put on paper, we had the idea that Michaels would be around, 
they decide to go with it, and Michaels may or may not be off Spartan when that match rolls around. All right, this is the aftermath of the uh, the big uh, fight, the sunny days thing, and uh, <laughs> it seems to me that they were going to let Brett go out there and do his thing. But when Sean's attorneys, you know, said, well, we'll talk, then they're like, well, we're going to, you know, put the muzzle on Brett. But there was actual thought of letting him go out there and, and cut, cut it out on Sean, you know? Yeah. And for those wondering why there was a delay in this in the first place, why? I mean, because, you know, the that was... I mean, the the Sunny Days promo was May 19th. May 19th. So I mean, there was this delay here. So we go to Brett's book. Where am I starting here? As I climbed into the ring with the Hart Foundation to open the second half of Raw, Sean appeared on the big screen, wasted, and suggested on live TV I couldn't get it up for ten minutes, and I'd been having some quote-unquote Sunny Days, a blatant suggestion that I'd been sleeping with Sonny. I couldn't hear him well because it was so noisy in the ring, so the remark sailed right over my head. When the interview was over, most of the boys were seething at how unprofessional it was. Any hopes uh, we had of working together went right out the window. Sean was so out of it that night, Hunter and China had to help him out of the building. <laughs> yeah. When I got home, Julian and Stu were upset about the sunny comment, but it wasn't until Dallas and all of his school pals asked me whether I was doing stuff with Sonny that I realized that Sean had hurt my family. At oh that boy. time, the pro wrestling code of honor was still clear. No man hurts another man's family. Jim Ross phoned me at home to apologize on behalf of the office and to promise Sean's unprofessional behavior would be dealt with. I'd heard that line before. This time, I felt I had to do something to settle the score. Okay, so before I continue... Look. Even setting aside for now that these are pro wrestlers and stuff, you know, I, I don't think you should necessarily jump to beating the piss out of someone over words. But in this situation, he said that on TV, Brett and everyone else knows it's projection over Sean's affair with Tammy. And then Brett gets home and his son and his son's friends are like, are you doing stuff with Sonny? Of course <laughs> he decided to beat the shit out of him. Yeah. I mean, good lord. Like, and also, yeah, yeah. accuse Brett of having the one affair he didn't have, too. <laughs> yeah. So let me adjust how I'm holding my computer here as we continue. Uh, Throughout that week, I brooded about what to do. I wondered about beating the hell out of Sean for real at the pay-per-view. Bret Hart brooded, did you say? Yes. <laughs> Shocking. Have we done the week of the actual scuffle? Uh, I think we did. Let me, let me see. Uh, that was June the 9th, Raw. Yeah. All right, let's see here. 97. Yes, show 47. Oh, wow. Way back. Wow, okay. Anyway, where was I? Uh, 
Okay, throughout the throughout the, that week, I brooded about what to do. I wondered about beating the hell out of Sean for real at the pay-per-view. But that could be costly to the company if he got badly hurt. And I also had to be careful of my knee. Because also, yeah, Brett's still on the shelf after getting his knee scoped at this point. I decided to yeah. tell Vince that I had to pull out of the pay-per-view because my knee wasn't ready. Vince had a plan, blah, 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 blah. You know, as far as how they'd set it up. Um... At the Raw in Huntington, West Virginia, on June 2nd, I had an in-depth talk with Vince. Told me the company was in financial peril and that he was only just hanging on. Next six months would either make him or break him. He said Ted Turner was hell-bent on putting him out of business. And he told me he might have, have no other choice but to restructure my contract. Of course, I'd still get every dime he owed me, but I'd get it on the back end years down the road. He added that he appreciated how hard he was working for him and told me not to worry about anything. And then, you know, more about not wanting to wait on the money. So was Sean not at the June 2nd Raw? No, didn't Sean return at the, at the King of the Rain? No, he was already back because he had already uh, won the tag titles and stuff. So yeah, I, I'm trying to figure out why nothing happens on June 2nd or King of the Ring. So you know, It's a King of the Ring. So he talks about King of the Ring, uh... I happen to mention Sean. Sean, Sean, and Austin work LOD on June second. Okay, so was it he didn't? Is it? I mean, maybe the timeline of when the stuff happened at home is being obscured, and it wasn't right away. I guess. I guess. Um. So a King of the Ring. Okay, so King of the Ring happened. Next day, we're supposed to be at Ron Hartford. Sean was nowhere to be found. Happened to mention Jim that as soon as I saw Sean, I was going to straighten him out once and for all. I never thought Jim the Anvil Nightheart could be a voice of reason, but he got a worried look on his face and pleaded with me. Please, I just got back here. Don't do anything now. God, Brett, I need this job. Don't just forget about it. What could I say? I resigned myself to not beating the shit out of Sean. At about 6 p.m., I went to the bathroom to gel my hair. Of course he did. Uh, before going across the hall to tape interviews. I was surprised to see Sean's reflection go by me in the mirror. I could see he was uptight, so I smiled and casually said, Hey, Sean. He cut me off. Fuck you! You haven't talked to me in over a fucking <laughs> month. What makes you think I'm going to talk to you now? <laughs> Even though I had tear gel all over my hands, I was primed to go back to my original plan, but Sean vanished through the doorway past Crush, who was lacing his boots up and heard the whole thing. I set out to find Sean, but he was gone. Paced around the backstage area until Owen, Davey, Jim, and Pillman came to find me. I know Sean's watching from somewhere, waiting for me to leave this room, I said. I'll bet you the second I walk out of here, he'll walk in. All his stuff is in here. Watch. <laughs> <laughs> I crossed the hall, walked into the interview room, and cracked open the door to peek back out in the hall. Sean strode past me into the dressing room. He was bent over fixing his boots when I marched straight up to him. I pushed him to his feet. Got something to say to me? He flicked a weak punch at me and missed. Balancing awkwardly on my good leg, I popped him on the chin, rocking him on his heels. He came for me, so I grabbed him by his long mane and pretended I was doing a hammer throw at the Olympics. <laughs> I was dragging him around the room when a hysterical pat and a frantic lawler ran in and jumped on top of me. Unable to pry me off, Pat shouted for other wrestlers to help. 
But Davy and Crutch had no intention of saving Sean. It was nothing but a scratch fight, really. But when we were finally separated, clumps of Sean's precious hair fell from my hands. I blasted him. Don't fuck with me or my family, you little fucker. <laughs> Sean looked ready to burst into tears as he stopped across the hall to Vince's office. Shouting loud enough for everyone to hear, Sean quit, saying it was an unsafe working environment. Then he stormed off, slamming doors behind him. Brett, what Brett does not mention is that Sean came in with a clump of his own hair and slammed it down on Vince's desk when he did that. Yeah. Vince looked like a jilted lover whose boy toy had up and left him. <laughs> yes, I bet he did. <laughs> but he told me that this had not only been inevitable, but was long overdue and that it was his fault for not dealing with Sean sooner. He told me to take the night off. I felt silly to have come to blows over something so stupid, but while everything in wrestling was supposed to be bullshit, that bullshit was everything to me. Before Raw was off the air, Vince was hyping the inside story of the backstage role between me and Sean for sale to fans on his 900 number. <laughs> Jilted lover, Vince. Lanza told uh, Brett that Vince had known a real physical confrontation was coming before Brett did. Sean had told Lanza he was going to punch Brett out as far back at, as and bleh, as far back as May at the Evansville Raw, but Brett couldn't tell if Jack was just trying to stir him up. <sighs> yeah, th but this one goes oh, in the "Can you really blame him?" column. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good lord! I love the dark side of the ring reenactment of Sean putting the hair down on the desk too <laughs> which episode is that from montreal i guess i guess but yeah <laughs> all right so shotgun on june 14th torch gives us a report jim ross opened the show by himself without brian pillman he said pillman was somewhere in the building but for some reason he hadn't joined me at the table yet he said Pimble was enough of a loose cannon, he may or may not show up. So during the opening match, Jim, where Jim Neinhardt beat Jesse Jamis, early in the match, Neinhardt threw Jamis out of the ring. Pillman showed up and casually tossed Jamis back in the ring and then joined Ross on commentary. Ross and Pillman began talking about the Sean Brett situation. Ross acknowledged the fight. He said there was more rumors on the internet regarding the situation. He said Sean appeared to have left the WF and he stuff where he was on his contract. Therefore, unless he returns to the WF, he won't be able to wrestle in the United States during those four years. Bill Sarkaska said Michael's left without a smile, a lot of without a lot of his hair as well. Meanwhile, not her beat Jamis with a power slam. So they're being open about all this shit, you know, on on television. Yeah. Next, we get a video recap of competition between Undertaker and Ahmed Johnson. Ahmed came after interview and said he had no problem personal Undertaker and his problems with Paul Bear. He said whatever secret Bear has on the Undertaker it can't be so bad to justify allowing that Pillsbury Doughboy to manage him. Well, Undertaker, <laughs> Undertaker and Bear then came out. Undertaker tried to talk, but Bear made him shut up. He then began ridiculing Ahmed for attacking Undertaker in the pay-per-view a week earlier. He's over there to match on Raw on Monday, where Ahmed and Undertaker will team up to face the nation of domination. He told Ahmed he considered himself to be the manager of both Undertaker and Ahmed for that match, and warned Ahmed he better follow his instructions. Ahmed told Barry if he messed with him, he would stomp his ass. 
He didn't turn the Undertaker and try to encourage him to abandon Bear, but Undertaker and Bear left together, leaving Ahmed alone in the ring. You know, I never thought of it this way, but do you think there's a chance they knew from the beginning that um, that it was going to turn out that Undertaker did start the fire that killed his parents? I mean, it's possible. Because otherwise, the original storyline of him not wanting the secret to be told doesn't make as much sense. Yeah. I mean, it's possible. But... What, more on Ahmed and all that later. Yeah. Alright, so Shotgun showed a very interesting video. From the ECW Arena. Let's go to the clip. We'd like to take you back to last weekend when Jerry the King Lawler and his protege, Mr. Monday Night, appeared at the ECW Arena in Southern Philadelphia. Southern. And Lawler, along with uh, Mr. Monday Night and Sabu, completely annihilated the entire Extreme Championship Wrestling roster. And Lawler was having a field day. vendetta against this rinky dick organization backfired last monday paul lee head of ecw and tommy dreamer an ecw thug showed up in hartford obviously bent on revenge well as soon as the impressive mr monday night won his matchup ecw struck this situation folks is far far from over and there are rumors that ecw will be here tonight brian the King and Mr. Monday Night approach the ring. So, this leads to Lawler and Van Damme teaming up to face the Headbangers on Shotgun. Match went to no contest. When Tommy Dreamer ran out, triggered a brawl. During the match, Ross and the Bangers were a high-flying team. And that was a contrast to Lawler, who rarely leaves the ground. And Pillman followed us, and Lawler also releases Winnebago. When Ross asked what that meant, Pillman said it was an unstantiated rumor going around. <laughs> okay. Pillman ridiculed both the USWA and ECW. He said ECW plays a standard room only crowds with some buildings that seat only 118 people. He said the USWA is a Mickey Mouse minor league WF wannabe. <laughs> Very weird to have us all this going on this time. Yeah. Then we get close to Raw with the Heart Foundation attacked Austin before his match with Pillman. They showed more uh, Raw highlights. Henry Godwin beat Salvatore Sinceria. That jobber Tom Brandy with a slop drop. After the match, Phineas entered the ring and won the square dance with Henry, but Henry shoved him and walked out. Uh-oh. The show closed with Scott Taylor defeating Steve Ramsey. Raw Smith was a match featuring lighter wrestlers and heavily hyped the upcoming light heavyweight division in WWF. Oh, yes. Raw is War, June 16th, through 2,773, paying 45726 to the Olympic Center in Lake Placid, New York. It was a bad show in front of a small crowd in a large arena that wasn't reacting well. We have a lot of dud matches and a lot of new faces and angles that really didn't seem to get over. The difference in crowd enthusiasm between Nitro and Raw is huge. The difference in work rate was even more pronounced. Much television had to be changed due to all sorts of problems, including the four rest being unavailable because of the car accident. The show opened up with Steve Austin interview, and both Mankind and Ken Shamrock ended up involved before it was over. Shamrock challenged Austin to a match, 
and Austin accepted it for later that night after his match with Brian Pillman. In a match, in the tournament, they determined no one contenders for the tag titles. Owen Hart and Davey Boy Smith beat the Blackjacks in 338. When Davey pinned Bradshaw, Hart used a spin kick in a total nothing match. What the hell's Hemsley pinned Phineas Godwin in 337 with a pedigree in another nothing match. When the only spot getting a pop was Godwin kissing China. After the match, Henry Godwin came out, started yelling at Phineas, and then screamed at Vince McMahon that it was all his fault. And then Vince said, I guess everything is my fault now. Oh, poor Vince. Next, we get a ECW versus USWA spotlight match as Chris Candido faced off with Brian Christopher. Let's go to the clip. Clears up. I wish, you, wish we could have had a little more information, but here she comes, ladies and gentlemen. Here comes Sonny. guest ring announcer however we also have a guest commentator joining us Paulie Dangerously from ECW will be joining us and uh what first of all welcome well you wanted an ECW on Monday Night Raw and I don't blame you it should be on Raw so tonight we'll give you a little bit more of the extreme yes indeed it's going to be an inner promotional I'd like to introduce you right matchup now here we go there being this uswa graphic when this first aired do you mm, i don't remember it but there it is it's not the actual logo though no it's just used to be in red letters memphis tennessee and throughout the uswa area and there is quite a rivalry building apparently between uswa and uh, mr dangerously's ecw yes and, and here we go What the hell is that ECW thing? Okay, maybe it did air this way then, because they're not guys. They're not using an ECW logo either. Uh, and, and and how about Vince? Tell us about Chris Candido. Ah. Vince, he was <laughs> he was just there. <laughs> he was there like nine He's months only, ago. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's see what Paul has to say of this. Well, that it's just not Rob Van Dam jumping from ECW to the WWF, but a fine athlete like Chris Candido who left the WWF for ECW, and tonight. He's going to show, just like the Yankees in a match with interleague ball game play, interleague professional wrestling, ECW taking on the USWA. Boy, speaking of interleague baseball oh, play. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. 
And uh, Candido wasting no time at all and throwing that jacket. Slugfest developing at Brian Christopher in the multicolored tights. And Chris Candido setting him up now. It's Candido over for the ride. Off the rope and oh! Candido trying to bowl over his opponent, Brian Christopher. Interleague action here tonight, and look at this. Are they ever moving, but maybe it stops right about there. Candido, a former WWF tag champion. Oh, is a dirty there when he was known as Skip of yeah. the Body Nana. He skipped out to become Chris Candido, and now he's trying to get a place on our August 17th pay-per-view. And Chris Candido uh. tonight wants to show the world what ECW is all about. Look at All right, Brian Christopher, USWA representative, and he better keep his eye on the ball, so to speak. Chris Candido. Chris Candido pointing a triple threat along with the franchise, Shane Douglas, and Bam Bam Bigelow, one of the most powerful forces in extreme championship wrestling. And right now, Candido in control. No, reversal here by Christopher. And telegraph maneuver on the receiving end of That's what you call wrestling at its best. Chris Candido coming out of the corner using his own momentum that Christopher forced him to use, came out with a neck breaker, and now it's Candido I think we to do in late classic. And I'm sure you can do it. Yeah. But nonetheless, and oh my goodness, what a leg drop. And that's Brian's go, move, too. Go for a cover here, and Christopher with a kick out. Chris did it like halfway across the ring, though. the two count, forcing the man to kick out, to get his shoulder up, once again showing the intelligence of the extreme athlete. I see. Are all your extreme athletes ball high IQs? Is that part of the uh, prerequisite to, to wrestle for your organization? Absolutely not. The only thing you need to be in ECW is willingness, attitude, and, and the ability to be an extreme athlete. We don't have an IQ test. Well, certainly Christopher has a high IQ. What about Brian Christopher? What about him? He's a fine opponent for Chris Candido. Yep. Come on, Paul. You've scattered this guy. Say what's on your mind, Paul, for once, will you? Say what's on my this mind. This is a big time. Want to shoot him? Want to ruin Raw again? This guy is Jerry Lawler's son. Ryan Christopher, he is the son of there Jerry Lawler. Jerry Lawler never acknowledged him as his own son and member. This guy never acknowledged that Jerry Lawler is his father, and I don't blame him. Oh, his mother's probably 38 years old. Who the hell knows? This guy oh. absolutely no business. You got a big mouth, I can tell you that. Mother, comes a king. Mother, what do you want, huh? Hey, come on. Come on. Chris took to the wall over there. Say that again. Is Smith Robin and member of the USWA? They were in the USWA at the same time? Yeah, but still. Well, no. Rob Van Dam's in the WWF, I guess, and Brian Christopher's siding with his father. What they are doing. Chris Candido. And this is one time when Tommy Dangerously mouth. Oh, look out. Tommy Dreamer with a chair for ECW. Oh, Tommy Dreamer with a chair for ECW. <laughs> it's, so, it's so odd watching this. His hardcore will take a vote. Tommy Dreamer with a chair. Cleaning house in there. Yeah. The ringside fans know he's got Ryan Christopher, Chris Candido, and out 
outstanding matchup going until Paulie dangerously opened his mouth. And RVD's wearing a Sabu shirt. Well, the interpromotional yes. challenge, our version of the Yankees and the Mets right here tonight. Bad blood between ECW and USWA. The North versus the South, so to speak. All right, ladies and gentlemen, standing by Ahmed Johnson. We spoke to him earlier tonight. Paul uh, powwowing with his booking assistants in the ring there. Yeah, he's trying to keep them uh, separated. So odd. God, is so odd watching this. Vince McMahon commenting in this match, uh, acknowledging all you know all this stuff that would get going on with Candido. And do you think Candido had a little extra motivation to go out there and have the, have a good match since he's working in WWE as himself for the first time? Probably. Yeah. Christopher got no offense. <laughs> he pretty much crushed him. Yeah. All right, Dave had thoughts. Candido worked hard, but the crowd is suffering. Very few ECW fans didn't care at all about the match. On the big stage, Christopher didn't get over at all. Nowadays, a small wrestler has to be a spectacular 90s-style worker to get over. And Christopher was doing the, the 80s-style. And his size, it meant nothing the fans have seen so much. Really, the match is too short to find them justice. And Christopher's good enough on interviews he can get over in that way given time. Personally, Dave's belief is this is a big step down for ECW. Feuding with the Major League WF elevates ECW, but feuding with USWA anywhere but in the USWA territory just establishes them as another Bush League promotion at a time where positioning and perception are everything in wrestling. Heyman was at ringside, so that Christopher was Lawler's son, which brought Lawler out. He slapped Heyman, who quickly jumped in the ring. Heyman also said that Christopher's mother was 38 years old to give the idea she was 12 when she had Brian. Playing off Lawler's embarrassing arrest ordeal a few years back. It was Lawler's idea to have Heyman bring up the Christopher thing being his son. Of course it was. Dreamer had said the plan was to do Dreamer versus Candido, but Heyman makes that idea because he didn't want Dreamer wrestling on television and nationally without Beulah, and because they were limited in what they could do as far as brawling, and Dreamer can't get over as a wrestler inside the ring without gimmicks. <laughs> I'm sure that made Tommy Dreamer feel good. Knowing that Paul Stoss was that way. Uh, I am right. just trying to present to you in the best way possible. <laughs> Dave's right, because this makes ECW look on, on a minor league level and feuding with the USWA. Right, and there had been no USWA feud in ECW. There had just been a USWA-ECW feud on USWA TV. Yes. Exactly. You know, this we a weird, weird deal here all the way around. Also, uh, I wonder how much of this is uh, lip service to all the weird backroom shit with Vincent Lawler from when uh, the USWA sale happened. Possible. Because for those who don't know, like, it's one of these things that no one really talks about, but it's brought up in the lawsuit, and as far as I know, it's true, like, Lawler set up meetings between Vince and the Selker brothers where Vince was like, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll make it this our farm system and then I can buy it from you. Although he didn't say he'd buy it from them, but he was like, oh, you'd be able to get earn this much money from syndication. That'll make the value of the company this and blah, blah, blah. Like, I'd love to know how that happened and why Vince was so happy to help Lawler grift. I don't know. Why was he? Uh, I mean, he was helping Paul out this time too. I think he was just trying to 
get his ducks in a row to help against WCW. He just wants allies. He allies, exactly. Yep. And you know what? Whatever rate numbers they do or don't get, they're two other companies with syndicated TV shows, so he can try to wring every last advertising dollar out of having them in a syndicated network if need be. Yeah. And USWA is in their syndicated network at this point in terms of the ratings and some of the national ads. Yeah. I don't think ECW ever actually was, though, right? No. No, 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 no. They showed a video of Brett Nolan and Davey from Toronto on June 14th trying to establish the Heart Foundation in Huge Bay Face in Canada to set the storyline for Calgary. Actually, the Toronto crowd seemed to brew Brett in the cliff. Now, that said, yeah, they have not had any Canadian Raws yet, right? That's later in the summer. Yeah. So we haven't had the whole weird, like, flipped crowd dynamic yet. No, no, we have not had that yet. So, by the way, in case it wasn't obvious that it's the way the sound carries, because I doubt that that motorcycle that you probably just heard is any louder <laughs> than any normal one. Like, I think it's just the way the sound carries for whatever reason, and that's why that or the ice cream trucks or whatever sounds so loud. I had an ice cream truck lately, but we've had, I mean, I've heard sirens, and then we had just heard a motorcycle just then, so... Uh... I don't think we've had any any cars blasting Jamaican dance house. Blood, Jamaican, <laughs> Jamaican dance hall music yet, have we? No, but Jamaican me crazy, Bix. All right, thank you, Mike Adamley. Let's move on. Uh, Gold has been Jim the Eminem 347 after a punch to the face. We're not hard doing his USA Network selling on seven second delay. <laughs> it was awful. I kind of want to see it. <laughs> My man, Jim Ross started to play the results of being a huge upset. What? Mention that seven Jim Nemo Nightheart. I don't think that's an upset. All right. Well, you're uh, w- watching that. Austin beat Pillman by DQ in 41. The handcuffed Owen, Bulldog, and Nightheart to quarters. Where have we seen handcuffs before? Aside from one great bump where he crossed himself on the ropes, Pillman didn't do much. Austin got the ref a stunner for no apparent reason. When the ref out, Owen grabbed the key from his pants and unlocked himself. Then Bulldog and Nightheart were all unlocked, and they destroyed Austin until Mankind, Goldust, and Shamrock made the save. Somewhere in all this, Mankind disappeared. Austin tried to jump Shamrock, who gave him a belly to belly. Austin appeared to back down from Shamrock, but then attacked him again, and they went at it until Goldust and Legion of Doom pulled him apart. Goldust then suggested all five of them form a team for Calgary. Which surprisingly got a little crowd pop. Crowd wasn't reacting to much of anything on that show. So, anyway. And what was billed as a light heavyweight division match? Tommy Rogers pinned Bobby Fulton in 358. He was a non with the Fantastics and held the Mid South, Southern, and U.S. tag titles that had since split up. Crowd chanted boring, even though the guys were working hard. They're making the same mistake WCW did when they first started their cruiserweight division, pushing guys like Brad Armstrong and Jeff and Joey Mags. The division didn't mean a thing until the rest was style people they'd never seen before showed up. And even though Rogers and Fulton were good workers for their day, their style is passe for guys of that size. Let's watch some of this, shall we? Because, I mean, whose idea was to do this match in Lake Placid, New York? Foundation. Yeah. And, uh, 
Well, well, here we go, ladies and gentlemen, and here she comes. Right, Ring announcer, Sable. Ring announcer. There's only one. Sable. Sable. Yeah. She's throwing out that shirt, isn't she? Yeah. Oh. Gotta keep paying for that shirt. <laughs> Sable! What a tremendous personality. Notwithstanding the... Oh, yeah, sure. Notwithstanding. The Heart Foundation and their answer... Hello! Hmm? This is this is the look that a lot that women had in that era that you don't never see anymore. The uh, like the, the combat type boots with the the white socks, wearing uh, short shorts. Hmm. Kind of dig that look. Okay. Hello, Sable. Hello, Sable. Yeah. <laughs> we're doing tonight. And while we listen to it's Sable, let's take you back and show you what happened last war. week when we saw Sable. Now, oh, wow, man. I would like to introduce to you from the city of we'll Angels. We'll see Mark Merrill here in a moment. 210 pounds, Last week. Bobby Fulton. <laughs> and uh, a lot of uh, talk about that, JR. To a lot of talk nothing. About that last week. A lot of folks are talking, to, uh, speculating on the internet what's going on between Mark Merrill and Sable. From what we understand, they had a had an engagement. They were running. Is that the Alundra Blaze entrance music? It's something, but it, it doesn't help the cause that Bobby Fulton is out in his natural hair. Yes. He's in short brown hair. Yes. And he doesn't like Bobby Fulton. Too. And his Flojo pants. He doesn't like Bobby Fulton. We had already gone uh, to commercial work. Well, he's wearing the Fantastics vest. And uh, a lot of people trying to make a little bit more of that than what it right. was. Nonetheless, the wild man is here, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, so is Bobby Fulton. This is uh, a very special... I'm here to see how old each of them are at this point. Boy, how nice is it to be in the ring there with Sable? And his opponent from Seminole, Florida, weighing in at 212 pounds, Bobby Rogers. Bobby Fulton is uh, 37. Tommy Rogers is 36. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think of who's active now, because I feel like the obvious names are in their early to mid-40s. Well, hold Oh, on Cody. How old's Cody? Hold on. So let's, let's say, all right, 36. Cody's older than that. Cody's Cody about to be 38. 40. Yeah. Yeah. All right, it's Becky Lynch. <laughs> oh. Uh, Guter. <laughs> okay, so Becky's uh, 36. Yeah, you said. Joe Casey. Brody King. Where are you look? Where are you finding wrestlers by age? On Skyler. What? Are you, where are you looking though that you that you were able to get thirty six year old wrestlers? I have my ways and means, Bix. Okay. Jonathan Gargano will be thirty six in August. Yeah, so will Gacy. Um. So Rollins is. Angelico. Angelico. And Helica, sorry. Okada. Rollins is 37. Bray Wyatt, but Bray Wyatt, uh. Okada's 35. Exceptions to the rule. Uh. A a redacted wrestler. Uh. (laughs) Dijak. He's what, 35? Uh. Dijak is, uh, 36. Okay. 
Dash Wilder. You mean Cash Wheeler? <laughs> no, it says Dash Wilder on here. Uh, Sammy Zayn's almost 39. Uh, Nicole Matthews. Uh, Boogs. Drew Gulak. Um, Red Titus. Ronda Rousey. Sammy Callahan. So basically, uh, we're, we're looking for people who are in the 35 to 37 range, basically. Yeah, Eva Lise, Trimberetta. So that's people that are 30, born in 1987. Oh, okay. Looking at 1987 first. Gotcha. Uh, Rocky Romero is 40. Yeah. Charlotte was Charlotte 30, uh, 37. Okay. Pop, uh, Big E. There's a bunch of people. But yes, Tommy Rogers and Bobby Fulton. Uh, hey, they had a great time, brother. <laughs> As you can tell by the way they look. All right. That's the action. Tommy Rogers. Tommy Rogers and Bobby Fulton. And certainly, JR, you're very familiar with these two individuals who used to be a tag team combination. Well, they certainly had. They certainly that's another Vincism tag team combination. That's right. Certainly were 13 years together. Fulton and Rogers, better known as the Fantastics. And uh, they got together down in the Mid-South area back in uh, the mid-80s. When I was just uh, earning, my, earning my trade. <laughs> Light heavyweight division, and I would suggest that we're going to see a great deal of speed in the... Uh, Probably a lot of risk taking as well in these light heavyweight matchups. A WWF creating a light heavyweight division, and that would mean that the uh, you cannot be over 215 pounds. It's 215 or less. I think what you're going to see when the, the light heavyweights get here in in full speed, and there's going to be several of them, folks. Several top, and I mean uh, in the double digit athletes are being recruited to join the WWF light heavyweight are division. They? You're going to see a great deal of athleticism, more speed, more quickness, and as Vince alluded to, perhaps even more high-risk maneuvers. Now, these two guys, they've been Mid-South Tag Champions, the Southern Tag Champions, and the NWA U.S. Tag Champions. Had some great battles with the Midnight Express, and certainly uh, the Sheep Herders in their day. So many other great teams. That's so surreal. An outstanding combination. The Sheep Herders. Kind of like a marriage. Yes. Kind of, they grew apart a little bit. And now well, they're wait a minute. Whose marriage are you talking about? Well, I'll speak for myself. <laughs> now, of course, you have to watch yourself now. there. Better watch yourself I'll there. I was watching right now. I'm happily on it. Happy man. What do you know about Bobby Fulton and the blue tights? Well, Bobby Fulton's a, he's a, he's a, a young man that certainly for about 15 years has been a, a, a tremendous wrestler, mostly in tag teams with Tommy Rogers. Certainly the of the two, and there's a cover right there, and a near fall of the two, uh, Fulton has always been a little bit more, he's always had a little bit more of an edge to him, and a little bit more arrogant. Roger's a little bit more laid back. I pause. It doesn't help the cause here either that Bobby is not ta tanned. Tommy looks in good shape. He's tanned. He does you have know, the mullet now, which is a little weird. But yeah, but he—I mean, he—he he looks a whole lot better aesthetically than Bobby does here. Bobby's in good shape. Yeah, but he's just—he doesn't look. He looks like he rolled out of bed and didn't prep for being on TV. Yeah, exactly. 
Although his hair looks better than it did when he was on Smokey TV last. Uh, well, I said, you know, I talk about his hair being, I mean, he did it, it, it. There were times there when he had some bad dye jobs. Well, but in terms of like looking like he was balding and stuff, he looked older two years earlier in Smokey than he did here. Well, that's what I'm saying. He had bad, had bad dye job too. Fulton from uh, Rizzi from uh, Chillicothe, Ohio. And of course, uh, Roger oh, still lives and has been raised for his entire life in the Sunshine State of Florida. Uh-uh. Whoa, Gordon Sully would say. A little laid back on the beach. In your estimation, uh, how would the Fantastics fare, or how would they have fared as a team in the World Wrestling Parade? Oh, I think they'd have fared very well, Vince. They, they had great quickness, and they still do. Oh, oh my. Break. Two veterans here. Again, they were regular partners for 13 years. So they know each other very, very well, which makes a match like this even more challenging. I don't know when the light heavyweight tournament is going to start. I guess after the recruiting period has ended. And some of these uh, guys. Oh, who'd be signed. in charge of that, Jim? Fulton trying to go for a pile driver, and his partner blocks it and elevates. Rogers is a little stronger of the two, Vince. Yep. <laughs> well, I think Fulton is a cagier. Fulton is a he's a crafty uh, competitor, as they say. And uh, there's a little cageiness if the official uh, and catches him. All right, double feature here. Uh, this took is place earlier on. Oh, oh, oh my! Break. Two veterans here again. It would have been so much better. Here we go with a cover there. and Rogers. Wait, what was, oh. that was four minutes already? What did, oh, and he hits the Tamikaze for the finish while they're in the replay. Two veterans here again. Yeah. And here we go with a cover, and Rogers. Well, puts his former tag team partner, Bobby Fulton, away. Up next, ladies and gentlemen, you talk about action. Jerry the King Lower and Mr. Monday Night are going to join forces in tag team action. Uh, I mean, I've... Uh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I've said uh, this Go ahead. Or... And I, I think I meant it as a joke the first time I said it, but you watch stuff, it feels serious. Like, this early part of the light heavyweight division feels like Vince had, like, a folder of wrestlers he didn't hire in the 80s because they were short. Like, in the so, 80s and early 90s, so. I should, I guess would be the way to put it. Yeah. So it's like, oh, who, who's in our Rolodex of short dudes? And how about the question... Oh, how, would they, how would they have fared in WF? But ah, oh, the finish. God damn. <laughs> it's it's just interesting. It's it's interesting, surreal. It's all this stuff. Watching Vince McMahon announce a match featuring Tommy Rogers and Bobby Fulton against each other. And and Jim and all this open talk about other wrestling organizations. <laughs> Insane. This is WF. You didn't do that shit. But they're in 1997. They're fucking desperate as hell. And they're just doing whatever they can. So anything goes. Next, they're oh, going to bring God. in a ninja in pajamas who wants to be Antonio Inoki, and then they sign his opponent instead. <laughs> just, ugh. Ugh. All right. <laughs> uh, real quick, I'll go ahead and read this. This is down a little lower, but I'll insert it now. So we're talking about. From the tour, says Tommy Rogers was fuming backstage after his match with Bobby Fulton, regretting they went out there and fought each other without any storyline prompting the boring chance. So the officials believe the storyline of them being former partners in another era was enough to carry the match. Not in Lake fucking Placid, New York. No. Jesus. All right, the headbangers beat Jerry Long and Rob Van Dam in 358. 
when Sandman interfered, giving Lawler a low blow of his Singapore cane. Sandman didn't smoke a cigarette or drink a beer, apparently as a political concession to appearing on the show. After the match, Van Damme, Dreamer, and Sandman fought over the railing. And then our main event. Saw Farouk, Kama Mustafa, team up. The Undertaker and Ahmed Johnson, the 609 of a bad match. Kama should have really out of shape. Obviously, they dropped the idea of using him as Papa Shango. Crowd was dead when he was in there. And literally stunned with a little build-up. He pinned the Undertaker clean with a Yurinaki. It's like Undertaker has popped up for monsters like Vader and Yokozuna and their big moves. But this out of shape never was does a move that isn't even over in this country on him. And he lays there and sells it for a long time after the match. Well, let's watch that finish and then watch the shocking deal after the finish. Third individual. Is it going to be Mr. Hughes, whom we have seen here in the WWE in the past? Oh, yeah. So uh, because... Uh, <laughs> Farouk has said that the new nation is going to be bigger, better, and a whole lot blacker. The commentary is basically a more tasteful version of ECW fan chants during late period two Cold Scorpio matches. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's stand all the black guys. Uh, Mr. Hughes, perhaps uh, the legendary Sweet Daddy Seeking. <laughs> they might have seen Ice Train. Ah, Choo Choo, love that guy. You know, I remember Flip Wilson. <clears throat> the special delivery job is still working. Back at the post office. Oh, it's one of those goddamn daily New York Daily News jobs. The skull it got for him. God damn it. <laughs> All right. What about Butch Reed? It could be Butch Reed. <laughs> it could be Butch Reed. <laughs> Is George Wells doing anything lately? Steve, he's still on the drugs. <laughs> it could be Butch Reed. Slick's hey, still Cheryl. reverend. <laughs> it's uh, Ben Peacock's this guy still around. Ah, uh, Chris, why are you even saying that? How the hell would I know who Ben Peacock is? Ugh. But it, your boss is there. Well. And our man having problems. Oh, oh, wait a minute. Look at that. What about Abdullah the Butcher? Undertaker, the reboot, the tag there. Unfortunately. <laughs> so he just sends him into the corner. <laughs> with an Irish whip. And he hooks him for an Aranagi. Duckyard dog? I don't know. <laughs> Doesn't even hook the leg. Now he does. A victory! A victory! So, by the way, the the one concession here is that Ahmed never tagged it. I know, but... They didn't really do a good job getting that over on commentary, though. This is the Undertaker... I mean, and, and listen, we all know in real life the, the connection here. But this is the Undertaker doing a, jo a clean job... For the returning <laughs> comma. On television. Yes. This obviously the Airman Undertaker was not protecting his gimmick as well, was is it? Huh. My goodness. What, everyone wow. in BSK gonna get clean wins over him now? I totally forgot this happened. I know what's coming up next, I remember that, but I totally forgot the comma pinned him clean as sheet. Well fucking you're an argument. 
Dominic Johnson. Stop. Ahmed Johnson. I believe in this. Finally getting into the ring. Undertaker not able to make a tag, and these monsters just mauled him. Yeah, he never got an opportunity to make a tag. Has been defeated here. Unable to make a tag to Ahmed Johnson. There's Steve's. Ahmed Johnson. Well, he was the one member who got kept the week before. Paul Bear is nowhere around. Or two weeks earlier, whatever it was. Paramount and Undertaker have had their problems, and this was not exactly one of their more stellar. What? What? Wait a minute! No! 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 My God, no! What is this? What is this? You better tell me this is not happening. Somebody tell me this is not going on. This is surreal. Has Ahmed Johnson done what we think he's done? Ahmed Johnson! shotgun next with a trios match with the new nation and Ahmed blows out his knee and misses the pay-per-view and then when he comes back a month later they kick him out of the nation and that's about it <sighs> shitty luck <clears throat> yeah I mean, he's around for a few more months but not really doing anything it's although the shittiest luck we did get the Ahmed Johnson nation of domination remix out of it though yeah. We are the nation of domination! <laughs> yeah. 
And he only used it once, and I think the version that's online like this is someone just cobbled it together because it's not that difficult. Yeah. Uh, uh, shitty love for old Ahmed. Yeah, or as a gorilla would call him, Ahmad Johnson. Ahmad Johnson. <laughs> yeah, how close, often I were guess. they taping Shotgun after Raw, too? It uses before Raw. Oh god, did you see <laughs> Um Do we have the dark matches in the notes or should I tell you what the dark match was? Uh Oh no wait, that's the next wait, oh wait, I'm sorry. The next week is what has the Oh no, I was looking too far, sorry. I I scrolled down to see when the injury was. Um But yeah, do we have the dark matches here or mm, There's Something. We'll talk about it. Alright, so, um, <clears throat> Day's thoughts as well. So, I understand WF needs new talent, and there's quality, there's no quality new talent in this country, so I have to go back to retreads. But as we see time after time, the day of bringing in large guys with no talents other than large is over. And guys like Brian Lee and Charles Wright, Crush and the line, may look like they've got Titan run all over them because of their size. But Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart have changed what the Titan look is. And Dave knows that Brian Lee's hitting in the form of tag team with Crush called the Nielsen Death Squad. That's a joke. Oh. But the Death Squad was the real, I think, a real name, though. Originally. Okay, so do we think Death Squad or would have sounded more Nazi-ish or Disciples of Apocalypse? There's a reason why they probably changed it, because at this time, you have a rap group named Death Squad. D-E-F Squad. So that's probably why they didn't do it. Yeah. I'm just also thinking about, I didn't realize until recently there was like a white supremacist <laughs> group named Dead Man Inc. that named themselves after The Undertaker. And then when they started to get publicity, that's why he stopped using Dead Man Inc. <laughs> apparently. <clears throat> well, that's a smart move in his part. Or at least they got him to stop using Dead Man Inc. WWE <laughs> stopped using Dead Man Inc. I don't know how uh, Mark from <laughs> Wrestling felt about it. <laughs> All right, Nitro drew a 3.33 rating, 2.83 first hour, 3.83 second hour, and a 5.71 share. While Raw did a 2.36, 2.28 first hour, 2.45 second hour, 3.95 share. The Nitro replay did another near record, 1.9 rating and a 4.6 share. That's for quarter hour comparisons. WCW opened with a 2.7 for Hogan and Rahman in their interview. Glacier Mortis dropped to a 2.0. WF, which had a long Austin review, a Mankind Shamrock Pillman review. <clears throat> then you had WCW's slow growth continue to a 3.0, while Raw did the same slow growth to a 2.5. ECW 7 with Christopher Candida to a 2.3, while WCW had Parker Colo to a 2.9. WCW got a huge bump from a 3.0 to a 3.9 for the sixth Ray Jr. match. But WS State stayed at 2.5 for the long way to Pillman Austin match. That's not good for them. WP did 2.9 for the finish, and post that thing will go with Shamrock and Austin, forming their team, while WCW fell to 3.4 for Dragon and Jericho in the Piper interview. WCW went back up to 3.9 for the remainder of the Piper interview when Flair came out, and Norton Bagwell versus Jerry Mongo. But WS fell from a 2.9 to 
to a 2.0 for Tommy Rogers and Bobby Fulton and Lauren Van Amherst to Headbangers. For the final quarter on which WCB Chiefs Hogan and Romney gets Luger and the Giant into the wild angle, they peaked at a 4.1. But they're up to a 2.4 for Undertaker, Ahmed, Kama, Farouk in the angle. I mean, it's pretty much what's expected. <clears throat> and what drew and what didn't draw. Pretty much. You know? Yeah. <laughs> they did an angle that blasted, which they didn't think would be televised on Shotgun, where referee Earl Hebner jumped ring announcer Howard Finkel. Every so often they do angles to make Finkel the butt of their jokes, and she's doing several angles with Harvey Whippleman, the famous bushwhacker match in his underwear, and the time Kurt Henning and Shawn Michaels bust up his car on a live Raw show in the parking lot, unbeknownst to him ahead of time. Yes, that was Howard Finkel's car. The only major thing on Shotgun where Christopher got to beat uh, Tommy Rogers, Matt kind of a rockabilly, and the new NOD being three drivers. Notice Dave does not mention Ahmed's injury. Legion Doom and Goblins had a conversation to a match which takes place on Raw on Detroit on the 23rd. And our match had Mankind, Undertaker, and Shamrock be Owen, Bulldog, and Nightheart when Shamrock made Nightheart tap. I mean, I suppose it's possible he blew out his knee out, outside of the ring and not during a match. It is Ahmed Johnson, after all. Yeah. But that's the last match he has before <laughs> he's out, is the shotgun match. Pillman suffered a broken nose in Austin match when he got uh, when he got you know, chair kicked in his face, but he didn't miss any shows. All right, we're just three weeks to go until the Calgary pay per view show. The line for that show is very much in, in the air. The only match fish announced the main event, which now scheduled as Brett, Owen, Anvil, Pillman, and Davey. I think it's Goldust, Shamrock, Austin, and LOD. Goldust was put in Sid's original spot in a change that was made before the, before the auto accident. Don't know why that change was made. Perhaps Goldust put in due to job since they may not have wanted to beat Sid again. Perhaps it just felt it'd be more attractive show with a Sid Vader match underneath. Since we don't know instead of Sid's injuries. The match with Vader has yet to be announced, nor do we know the press time if it will happen. Vader himself has not returned to surgery on his nose, and he was originally scheduled back for the Canadian shows over the weekend. That shot the angle to the Undertaker Ahmed Johnson match on Raw. The other scheduled match that should be etched in stone is Mankind vs. Triple H. In Japan, it was announced that Grey Sasuke faced Takamichi Noko in the Calgary Review, and that's also planned to happen. Although the final details in that match had misledified at last word. Oh, one thing I forgot about the, we forgot about the Undertaker thing. He's the WWF champion. Yes, that too. <laughs> yeah. So. Good lord. Sid does not come back. Um. And because Ahmed's hurt, Vader ends up getting the title shot at uh, Canadian Stampede. Yeah. yeah that unfair title reign, this, this era is pretty blah, you know? But he's tall, brother. <laughs> this is that. This is the era where he's he's at his least, you know? And, I mean, we're just seeing him get pinned by fucking Kama. He's the least he ever meant. Well, that was in this era. Yeah. Because in in '98 he, you know, he's back. He, I mean, he does the Austin feud. He does the turn. And in '99, of course, we have all the ministry shit. And after that, I mean, he's the Undertaker. This, I mean, this year right here, he is the furthest from the Undertaker as we know of him. You know. Yes. As far as mystique, even though they're building up the Kane stuff. Yeah. yeah. 
Oh, so just checking real quick to be clear. So we've got the nation six man tape after raw for shotgun. Um, then at the weekend house shows, Ahmed is appears to be heard already because Kama is subbing for him. So yeah, like uh, either he got hurt during the six man or he got hurt during the week, I guess. Yeah, he, he just got hurt regardless. Yeah. Story of his career. So he had exactly one match in the Nation of Domination, and it was on. Uh... Well, I guess he do- is he in the match when he comes back on Raw a month or two later, or I don't remember yeah. that part. I think he is yeah. in the match because they play his music. Well, he, I mean, he's on Raw in the black tights. Yes, with the uh, African designs. Yeah. House show for the week was Toronto, June fourteenth, doing fourteen thousand six fifteen. 255-166. Ottawa on the 15th drew 38-80-78-062. And Philly at the Core State Center Spectrum drew 72-10-139-433. No, Core State Center is a different building because the Spectrum initially had its name changed to the Core State Spectrum. And then they built the Core State Center, I think, nearby. No, this is still the Spectrum. They changed the name from Core State Spectrum to Core State Center? Uh no, you're right. Spectrum was uh, this this building opened in August '96. Okay, you're right. But I do remember Spectrum being the core state Spectrum. That's why I, confusion there. Yes. Uh, yes. Toronto, Toronto was a huge success and did an additional 129,254 merchandise. Undertaker pin Austin on top there. Mankind suffered Michaels and lost the Bulldog. Auto was a weird show. It's heavy redundancy with a car wreck, and most guys because of the car wreck weren't in the mood to work. Undertaker and Austin, Undertaker beat Austin. In a weird match, Owen Pillman and Bulldog beat Illidy and Ahmed in a match where the Heart Foundation were told baby faces. It wound up with special referee Ken Shamrock giving Animal a belly to belly suplex to get a face pop for Shamrock and lead to the finish where Owen pinned Hawk. Yeah, that is weird. Now, just going to the torch. In Ottawa, WFR H. Tony Gurria came out and announced to the crowd just past the scheduled start time what had happened. And also, several other wrestlers were late in arriving, so as a result, the lineup would be reworked and the show began 30 minutes late. The crowd didn't react and instead said it was all part of the show. It wasn't until after the show the results of the x rays came in revealing that Sid and LaFont had not suffered major injuries. Now, Philly was reported as a really bad show, a decent main event, Undertaker and Shamrock against Owen and Davey, and a good Mankind Triple H match. They put Undertaker and Shamrock over. Mankind Triple H ended with Shine and Fearing for the DQ. Mankind put Shine and Nicole off to the match. Vader and Goldust got a crowd reaction. It was about 50 50 with the Heart Foundation coming out and distract Goldust, who then lost. And so there are your house shows. All right, uh, quick hitters. The plan right now is for ECW. Some ECW exposure every week on Raw leading the SummerSlam and ECW's second pay per view show. That's not how it really happens. Uh, of course not. Uh, I mean, Johnson personally resisted the idea of turning heel. So his joining the nation is going to be explained in a way where he hasn't necessarily gone heel. We never got to that point, sadly, for him. No. Um, is Bob Roop booking this? <laughs> I guess so. Is he the Star Warrior? The Star Warrior. Star Warrior who injured uh, his father. <laughs> his real father <laughs> not Kit Curtis um, technically to build the syndicated ratings they've renamed the first hour of Raw simply Raw and the second hour to The War Zone 
trying to get the syndicated ratings from them as two different programs. <laughs> During news conference in Toronto to build up the Toronto Hamilton Canadian Football League game of the weekend, Farouk jumped Toronto's Mike Pinball Clemens in a work football angle for Canadian TV cameras, and Farouk was pulled back by Hamilton coach Donald Sutherland. No, not the actor. That's S-U-T-H-E-R-I-N. Although it would have been funny if it was the actor, Donald Sutherland. Farouk in his former life as Ron Simmons was a member of the Hamilton Tiger Cats, defensive London 1981 season, where they won a Grey Cup. Well, excuse me, they went all the way to the Grey Cup and said so they won it. How about that Canadian Football League continuity, huh? That's nice. Weekend TV Rings on Live, where I do a 1.1, Superstars 1.5. Torch said to also begin a game between Doeff and Dan Severn, who may come in and work a program with or against Ken Shamrock. Paul Barlins is also being considered for a spot for the better Missy Hyatt. We're going to do that. <laughs> There's interest on both in the part of WFECW and using Brian Christopher full time. Well, he goes to WF. Former WF Ring announcer Lance Wright, after being let go, is back at his old job with ECW. And WF has had a new announcer named Michael Cole, who did the shotgun show over this past weekend with Jim Cornette. Don't know anything about Cole, but reports we heard that it was obvious he didn't know much, and Cornette was carrying him. And the rest is it history. <laughs> yes. That was vintage Michael Cole. Yes. Isn't there someone on YouTube that has like audio of him doing CBS News radio stuff under his real name? I'm sure there probably is. But anyway. Alright, next week on Between the Sheets, we had such a uh groundswell of support for the show that we did with Joe Sposto covering the Shakar angle. For 2013, people kind of want to hear more current stuff on Between the Sheets. We listen to the people. So next well, week on Between... And also you well, figured out no, when you did that show no. a way that would make it easier, too. <laughs> well, still, 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 don't step all over my intro. All next right. week on Between the Sheets, we go back to 2012. We start with uh, Ring of Honor, where they have a iPerview at the Hammerstein Ballroom. Border Wars. Very interesting show where the main event being Kevin Steen versus Davy Richards and anything goes match for the Ring of Honor title. And we get Jim Cornette foolishness, or Steve Carino's involved. And we get uh, all kinds of other interesting matches featuring names that uh, you, of course, all know and love. Total, well, let me save that for the end. All right, um, <laughs> I'll stick TNA for the end. All right, New Japan Pro Wrestling, their TV ratings are picking up, so we'll have news on that. There's some interesting results from uh, Dragon Gate and DDT to talk about. We have uh, El Terrible uh, having a, a heavyweight title match, female heavyweight title match against uh, Yujiro, Yujiro from New Japan. Chikara. Yes, I never covered them in the news, but we'll cover them on this show. As they have an uh, interesting show in Canada and Syracuse during our week. Tournament of Death in Combat Zone Wrestling. The Su- Super Indie to, uh, IWC Super Indie Tournament. We'll talk about that. We got news on uh, Holland Nash outside the ring. An altercation with Ric Flair and his then wife. The first episode of NXT from the full cell version of NXT. So we'll talk about that. In World Wrestling Entertainment, we have Linda McMahon uh, and her uh, political campaign. We'll have news on that. And Jeremy Devitt, uh, very upset 
with the Federal Election Commission. We got a new TV show starting up in WWE. Why does the WWE do long-term storylines? And we have uh, the television shows talk about with uh, some interesting deal, including John Cena's 300th Make-A-Wish. We'll talk about that being spotlight on TV, which he was very reluctant about. And uh, we, oh, we have a swimsuit battle royal, Bex, as we uh, kind of talk about the, the women thing. 2012, we got swimsuit battle royals. Yes. Yeah, swimsuit battle royal. And uh, all kinds of other stuff, but probably the most you know newsworthy thing of our show takes place in total nonstop action as we get the debut of Claire Lynch. Oh no! <laughs> so wait, is this... oh yes, because that's the reveal too. That's the reveal. Yes, well, the reveal of her, but yes. So all that and more next week in between the sheets. We haven't decided on the guest yet. That'd be Bix's decision. So yeah, I'm looking at the we'll notes. They're that. longer than you said they would be. So not too much longer. Thirty five pages. Thirty seven. Mine says thirty five. Uh, it says thirty seven right now for me. That is weird because my I'm looking at mine. Mine's thirty five. Okay, I'm scrolling to the bottom. Okay, so it's it's just past thirty six. But you had told mine me says thirty five, but thirty five. Mine says thirty five, thirty five. That's weird. I don't know what to make of that. Um, <laughs> we're looking at the same Google Doc. I can see the little yeah. thing that shows you you're in there. Um, yeah, that's weird. But yeah, if we, I would think if I, we get if we have a guest, we'll do a guest for like one or two segments, though, since there's a lot. But we'll see. But anyway, next week on Between the Sheets. All right, Big Six is always your rock show. This is Chris. So long from the Peach State of Georgia.